What a year it's been. Explosive elections, more celebrity deaths than a terrorist bombing at a drug rehab clinic, and a slew of game releases that ran the entire spectrum of awful, bland, and grudgingly okay. Hence the annual Top and Bottom 5, joined once again after last year's show-stopping, well, show-prolonging debut by the Mediocre 5, which to my mind is far more representative of the industry anyway. You'll find neither Call of Duty nor Battlefield on any of these lists, if only because it's getting too obvious. I could repeat that Call of Duty is crushingly mediocre, but I could more profitably use the time to smack myself on the forehead with the flat edge of a trowel. I have a rule to never allow into the top five a sequel that's only good because it's more of a thing I liked before, which is why you'll note a mysterious absence of Dark Souls 3 on this list. However, I'd hate to miss an opportunity to remind everyone that Dark Souls rules, so I'm giving fifth best spot to Salt and Sanctuary for reminding me of it. It's Dark Souls but 2D, and therefore much easier to push through a gap under a door. On the bland games list, meanwhile, more of the same sequels can come in, make themselves at home, settle into their favourite armchair, and bore the grandkids to death as much as they want. So step up, Deus Ex Mankind Divided. Deus Ex Human Revolution was Deus Ex but not as interesting or clever, and the developers of Mankind Divided apparently decided that what was bringing down its predecessor was that too much stuff happened in it. I suppose the fact that the very first game I reviewed went straight into the bottom five should have been read as a bad omen for the year, more so than that fucking gorilla anyway. Devil's Third was monumentally stupid and apparently designed by a schizophrenic with vibrators for thumbs, but it shall only skate at the edges of the bottom five for at least being weird enough to briefly distract one from, say, a recent bereavement or loss of limb. After Titanfall 1 dared to show its face on the full price bin with no proper story campaign, the fact that Titanfall 2's story campaign turned out actually surprisingly good somehow becomes all the more damning. Why'd you hide that light under a bushel, Titanfall 1? We've already got clunky multiplayer shooters up the arse, but the pile of decent narrative gameplay experiences barely reaches the ends of our bum hairs. Normally the bland games list is a place for the games that push no boats out and wallow in the basically functional like a toddler in a fully loaded nappy, but Quantum Break did innovate by hybridising a game with a linear TV show, so not so much pushing the boat out as dragging it up the beach and turning it over to project shitty sci-fi channel originals over the hull. I'd advise Remedy to just make films if that's all they're interested in, but I have a feeling they'd be kinda shit. Fourth worst is the first of two entries today that I like to collectively call Nintendo's prolonged public suicide. But you know, I've slightly mellowed to Metroid Prime Federation Force of late. They just wanted to try something new, right? Make a game that isn't atmospheric like Metroid Prime, explorative like Metroid Prime, or helmed by the strong protagonist of Metroid Prime, but call it Metroid Prime anyway. That's innovative, I suppose, in the sense that the atomic bomb had some innovative ideas about civic restructuring. An interesting loophole in my no-lazy-sequels-to-games-I-already-like rule is that it doesn't apply to blatant rip-offs of games I already like, especially if it's a bit better than the game I already like. I'm talking about Stardew Valley. It's all the mind-numbing workaday, let's tentatively call it fun, of Harvest Moon, but bigger and on Steam. There's never been a better time to stand behind a cow and make highly suspicious thrusting motions. The second Nintendo game on the list only made it to third blandest, as the worst games list requires that I get at least slightly worked up, and the donut of my interest in Paper Mario games can only get heartlessly stamped on once or twice before all the jam has been squirted out. That's what you are, Paper Mario Color Splash. You are the last pathetic dribble that oozes from my once squirty donut. I always thought games lay on a straight line spectrum, good games at the bell end, bad games at the pubes, and merely boring games in the veiny shaft, but it turns out sometimes boring can go so far that it comes out from the shaft and curves around to the pubes like a scrotum of ennui. Basically what I'm saying is that The Division is a phenomenally tedious ballsack, so unending and vast that if pressed against the face it could euthanise a vegetative spouse. 
But let's get away from puerile cock metaphors and discuss a game about waving your long thing around so that it smacks into scantily dressed women. Fury, by no means a huge game, but big enough to do everything it needed to do. Full marks for the quirky and compelling characters, for challenging varied boss fights, and for pragmatically cutting out the usual bullshit that goes in between boss fights. No marks for spelling, though. Sometimes I feel like doing a top 5 most Ubisofty sandbox games as well, because if I were less restrained, it and the bland games list might end up interchangeable, but I decided that I'd keep it to one, and that one is Far Cry Primal, this year's exemplar of Ubisoft sandbox blandness, now that The Division has moved to the big leagues. Reveal the terrain, collect bollocks and invade strongholds. Then, for a change of pace, invade the terrain, reveal your bollocks and collect someone to hold you strongly. <laughs> VR is still in its experimental phase, and like CD-ROMs in the 90s, that means breaking new ground in terribleness. And CD-ROMs didn't make you physically ill unless you wired the spinning mechanism to your chair by mistake, but Batman Arkham VR is a rare kind of terrible even disregarding that. 30 bucks for a Batman experience equivalent to gluing Batman comic panels to your spectacles and locking yourself in a port -a loo <laughs> So let's give Doom the best game trophy and give myself the England Cricket Team award for totally unsurprising results, but it was a generally shitty year, as George Michael fans will attest, and I'm not as enthused about Doom as I was with Undertale. I couldn't see myself sulkily ending a friendship with someone because they weren't moved to tears when the Doom Marine snapped off the Cyberdemon's left horn and shoved it up his icon of sin. Oh, how the internal debate raged as to whether this belonged in the worst or blandest list, but in the end, no passionate hatred can be sustained for a game in which you can spend ten minutes pruning a giant pillar of rock with your colourful piss stream and not be entirely sure of how you profited from the venture. No Man's Sky, more like no game. That wasn't your strongest attempt at wordplay, Yarts. No worries, I'll just patch something better in later. But it takes something special to top the worst games list. Bugs, bad design and awful story are but single ineptitudes. When the game was obviously a bad idea at the concept stage, its eventual release requires a perfect sequence of bad decisions, or what physicists call a cock-up cascade. Homefront of the Revolution started with the idea of making a sequel to a wish-fulfillment for assholes modern shooter, and the resultant cock-up cascade was like watching a chihuahua in a dog wheelchair trying to descend a spiral staircase. I remember a time when the word free always had positive connotations. Free food, free drink, the city of Paris is free of the Bourbonite menace, and if you followed the signs for free candy, it usually resulted in making many interesting new friends in the back of an unmarked van. But not anymore! Now I regard the word free with immediate suspicion, yet another word ruined by the world of video games, alongside other once perfectly good words like connect and virtual and Molyneux. So you can imagine my mixed feelings when a free-to-play game comes out on the PS4 with the name Suda51 hanging off it, a word that hasn't yet been ruined for me. If you're just joining us, Suda51 is a Japanese game director, inexplicably named after his car license plate, who made his name with quirky alternative post-punk games like Killer7 and No More Heroes, but in his more recent games, to my mind, has been trying a bit too hard to live up to that reputation. The words lollipop and chainsaw spring to mind. Let It Die kicks off with a skateboarding Grim Reaper wearing funky sunglasses, which is an image that leaps straight off the front cover of the complete dullard's guide to creativity. See, it's a traditionally grim thing, acting in a lively and light-hearted way. That's almost as clever as putting a hat on a dog. Shit on a midshipman's biscuit, a dog in a hat? Dogs don't wear hats! I hope the government are keeping a watchful eye on this dangerous subversive. Anyway, Let It Die is a roguelike survival action adventure. This is fun, isn't it? Let's throw out a few more words that don't actually mean anything. Blinking Kangaroo Stovepipe. Alright, it plays like a cross between Dark Souls and Zombie U, with a dash of Manhunt sprinkled on the top, represented mainly by unnecessarily violent finishing moves with improvised weaponry. Hey, we're smashing someone's face in with a steam iron! That's not a thing traditionally done with a steam iron! Someone put that crazy Suda51 on the terrorist watch list before he breaks wind in front of the Queen or something. You play a succession of men and women dressed like an Olympic swimming team that got about one-fifth 
the way through being assimilated by the Borg, and your task is to fight through all the levels of a mysterious tower in order to get the prize, the prize being not having to fight through the mysterious tower anymore. Combat is superficially Dark Soulsy in that it's based around stamina management and whiff punishing, which incidentally is one word the video games hasn't ruined, and I think we should invent more meanings for whiff punishing just so I can use it more often. Darling, I'd like to make an omelette, would you mind whiff punishing some eggs for me? But I know my Dark Souls, and you, sir, are no Dark Souls. The thing about Dark Souls combat is that it's best suited to one-on-one, -on -one. you and your opponent trying to wriggle around each other like a pair of hedgehogs ballroom dancing inside a tube sock, but Let It Die constantly makes you fight groups of two or three. Mind you, the enemies can damage each other so I just keep dodging and let them accidentally clip each other to death, which works but just isn't as satisfying as the proper way, like hammering in a nail with a saucepan. Also, and you might want to get a pencil because this is a fairly technical suggestion, it'd be nice if the dodge button actually fucking worked, when the game's going, well he got you with the first hit of the combo so you might as well keep standing there sputtering indignantly while he does the rest of it. The game also assigns more than one command to some buttons, like it's passive-aggressively trying to get them married. You throw your current inventory item by touching the trackpad and eat it by touching the trackpad in a subtly different way, and I'm sure you can imagine there is very little overlap between things you want to throw at people and things you want to eat. The list starts and ends with custard pies, and there aren't a whole lot of custard pies in the Tower of Barbs. You also cycle your inventory by touching the trackpad in a third subtly different way. Blimey, this is like trying to seduce your lady friend in a darkened cinema and discovering that all along you were fingering her bacon sandwich. Maybe it's part of the challenge, but the primary challenge in a free-to-play game is figuring out when and how the game is going to start stinging you for dosh. Because it's unusual for a single-player game to be free-to-play, at least one that's not aimed at housewives with empty nest syndrome, or kids with itchy micropayment fingers, and yes, Let It Die is a single-player game, don't let those international leaderboards fool you. There's an asynchronous multiplayer sort of arrangement wherein you invade other people's hub worlds and wreck up the place for cash, but you can't interact with other players directly, you only fight the random Johnnies they assign to defend themselves, and it's no different to fighting the random Johnnies in the actual levels. Except instead of fighting them in samey environments, you fight them in the same environment, a subtle but crucial difference, I'm sure you'll agree. You don't even get better stuff from doing it, so I'm not sure why you'd want to, except that you get to imagine another player somewhere in the world shaking their tiny fists in impotent rage, which sounds petty, but it's the kind of petty satisfaction you need after you yourself have had to shake your tiny impotent fists because someone broke into your hub world and whittled in the drinking fountain. So let's get back to the actual game and how it stings you for micropayments. See, micropayments for buying continues to keep going after death, and you get a generous free sample of those that lasts just about long enough for you to start getting invested. But I didn't realise you're not actually supposed to be getting invested. You're supposed to, quote, let it die. See, once you hit level 10, you're supposed to ditch your current favourite avatars and start levelling up new higher tier ones with better stats, level caps, and go faster stripes, so you can tackle the new batch of levels without getting your face steam-ironed onto a hilarious souvenir t-shirt. I didn't know that, and I noticed the game wasn't in much of a hurry to inform me of that, as I blew all my continues trying to get my tier 1 character to level 13. Perhaps it's churlish of me to expect a free game not to try to cover its costs, but this was also the point where the game started getting grind-delicious. You see, after my best character died and I had no continues, I needed to pay in-game money to resurrect him instead, for you see, permadeath is only a thing that poor people have to worry about. But to make that money, I had to grind with my second best avatar, but his stats were lower and I got him killed as well, so I had to grind up with my third best to bring him back so I could continue grinding up to bring my best one back, and that's when I knew I had to get out, before I got caught in an inescapable vortex of failure. I learned that lesson from the Hillary Clinton campaign. So now that we finally hauled ourselves out of the Christmas period and the usual quagmire of familial tension where all the chocolates exist in some strange dimension out of phase with the rest of the universe because everyone's too polite to start eating them, let's now immediately remind ourselves of it by playing Dead Rising 4, aka the Dead Rising Holiday Special. Setting a game at Christmas is the perfect method for drastically reducing its shelf life, especially for me, that fucking sleigh ride song is irritating enough, without having to listen to it constantly while browsing for gifts in a shop only tangentially related to sleigh riding. It's possible that playing Dead Rising 4 in New Year catch-ups time is doing it a disservice, and if anyone does think that, they better hold on to their trouser repair kit for the disservice the rest of this video is going to do, as I think I understand Capcom's thinking here. Hey, let's make Dead Rising 4 a Christmas game, some bold visionary must have said. That way, everyone will be playing it through a haze of food coma and Bailey's Irish cream and won't notice it for the pile of steaming reindeer nuggets that it is. In fairness, most of that is in comparison to previous Dead Rising games, for Dead Rising 4 seems to 
consist entirely of bits of other Dead Rising games torn off in fistfuls and strung together with Christmas lights. Recurring Dead Rising hero Frank West recurs once again, now sporting a slightly different face and voice and having apparently devoted his life to becoming a faintly desperate tribute to Bruce Campbell's career-making performance in the Evil Dead films. He's dragged into a fresh batch of zombie hell by an over-eager student seeking to expose the government conspiracy, for as has long been established, the government of the Dead Rising universe has a bit of a one-track mind and sets off zombie plagues to deal with everything from intelligence leaks to lapses in state education funding. But Frank and his protégé are falling out because Frank insists on not getting involved in the story, a policy he states firmly while he's smashing a few roomfuls of the newly undead into the skirting boards with a bit of old pipe, and he ends up alone in the latest outbreak trying to track her down, driving armoured bulldozers through crowded streets in order to not be involved as efficiently as possible. The first thing you need to know is that Dead Rising 4 doesn't have a fixed time limit or mission deadlines. You remember that thing that every Dead Rising has and what makes them interesting, and is as much a part of Dead Rising as the sense of betrayal is part of getting kicked in the balls by your beloved horse. What it does have is a linear sequence of missions that will still be waiting for you even if you sit down in the mud outside and make daisy chains for 11 hours. You remember the way every bloody sandbox game works. Dead Rising has taken the path of innovation that entails doing the shit that everyone else does, which is innovative in the same sense that the grey goo scenario is innovative. Oh wow, my legs have been harvested by a ravenous unstoppable nano swarm. This will add an intriguing new twist to the upcoming line dancing tournament. I shouldn't have to explain that the time limits were there to add a unique challenge. Yes, it could occasionally get in the way of trying on hilarious barbecue aprons and tricycling down the escalator, but isn't that cathartic fun all the more satisfying when we know we've parceled our time to allow for a quick barbecue apron session in between making progress and aren't just cocking about? I got through the entirety of Dead Rising 4 without dying once, and while I'd love to attribute that to my finally honed thumb and finger skills that are why they now know me downtown as Yahtzee Croshaw the weapon of masturbation, I think it's more to do with the fact that this game is mostly cocking about, that you get an overgenerous 500 point health bar right off the bat, and it feels like every food and healing item fills it up most of the way. And on that note, inventory is now divided into types, so you can have a healing item, a thrown item, a melee weapon, a ranged weapon, and your preferred genre of porn all at your hands at the touch of a button. Which is all very convenient, but convenient is one of the words that doesn't belong anywhere near Dead Rising, alongside restraint and permanently exclusive. If all you want is the catharsis of splattering thousands of zombies with weapon and vehicle combos copy-pasted from the last two games to a Merry Holiday soundtrack, then I suppose Dead Rising 4 offers that at least, but you could get the same experience from pouring 500 baby chicks into a meat grinder and putting on It's a Wonderful Life in the background. Now, doing nothing but comparing Dead Rising 4 to its predecessors would be a stubborn, churlish and counterproductive thing to do, so let's keep doing it. Hey, remember how the boss fights with psychos used to be elaborate and interesting with colourful characters and unique attacks? Well instead of that, now you fight generic dudes in silly outfits with slightly longer health bars. Another wonderful innovation to the format. Oh look, the Grey Goose scenario has eaten my arms now as well, what a perfect opportunity to learn how to balance things on my nose. Alright, fine, Dead Rising 4 introduces a couple of new mechanics. You can equip powered armour in order to continue doing the same zombie splattering you've been doing all along except with slightly more defence. And there are stealth mechanics now, and holy shit, I just thought of another word that doesn't belong anywhere near Dead Rising. Stealth is for characters who aren't carrying around three dynamite crossbows and a giant acid spewing hammer, thank you very much. To me, stealth mode was just a walk obnoxiously slowly button that I only ever pressed because I forgot that it wasn't the sprint. So many bugbears in Dead Rising 4, but the biggest and sweatiest one for me is that it's reduced everything to generic random encounters, where in previous games every psycho and escortable civvy was unique. Even so, perhaps it could at least have been dismissed as a cheaply knocked out Christmas special with a plot generic enough to be safely discounted from the canon, were it not for one thing. Time for a great big ending spoiler, so if you're waiting for Dead Rising 4 to inevitably stop being Xbone exclusive so you could at least ruin next Christmas with it, then this might be the point to stop viewing. Frank West dies at the end. Yes, that lovable original Dead Rising protagonist so popular they had to do a version of Dead Rising 2 with him literally patched in to replace the other dude, who was even in Marvel vs Capcom once, which was a little bit weird but nonetheless fun, this game features his canon death. Great, might as well have hit him with a bus in the end credits of the next Phoenix Wright. Still, as I said, he looks, talks and acts different in this game, so if it makes you feel any better you could pretend he's actually Frank's twatty cousin Marlon, who didn't get any of the lovable genes, but crikey does he know a lot about the Evil Dead films.
It continues to be catch-ups month, that magical time of year when the extremely sick and bloated games industry pauses between massive heaves of pukes so that we can pick through some half-digested carrots and try to figure out what's wrong with the malingering bastard this time. To that end, let's take a look at a game that first appeared last March, but took the rest of the year to gradually squeeze itself out, like a life-threatening bout of constipation. Hitman, the fifth or sixth game in the life of Mr. Hitman, Master Assassin. Cold in both the emotional and literal sense whenever he goes outside without a bobble hat. Not that you'd know this is the sixth, possibly seventh Hitman game from the title, which has gone along with the industry trend of antagonising all the world's filing systems. What, was every other Hitman game just pissing about up to now? Well, that might not be far from the intended message. The goal of Hitman 2016 seems to have been to create a modular platform for Hitman gameplay into which new levels can be inserted in my fly. Sorry, I meant on the fly. Get your hands off me. The game's six missions were sold episodically for ten bucks apiece, more or less a month apart. A rather clever way to disguise the fact that your full price game isn't very long. I use the same technique in my lovemaking. Between every thrust, I bolt from the house and book a caravanning weekend in Castle Douglas. But I feel this is an ill-advised route for AAA games. First impressions count for a lot, and my first impression of Hitman back in March was an hour of gameplay followed by getting smashed in the face by a big stop sign telling me to come back in a month. With so many other games fighting for our eyeballs over the course of the year, interest in Hitman would inevitably suffer more diminishing returns than a financially stricken branch of blockbuster video. I only recently downloaded all the subsequent episodes to play in one big block because I'm a hardcore gamer with no social life and two legs atrophy down to nubs like giant chicken nuggets, but after spending six episodes building up a mildly intriguing background conspiracy, the series explosively climaxes by waggling a hand and going, yeah, this'll probably be important in season two, now go back to sleep. But on the plus side, this is the quintessential Hitman experience. You play a grumpy man who is commonly mistaken for a packet of bird's eye frozen cod fillets right down to the supermarket barcode, travelling to a number of glamorous locales represented by huge contained sandboxes sprawling with little nooks and crannies, tools and people with remarkably loose grips on their trousers. You're given a couple of assassination targets and away you go. Maybe you'll sneak off to a quiet little rooftop and wait for the perfect opportunity to install a top-of-the-line new ventilation system in the side of their fucking head. Maybe you'll engineer some terribly clever accident involving a chandelier, a recently mopped kitchen floor and a poorly supervised circus tiger. Or maybe you'll just punt a brick at your victim's skull and leg it for the exit while hooting like Daffy Duck. It's up to you! So far, so blood money, but what Hitman 2016 introduces is a much bigger emphasis on the opportunities it's set up for you. Every now and again you'll overhear two civvies saying something like, hey, that bloke in the penthouse suite with the big target painted on his face sure loves to drink out of a water bottle with a skull and crossbones logo. Really? That would be jolly easy to swap with poison if one happened to be an assassin. Yes, it fucking would! Speak up a little, I can't hear you over our waiter being strangled by a giant packet of frozen cod fillets. And then a fucking breadcrumb trail appears on the map, guiding you first to a bottle of poison, then to a place where you can dress up in the uniform of a mysterious bottle salesman, then to the Target, and then to a convenient local restaurant for the celebratory dinner that strikes the right balance between representing the local culture without being too touristy. I'm really torn about this, because while this does make getting the fancy kills almost insultingly easy, on the other hand Hitman is the kind of game where I have to hit quick save the way the talent agent from the aristocrats joke hits the call security button on his phone, because every single mistake you make in Hitman inevitably sets off one of those cock-up cascades I've been talking about. It starts with you trying to knock out a guard without noticing he had a friend watching you in the reflection of his shiny bell end, then a bunch of guards come over so you knock all of them out, but then the civilian who was supposed to escort the ice cream man to the birthday party, or indeed any armed psychopath who happens to be dressed like one, gets freaked out by the nine unconscious guards in varying states of undress and you lose the opportunity, and the cock-ups just escalate and escalate until you give up and reload. Next time it goes great until someone unexpectedly walks in while you're pulling the unconscious ice cream man's trousers down and gets the wrong idea, and you have to go along with it, meet the ice cream man's parents, get a civil partnership, go on a magical honeymoon to the Seychelles, and all the time the game's going, there goes the no kills bonus, and the no bodies found bonus, and the never spotted bonus, and the never accidentally got stuck in a loveless marriage bonus. So getting your hand held throughout the assassination opportunities does remove a lot of that frustration, even if succeeding doesn't feel an ounce as satisfying as when you had to figure all this out for yourself. But hey, you can still get that feeling if you ignore the signposted opportunities and make up your own. Sniping's a good one, find a nice quiet vantage spot, explode the target's shoulder grapefruit, and throw the rifle away before the bodyguards burst in to investigate the shot and go, damn, must have just missed him. There's nobody here but a huge, ugly, grimacing French chambermaid smelling faintly of cordite. Mind you, sandbox is a big word, and the maps in Hitman are slaves to the contextual button prompt. The difference between a ledge you can climb on and a perfectly 
Amoebus digital data rail is information exclusive to Mr. 47's lovingly shaved noggin, so you do get funneled down specific routes a lot. The game does give you more rewards for taking the opportunities it sets up, in fact it gives you rewards for a lot of things. For killing the target with a headshot, with an accident, with drowning, for putting on all the suits, for putting on no suits, for putting on a just a right amount of suits, there's also countless alternative targets for each map and more besides from the user design missions. Clearly the game was hoping to generate enough gameplay with each map to tide us over for a month. What a lovely dream, Square Enix. I dream one day of fitting an entire Toblerone in my mouth and everyone tells me that's not very realistic either. Pretty as your maps are, I get sick to death of playing them over and over again just to fill out a checklist without story context and it wasn't even a good story, it's a dime store thriller with half the pages missing. All you're offering is scavenger hunts. And I got sick of those a long time ago when my uncle used to make me play Guess Where I Put the Fun Size Twigs. You may remember Gravity Rush being a quirky superhero sandbox type thing with Japanese characteristics, by which I mean the important characters are all squeaky teenage girls looking like they had to hurriedly dress themselves in an arts and crafts shop during a power outage, released last year on the PS4. In which case you remembered WRONG, you idiot! Duh! As every intelligent person knows, it was first released in 2012 at the PlayStation Vita, and therefore was played by slightly fewer people than it takes to push a small car out of a ditch. But now the sequel's out and with no more obligation to prop up shitty handhelds, it's free to make the most of the PS4's superior technology. So they added some trackpad gimmicks. Oh Sony, the spirit of the Renaissance lives on through thee. In Gravity Rush we play a young girl called Cat who owns a cat and has a friend called Raven who owns a raven. By the same principle I am sometimes known downtown as Mr. Debilitating Hernia. Cat, or rather Cat's cat, has the mysterious ability to shift gravity around her which she uses to defend a strange society of floating islands populated by the cast of all the films of Jean-Pierre Genet. Including Alien Resurrection, thinking about it, since black monsters keep attacking. But Gravity Rush 2 starts with Cat cut off from her home city superpower and Cat and being forced to work for a poor mining community, although these doldrums last about 10 minutes before her cat shows up again, in a manner I found slightly hilarious. Oh, if only my cat were here, exclaims Cat in a moment of stress, whereupon her cat literally walks nonchalantly into shot from the lower right. Oh, there he is! I love it, it's like something from the beginner's guide to screenwriting for audiences with no attention span. Matched only by the rest of what I shall tentatively call the plot of Gravity Rush 2, which continues the trend started in Gravity Rush 1 of writing down a whole bunch of only vaguely connected story elements and then flapping its hands while blowing a raspberry. The real challenge isn't the gameplay, it's trying to guess if the current plot arc is going to be the final actual climactic one, or if it's going to fizzle out five minutes from now to start another. First, the plot is helping to save the poor mining community out of gratitude for being enslaved by them. Then we come to a big city with a class divide problem and overthrow the corrupt government. Then after we've done that, a giant monster shows up, which we immediately defeat. Then the game goes, ah fuck it, let's just go back to the city from the first game and fight another unrelated corrupt government. And then you have to fight Sailor Moon or some bollocks. What's that? The budget's nearly run out. Oh well, let's just pick a character at random and have them turn into a giant blob of faces and tits for want of a final boss fight. Then smash cut to credits the instant it dies. There, that's a game. Sixty bucks, please. This really is story design off its ADD medication. Oh yeah, it's clearly you don't understand. Well then, make me understand, passing twat. It's called picaresque narrative. There's not supposed to be a single cohesive plotline running through it. It's a rascally protagonist undergoing various adventures to explore or satirise the world in which they live. Maybe, but they've been holding back some grand revelation about Cat's identity for two games now. You can at least explain why she keeps forgetting to wear trousers. The cat, not cat that is, I mean the cat cat, must be quite the fucking trendsetter because it feels like every character gets a turn at mysteriously disappearing from the plot so they can reappear apropos of nothing the next time a deus ex machina is needed. Villains become heroes, heroes become villains, it's like speed dating night at the Schizophrenia Award. And the thing is, I actually like Cat as a character. She's spunky and positive spirited with this lovable air of having no idea what the fuck she's doing. She still flies through the air like a limp noodle in a chicken soup machine, endearingly smashing into things. The gravity shifting controls haven't changed from the last game. I still don't understand why you have to stop and go into floaty mode before we can change fall direction. When you're in the sky with no nearby points of reference and trying to fight a fast moving flying enemy about the size of a wasp's bollock, it's actually quite easy to lose track of whether or not you're in floaty or flyy mode and press the shift 
shift button too many times. I can only imagine what the bystanders think of my performance. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it two crippled kestrels fighting over an epileptic bat? This is the major annoyance in the boss fights, but rest assured there are plenty of other annoyances sprinkled around to make a lovely smorgasbord of pain. Two features have been added that were also coincidentally added by Dead Rising 4. The first is a camera with the ability to take selfies. Why does it feel like every game I've played lately has included the ability to take selfies? I'm not saying that it automatically makes the game worse. I am, however, always unaccountably disappointed that the different poses you can get the protagonist to adopt do not include punch self in the sexual characteristics. The other thing is stealth gameplay, obviously, because when you have a girl dressed like a fitness instructor who got hurled through the window of a curtain shop, who spends most of her time flinging large objects and herself through the air and bouncing her head off lampposts and window boxes, my first thought is that such a person is entirely qualified for covert ops. It's the worst kind of stealth, too, where they just switch it on for one mission every now and again where you fail instantly the moment a guard spots you. I mean, I play anime superhero brick wall headbutting games to escape from shit like that. It's about as fun as adding a key to a keyring with one hand stuck up the arse of a dead chinchilla. Somewhat. Now about these trackpad gimmicks I mentioned, you lovingly finger the PS4 controller's electronic clitoris to switch to different gravity modes in case you feel like wrestling with a different set of dodgy controls for a while, but whenever I discovered a new gravity mode I felt more despair than interest because I knew it was time for another round of fucking tutorials. Tutorial mad this game, is like fucking teacher training college. Use your new power to kill some lads, now kill some more lads, now kill these ones in order, now kill these ones in a time limit, now kill them with a book on your head while humming the alphabet song. Alright, here's your certificate, you may now return to the plot. Gravity Rush was a game that had a certain idiosyncratic charm to it, which the sequel still has, but it was trying my patience. I think before they make another one they need to sit down and figure out where the fuck Cat's character arc is actually going, besides into the side of a bridge support at near terminal velocity. Resident Evil 6 left the franchise in a bit of a state, didn't it? Imagine a nice fluffy omelette that you mixed together from perfectly acceptable ingredients and lovingly cooked in a pan for just long enough, but then you cooked it a bit longer, then a bit longer still, then subjected it to eight seconds of concentrated machine gun fire. That sort of state. Fortunately, Capcom has an emergency policy in place in a little box on the wall marked in case of Resident Evil becoming shit again break glass, and that policy states that if at first you don't succeed, give up and do something else. It worked for Resident Evil 4 when Capcom said to itself, hey we're shit at writing story and dialogue that always comes across as laughable and slightly camp, let's just play that up and make the combat not so much like trying to teach the elderly how to dance to staying alive. Resident Evil 7 again reworks the formula from the ground up, now it's first person, much tighter in scope, emphasising the horror part of survival horror, and Capcom have finally figured out how to write a half decent story. They got someone else to do it. It's also emphasising the resident part of Resident Evil because it takes place entirely in a spooky residence. Well three or four spooky residences, but it's set in rural America where there's fuck all to do in the winter except build yourself another house. Our protagonist, Ethan Winters, drives to a scary place in the middle of nowhere because his wife who's been gone for three years sends him a message asking him to, hey wait a minute, that's just Silent Hill 2. Fortunately, RE7 swiftly differentiates itself because while James Sunderland gets drawn into a mousefully crafted atmosphere of dreadful symbolism, Ethan Winters gets a hand chainsawed off. Well, that's much more expedient. He finds himself at the mercy of a family of psychotic superpowered Republicans who want to make Ethan's bodily integrity great again by sawing more bits off of it. Whoops, bit political that, better insult the other side to retain balance. In contrast to previous Resident Evil protagonists, Ethan is a normal dude with all the fighting skill of a Democratic Party election campaign. Although having said that, he bounces back from traumatic injuries remarkably quick. Stuff gets shoved through his hand so often he should start using the hole to store his biros and business cards. RE7 has taken a lot of cues from that popular breed of claustrophobic first-person chasey chasey horror of the slender and outlast sort of area that for a while was using steam the way parasitic wasps use the bodies of caterpillars. The kind of thing that goes, no you can only run away and hide because we decided not being able to fight back is scarier and it's just coincidental that it's also massively easier to program. Resident Evil 7 looked at that and said, how about we do that, but also, weird idea, give the player a big fuck off gun. Would that still be scary? Yes, actually, especially since guns bother these regenerating rednecks about as much as maintaining cultural diversity. Resident Evil 6's giant overblown monster battles feel even sillier now that I'm ten times more unnerved from being chased around a coffee table by an angry bloke with a spade and a stripy pyjama top. This does of course raise the question of why they bothered to give us a gun if redneck de jour can keep shrugging it off, but it turns out sometimes your attacks do have a permanent effect. It's a little bit inconsistent story-wise, but the game usually gives you a signal to indicate you're supposed to stop 
stop running and start attacking. The signal is that all the doors are locked and there's a big neon sign over the roof saying boss fight. So why do you bother letting us have weapons anywhere other than in boss fights Resident Evil 7? Well, uh, there's still those crates to smash. Alright fine, we'll throw in some standard monsters for you to kill in between the redneck funtime hoedowns. Here comes some now! Woo, scary! I look at the monsters, and then at RE7, and then back at the monsters. Is this a fucking joke? They look like theme park mascots, they've got huge curvy smiles, they look like the dude in the original Japanese Godzilla costume went on a crash diet and fell in a septic tank. They slowly lurch around like they're balancing books on their heads, and every time I hit them with anything they spend about half an hour recoiling from it like they're trying to get me sent off the pitch. There's always a palpable build-up of tension every time the game goes a bit quiet for a while, because I know it's getting ready to have farmer shovel fuck burst out of the medicine cabinet or whatever, but whenever they broke the tension by throwing more shit monsters at me I'd think, phew that's a relief. The game stops being scary when it loses the Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe and becomes, well, becomes a Resident Evil game I suppose. It's not very long, since it takes place almost entirely on the set of Little House on the Prairie and everything, and while it's at its most intense when you're trying to avoid patrolling hillbillies, looking back there's only like three occasions when that happens, and they never chase you beyond a minuscule patrol route restricted to about two stretches of hallway and an outside loo. Then they pack that in altogether for the entire second half of the game and combat becomes mainly a single file parade of comedy turd monsters, and the game gets really over generous with supplies and ammunition, Christ knows why there need to be so many flame grenades around the farm, those groundhogs must be resilient little buggers. In the last hour or two the game acquires a bizarre obsession with trigger bombs. I don't know if the level designer was in unrequited love with the person who designed the trigger bomb model and trying to get their attention, but you could retile your roof with the fucking things. They make the final gauntlet of monsters even more trivial since they all lurch towards you slowly enough that you've got time to lay a trigger bomb in their path, back off to a safe distance and read another chapter of Of Mice and Men. I do recommend Resident Evil 7, I like the story and its reveals, the tighter focus, the fact that it's not Resident Evil 6, but then after Resident Evil 6 I'd have been pleasantly surprised by a dead prawn in a sock. It's no Resident Evil 4, because Resident Evil 4 was replayable, and most of RE7's main strengths are lost on a second run when you know the mystery and where the jump scares happen, and then once you get past the skinny lady who shits wasps you might as well put your feet up, because there are very few really meaty challenges after that, and what passes for a final boss is about a half ounce of powdered redneck away from being a series of quick time events. But the first impression's worth it, it may even bring back memories of that wonderful first playthrough of RE4, especially as you skip down the opening forest path dreamily not thinking about chainsaws. So the stagnating franchise has been successfully rebooted once again. I look forward to seeing how they fuck it up this time. Going from established history it'll either be from bringing back previous Resident Evil characters no one cares about, or from being incredibly racist. Properly racist I mean, not just against rural white Americans. The supermarket own brand diet cola of racism. It's official, the Yakuza series is now the long-running Yakuza series. There's quite a few of them now, and this month saw the release of its long-awaited zeroth instalment, Yakuza Zero, a prequel in which we discover how Kazuma Kiryu went from being a sharp-dressed man with a brick for a face who likes disco-stomping people into a sharp-dressed man with a brick for a face who likes disco-stomping people in a slightly different suit. We also learn how fan-favorite series regular Goro Majima went from being a sharp-dressed man with a brick for a face who likes disco-stomping people into a boggle-eyed weirdo who dresses like he woke up naked in a pet cemetery. And frankly I'm a little disappointed, because I was hoping we'd have the opportunity to learn where Kazuma Kiryu you got his ideas about what members of organised crime families do all day, because he doesn't seem to think it involves committing crimes. I mean when Kiryu sees gangsters shaking down passers-by for cash, his first instinct is to polish his shoes with their nose cartilage. Kiryu, that's what you're supposed to be doing, you giant prat! I mean what's the baseline Yakuza activity? Extorting money from local businesses, right? Well Kiryu spends a lot of time in Yakuza Zero handing out large sums of money to local businesses. Fucking hell man. On your first day did they accidentally play the induction video in reverse? I am fond of the Yakuza games, but honestly I have trouble articulating why. Which is a shame, because that's me fucking 
fucking job. Yeah, the combat makes you want to squirt with glee every time a very serious-faced man in an expensive suit violently suplexes another serious-faced man in an expensive suit into a mailbox, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a game model packed with more superfluous bullshit. In between the harrowing plot about deception, betrayal, murder and conspiracy, we are invited to potter about playing with fucking skill tester machines and trying to eat every meal at every restaurant, which is classic 100% completion bullshit because there's no gameplay or extra content involved. Whatever you order, all you get is a two-second cutscene of our man hunched over his dinner, with his back to camera so he could be dining on the contents of his nasal cavity for all we know. It's certainly unique, and I get a flutter of nostalgia every time I hit the familiar streets of Camarocho again, but by Christ do these games bang on. 90% of the bloody plot is cutscenes of intense understated conversation, and there's about 12 different varieties of it. Sometimes it's text only, sometimes it's voiced but you can still skip the lines, sometimes you can't skip the lines and all the characters talk with their mouths closed for some reason, and every now and again they do it in a fully animated cutscene so you can really appreciate the sheer nanoseconds of work that must have gone into animating Kazuma Kiryu's facial expressions. But at the end of the day, I always come away satisfied from a Yakuza game once I push through to the end, probably because they backload all the dramatic car chases and inevitable shirtless punch-ups in the second half, and it's the incredibly slow-paced build-up in the first half that tries my patience. Maybe it's the Elite Dangerous principle, the occasional disco-stomping spaceship battle is all the more enjoyable when they're spaced out by huge expanses of the black cavernous void of pachinko parlors and people making very serious faces at each other. Still, I'd be the first to admit that the games do get kinda samey, even beyond the fact that they all take place in the same four or five blocks of downtown Tokyo. They usually start with a murder, of which odds are good someone we like will get falsely accused. We proceed to pick apart the threads of a scheme to take over the Yakuza, so convoluted that the Riddler would suggest toning it down a bit, and there'll be a female character we have to protect because they've been victimised by the bad guys to a point that borders on fetishistic. In Yakuza Zero's case, Kiryu is accused of murdering someone he merely disco-stomped six or seven times, which he couldn't possibly have died from, because this is Yakuza, where everyone's faces are carved from antique wooden furniture, so he's forced to leave the Yakuza and become an estate agent. The kind of estate agent that dresses up in a disco suit and resolves tenancy disputes by stomping groups of four or five serious-faced men. Meanwhile, Majima is being punished for past fuck-ups by being given a glamorous high-end nightclub to manage. Fuck, better toe the line, Majima, mate. Next time they might punish you with a key to the executive toilet, until he's ordered to kill someone and ends up trying to protect them, since he's also a bit unclear on this whole organised crime thing. And so begins another contrived dance of twists, wrong turns and growly discussions broken up every five minutes by four or five angry, overconfident men getting decanted into the room from the inexhaustible supply for the sake of token combat. On which note, what's new is that both playable characters can switch between three different combat styles on the fly, one fast, one strong, one pansy-ass in between the middle ground for all you ineffectual saps out there. But Yakuza combat has never been particularly sophisticated and I got through the whole game pretty much only using strong style combat just to prove I could. Majima's combat in particular was a cakewalk because his strong style gets a permanent fuck off baseball bat, and a nunchuck twirl combo that I used to spam my way through every boss fight because all the motherfuckers could do was stand there violently nodding their heads, like my baseball bat was confirming all their extreme political views. I only ever died in combat in the last few random fights when the motherfuckers have guns, which are really hard to dodge and make you roll around on the floor like a cat with a piece of duct tape on its back. The other new mechanics are weirdly financially focused, but then it is set in the 80s and I was surprised that at no point do we use the cell phones of the time as bludgeoning weapons. Kiryu has to run his real estate enterprise by buying up local businesses, another in a long list of 100% completion collectible side quests made slightly more obnoxious because there's no way of knowing which businesses you can buy until you run up and press your face against the window, and if there's one or two left you haven't bought, the game has no way to tell you where the fucking things are, so I have to run up and down the street leaving a greasy smear all along the frontage. Meanwhile, Majima has to run a cabaret club with one of those restaurant management casual games that your mum likes almost as much as living next door to the dockyard. Which isn't the kind of thing I want to do in a disco stomping crime thriller, but you know what, you could say that about the vast majority of the content of a Yakuza game, and they just wouldn't be the same without it. So my final word is, it's another Yakuza game, long-winded and weirdly hilarious in a way that only a scowling hardened gangster attempting a neon-coloured dancing minigame can be. Long periods of dull if weirdly comforting mundanity broken up by occasional reminders of why we're putting up with it, like a water slide connecting two floors of a DMV office. Neo is dark, stylish, a little too fast to keep up with at times, blandly attractive and was memorably portrayed by Keanu Reeves in the three Matrix films, but enough about that, let's talk about a video game. Neo. 
spelt like someone got startled just as they were explaining what gas constitutes the majority of Earth's atmosphere, is a new Dark Souls clone from Team Ninja. And sadly we still haven't come up with anything better than Dark Souls clone for the genre name. I've heard people trying to get Soulsy going, but that sounds more like what you'd call soul music after it's been piped into an elevator. Neo is good news for all the weeaboos in the room who were furious that Dark Souls was set in Western-inspired fantasy despite being a Japanese game and wanted to be slitting up samurai demons on a fucking pagoda all day. As I said, it's by Team Ninja and it's published by Koei Tecmo, so you should know what to expect. Lots of ninjas, lots of traditional Japanese architecture, and all the women show off more thigh than a Kentucky Fried Chicken advert, and all have tits like two tanukis fighting in a bin liner. Our main character is William, an Irish sailor with the mysterious ability to see demons and guardian spirits because he is Irish and therefore constantly drunk. After his own guardian spirit is stolen from him by a bloke who looks like Emperor Palpatine on spring break, William pursues him to Japan at the onset of the historical Edo period, accidentally becomes a samurai embroiled in the conflicts of the time, and goes down in history as the first ever weeaboo, which is roughly how the locals pronounce his name. A lot of the characters are based on real-life figures. William Adams was a British sailor who ended up living in Japan and advising Tokugawa Ieyasu. The game takes two major liberties. William Adams wasn't Irish. This is the saboteur thing again, where we make the English person Irish because the Irish are the more marketable, non-empirical bastard alternative. And secondly, as far as we know, William Adams never fought a giant electrified cat. Some knowledge of actual history might be useful, because after we got to Japan I swiftly lost track of what the fuck was going on. Some names will be thrown at me in a narration over still images, there'd be a cutscene of William looking confused in yet another house of some important Japanese bloke, and then we get dumped on a forest path to kill a round of gits. Which brings us to the combat. It's faster paced than Dark Souls combat, but not quite as rushed as Bloodborne combat, which was like dusting off a nervous cheater. It's at times quick and at times cautious, but generally kinda stylish, almost like it's a cross between Dark Souls and Ninja Gaiden, funnily enough. But if you thought Dark Souls combat was a bit complex with all that stat-boosting, double-handing and Titanite business, Titanite being upgrade material and not something you say to compliment your wife's vagina this evening, then I've got bad news for you! Picking what weapon you want to swing about of the billions that your enemies disgorged like last night was free tacker night at the weapon restaurant is just the start of your problems, medio. Do you need to be fighting in low, mid or high stance? Is the living weapon meter full? Are we using the Kai pulse in the morning and evening and after every meal like a good boy? To what button combos did we assign the kick, the parry, the sheath strike and the gentle finger up the bum hole? Does the toughness rating of our string vest matter as much as the defence multiplier? Do we need to be forging our weapon? Probably not, since the enemy will probably vomit up nine better ones in the next mission. But what about Ninjutsu? What about Onmyo? Wasn't he one of the Wombles? It's a little daunting, but if Dark Souls combat is like learning to ride a motorbike, then Neo is like piloting a huge yacht. There are probably lots of little things you could learn to do to smooth out the ride, but at the end of the day all you really need is push stick to go forwards, which isn't that difficult as long as there are no solid objects between you and anywhere else in the universe. I got by sticking to sword and spear and mainly mid-style except when trying to get things down from high shelves. In the end, the combat's good in the same way Pornhub is good. It's highly varied and versatile, so there's bound to be something that appeals to your depraved tastes. But if you try to make use of all of it at once, you'll swiftly go blind. And speaking of inevitabilities, let's compare Neo to Dark Souls some more. The gameplay structure is the same, each time you die you come back to the last bonfire, I mean shrine, and the enemies respawn, you collect souls, I mean Enraku, to level up, and the one enemy that's a wheel can absolutely go fuck itself. But the rather glaring difference is that Neo is mission-based rather than the Dark Souls-style single cohesive world, and between missions you go to a map screen. So Neo is to Dark Souls what Castlevania Order of Ecclesia is to Castlevania Symphony of the Night, right down to a higher density of tasty thighs. Hence Neo goes for a much more fixed structure. The plot missions must be done in order, each one ends in a boss fight and has a fixed number of hidden collectibles for you to find, consisting of green jelly babies in funny hats who bestow special bonuses, there's one that increases the rate that enemies drop healing potions, and the rest can all piss off. One increases the weapon drop rate for fuck's sake, why the hell would I need that? I'm already using 90% of the weapons I find for arts and crafts projects. As for the boss fights, they're exactly the sort of thing I want in a salty game. I walk in the door the first time and I'm almost immediately smeared across the back wall like breakfast marmalade. Then I throw myself at it again and again, getting more and more cross because the hitboxes are as ever fucked, and a boss with a pointy spear can somehow use it to simultaneously stab an area the size of a shipping container. But just as I'm about to rage quit and start making whiny defensive posts on the internet, I figure out the patterns and finally succeed, getting that lovely self-satisfied high that is after all the reason I seek out hard 
games and go to bed that night clutching my todger with renewed vigour. It wasn't the difficult boss fights that caused me to start losing patience with Neo, it was everything leading up to them. The story's too oblique to be involving and the level design's kinda shit. Dark Souls has you exploring the rafters of cathedrals and you can fall to your death through the exposed cleavage of a giant statue of Linda Carter, and meanwhile I was most of the way through Neo and thinking to myself, ooh, can't wait to see where the next mission's set, will it be a Japanese village, a forest, a cave, or a Japanese village in a forest with a cave? These are sarcastic thoughts. Look, I know that just because Neo's combat and gameplay invite comparison to Dark Souls doesn't mean it needs to do every single thing that Dark Souls does. If it wants to focus on the combat mechanics rather than resurrecting the corpse of Sir Christopher Wren to head up the map design, then fine. But I like exploring as well as fighting, and a bit of scenery can really enhance smacking things about. That's why I put pot plants in my grandma's bedroom. Things far too often got too corridory and samey mazy for my taste. I'm pretty sure the frozen village level in Neo could be faithfully recreated in the Wolfenstein 3D engine, or in a patch of mud by a toddler with a spoon. Ah, the time-honoured playground game of who would win in a fight between. So many youthful friendships abandoned to hair-pulling dirt wrestles over whether or not the Enterprise D could take the Death Star in a straight fight, and then those same kids grow up nursing resentments, become video game developers and create things like Mortal Kombat vs DC Universe, in which we learn that yes, Sub-Zero could beat up Superman if they're in an incredibly contrived situation that makes things remotely fair, and if Superman is being controlled by your mum. Or they create those pseudoscience TV shows like Deadliest Warrior, in which we learn that yes, obviously a ninja would win against a pirate because a ninja is a trained assassin and a pirate is a drunk sailor with an at best slightly intimidating beard. And it's the spirit of Deadliest Warrior that brings us Ubisoft's latest multiplayer-focused Skinner box, Foreigner. So called because it's about how people of different races and creeds will never ever get along under any circumstances. Specifically, it concerns a permanent three-way conflict between medieval knights, medieval vikings, and, uh, Japanese samurai. Which from a geographical perspective is kinda like King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans showing up to join in the Falklands conflict. Whatever, it's a fantasy. Three communities of knights, vikings, and samurai all live within five minutes drive of each other, and they smack the shit out of their neighbours all day because it's easier than learning the Norwegian for stop kicking your ball over my fence. The story campaign reveals that this state of affairs was engineered by some weird messianic lady with a slightly Darwinian vision for a world composed only of great warriors, like Warhammer 40k but without the irony, inviting the same argument that you can't have a world that's only war because at the end of the day you'll still need someone to cook dinner and resharpen all the pointy sticks. The story campaign is about as much as one could expect from something hacked together by Ubisoft's D-team to support a chunky melee combat engine masquerading as a complete multiplayer experience. You go through three chapters of six missions apiece in which the knights invade the vikings, the vikings invade the samurai, and then the samurai invade the knights. Everyone stays really cross at each other and nothing of value or meaningful impact happens. In each chapter you play as the current community's winner of the most generic dude contest, respectively Mr. Warden, Mr. Raider, and Orochi-san, and each mission is a handful of generic sword fights with bots connected by story moments that play like scenes from a Klingon soap opera directed by a narcoleptic mole. Why do we fight? Long pause, awkward stare. We fight because we are warriors! Characters shuffle around a bit like they didn't entirely memorise their cues. Valhalla! Characters standing either side of us eventually figure out they're supposed to be joining in. The campaign also provides the opportunity to find some hidden collectibles, because a Ubisoft game without meaningless collectathons would be like Catholic sex education without the guilt. So frankly they should have swapped out the single player experience for a packet of cream eggs I could eat while watching Sex in the City in my pants as I stew in loneliness. Fuck it though, if you want a single player sword and sterilization sim then you already know what I'd recommend. It starts with a D and rhymes with lark bowls. For cosmetics is a multiplayer game, bitch. I know, because before I did anything else I had to pick which of the three factions I belonged to. Seemed a bit forward to ask me to pick before I'd gotten to know any of them or how they played, but I needn't have worried. Which faction is the best? The shouty overdramatic cunts with the slow but strong one, the fast but weak one, inevitably the lady, and the in-betweeny one, or the other two groups of shouty overdramatic cunts with the etc etc. Oh, but there are subtle differences in what special moves the individual characters can pull off, like there's that one samurai with the pokey poison spear, whose special move is to go fuck themselves. But it still doesn't actually matter which faction you pledge allegiance to because you can play as any character you want. You can join the knights and be the pokey poison spear samurai and fuck yourself all night long if you want, which does rather raise the question of why we have to pick a faction at all. And it turns out it is for no reason, except to artificially segregate us as part of Ubisoft's masterful scheme to spread the seeds of conflict and disunity so that we stop getting 
getting together to complain about their sandbox games all being shit now. But let me talk about the actual combat, since that's what it all boils down to. You've got your standard light attack and heavy attack for mopping up the groundlings, but the moment you target someone serious, it switches rather neatly into a one-on-one -on -one fighter. Use the right analog stick to point your sword to the left, to the right, or overhead. You'll attack from that angle and block any attacks coming in from that angle. So you can wobble back and forth, eyeing each other, trying to decide when to strike or to faint until one of you gets bored and uses the kick button for a free hit. And if you're not sure what angle your enemy is at from, say, the look of the massive great sword they're holding, which you can't look away from because the camera's locked, then the interface helpfully displays big fucking arrows across the screen like you're playing Dance Dance Revolution. I hate when an interface fucks with the immersion like that unnecessarily, and while there is the option to turn it off, you know there are a lot of other players who haven't, and I'm worried if they had an advantage they might get the false impression that they're better than me and not jammy cheating scrubs. But all in all, it's a nice 1v1 dueling engine. Just a shame nobody fucking plays the 1v1 dueling mode because they're all in the 4v4 utterly bog-standard territory control mode. See, the essence of an honourable battlefield duel is lost when at any moment your opponent's mate might run in on your flank and shove a spear down your ear. So the 4v4 matches become less about dueling skill and more about who can run off and fetch their big brother first. The trouble with 4U play achievements is that it's one interesting core gameplay mechanic surrounded in padding, micromanaging equipment and cosmetics and passive buffs and ooh if you're very good maybe you could add 0.001% to your faction's chances of securing an imaginary territory before it arbitrarily resets next week. That's just drab number crunching in a drab setting, there's no personality to 4 boners. The character roster is 12 variants on a theme of armoured person who goes rawr a lot. There's no self-awareness of the let's face it inherently juvenile premise. And anyway, who would win in a fight is for two-way scenarios, and a three-way conflict is better resolved with shag marry kill. Personally, I'd shag the Vikings, because it wouldn't take so long to get started. You'd spend half the evening working on a night with a can opener and that's just to figure out what gender they are. My new book, Will Save the Galaxy for Food, is out now! It's a sci-fi comedy with all the usual sci-fi comedy themes, redundancy, hopelessness and existential dread. Available in ebook, paperback and audiobook from all good retailers and some dodgy ones. I'm willing to bet it crossed Nintendo's mind more than once to call its new console the Switch. But thankfully cooler heads prevailed and for once we have a Nintendo console whose name actually means something. An appropriate meaning as well for a Switch is another name for a beating stick with which one might conceivably flog a dead horse. Oh and it also lets you switch between living room console and handheld, a service just as unasked for as it was when the Wii U tried it. But while the Wii U could switch from living room to handheld only if the handheld remained inside the living room, you can carry the Switch to the upper slopes of Kilimanjaro and still have a bit of a game, although you better hope there's some free power outlets up there. I guess Nintendo is still employing a fleet of obsolete construction robots as QA testers because the controls still favour geometric shapes over anything designed with human hands in mind, and using the thing in handheld mode with my massive masculine mitts was as comfortable as wanking off a VCR. But hey, that's the point of the whole Switch aspect. You play it the way that's comfortable for you and let all the other ways stick a U-bend on their todgers and piss up their own assholes. I feel Nintendo are vastly overestimating its average user's tendency to leave the house, but if you are forced to do so because of a family picnic or because most of the couch is on fire, you can snap the controllers off like a big electronic Kit Kat, prop the screen up on a flat surface and continue gaming as God intended, until the battery runs low, at which point we discover that some world-class intellect put the power input on the underside of the screen. So you can't plug the cable in while it's propped up on a table. You're either going to have to interact with nearby family members or rescue workers to pass the time, or carry around a large cordless drill. You've got two options once you detach the controllers, you can either continue waving the two ends around like a complete pillock with two garage door remotes, or you can give yourself a well-deserved slap, insert them into the special housing that turns them into a standard controller, and come and join us in the fucking real world. I say standard controller, but only if the definition of standard now includes having a wireless connection that's more like a casual pen-friend relationship. If there was anything between the controller and the console, such as part of my leg or an affectionate dog, then I'd get all kinds of sync issues. The game wouldn't realise I'd stopped pushing forwards and Link would walk straight off the tower to his death, which might as well transition us to the fact that there's a new Zelda game with towers in it. Because this one's trying to be more of a sandbox and I guess Ubisoft must have taken Nintendo aside and given some advice. Trust me, I can never have enough towers, my games are full of them. I love towers, my dog is named Tower. I grind up towers and snort them, sometimes at night I take a little model of a tower and shove it. Well anyway, Breath of the Wild is a new Zelda most closely comparable to Zelda Twilight Princess, in that it too is being 
released for both a new and an old console, and is most definitely a more advisable purchase for the old, because the old has other games, not to mention a degree of backwards compatibility and isn't going to charge you a subscription to play the same old Nintendo tat you've been repeatedly buying and rebuying for the last 40 fucking years. But I digress, Link shows up in Hyrule and finds himself tasked to rescue the usual princess by getting the usual sword and slitting up the usual bastard. And in other news, the sky continues to be blue and the Trump administration fucked something up. What is interesting is that Breath of the Wild takes a decisively hands-off approach to structure. The traditional Zelda linear acquisition of useful stocking fillers that gradually open up the map is nowhere to be seen. In fact, if you want, you can jog straight from the tutorial area to the final boss fight and take him on. You'll get fucking mulched, you'll need to be conveyed back to the save point between two slices of bread, but it's nice to see Nintendo finally acknowledge the many obsessive psychopaths in their core fanbase. Hey, bet you can't speedrun this game, you insane beautiful bastards, says Nintendo with a sly wink, knowing full well the speedrun will be online inside a day, and by week two they'll be posting blindfolded speedruns on Guitar Hero controllers using only their knobs. Everything else in the game is there to make the final fight easier, building up hearts and stamina, assembling weapons that don't break if you stare at them for too long, and the main point of doing the four dungeons is to enlist someone from each of the four major races of Hyrule to come and hold Ganon down while you get in a few free kicks to the ghoulies before the fight starts proper. I like it because it's organic game design. I like that you spot landmarks from towers by looking at them with your magic smartphone telescope and marking them off manually, because you know at that point in a Ubisoft game the map would just spooge a bunch of icons like a highly aroused clown with confetti up his dick. I like how the only proviso for getting the Master Sword is having enough hearts to tank the massive life-threatening hernia Link gets from trying to pull it out, because it's as good a measure of worth as any. And you know another Zelda game would make us solve puzzles stolen from the back of a cereal box for 30 minutes? Which is not to say Breath of the Wild isn't above making us prove our worth every alternate fucking step. The main source of hearts and stamina upgrades are the 500 quintillion micro-dungeons that all have the exact same decor. Endless glowing cyan is like being stuck in Isaac Clarke's wardrobe during a rave. Making the final boss easier isn't really your only motive, we also explore for exploration's sake, and the game world's size and repetitive scenery makes it a bit dull to get around. Then again, I'm always talking up Wind Waker, Wind 70% featureless ocean and 30% conversations with fish Waker. Then again again, Wind Waker had character. In Breath of the Wild, Ganon, or rather Calamity Ganon, which is his new title and not the name of a Nintendo-themed musical western, isn't a character at all, he's a generic evil force whose job is to sit around inside a giant pulsating bollock and wait to be killed. Character may be what we sacrifice with the hands-off approach, although the exception is Princess Zelda, I liked what they did with her, an insecure nerd in so far over her head that she's giving the blue balls to deep-sea anglerfish. I've got some control problems, even beyond the controllers having more sinking issues than the fucking Titanic. The stealth element is a complete waste of space, and since weapons degrade like the atmosphere at a party after the cops show up, it'd be nice if the weapon selector didn't suck on old tea towels. But on the whole, Legend of Zelda Death of a Salesman is, while a bit emotionally cold, a broadly absorbing open world that offers something for every flavour of lunatic Nintendo fanboy. Old school nutters will like the traditionalist feel, 100% nutters will like taking photos of every monster, animal and air molecule, and as I said, the speedrun nutters will love it as soon as they figure out how to control it with a Fisher-Price piano and an egg whisk. My new book, Will Save the Galaxy for Food, is out now! It's a sci-fi comedy with all the usual sci-fi comedy themes, redundancy, hopelessness and existential dread. Available in ebook, paperback and audiobook from all good retailers and some dodgy ones. First let me say it's a bit unfortunate that I'm doing Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn right after Legend of Zelda Death on the Nile. To go from one epic open-ended wilderness where deserts and snowy mountains can be close enough together to be in the same school catchment area to another, that's just asking to come down with a bit of the old majestic landscape fatigue syndrome. Or MILFs. Yeah, it sounds nice to have a villa with big windows overlooking the French Pyrenees, but after a few weeks you start getting bored of it and increasingly paranoid of snipers. So I want to make it clear to Sony before we begin that it's not you, it's me. It's not your fault I've played so many sandbox games that I expect a section of map to become visible every time I get a stiffy. I'm just sick of traipsing through miles of lovingly rendered vegetation that I can't fast travel through because I need to forage stuff on the way and I don't want to show up to the next boss fight vastly understocked with healing herbs, crisp packets and dog shit. Also, I'm probably still the only person who cares about things like this, but the title of your game is complete rubbish. As much as it would fetch a pretty good score in Scrabble. Horizon Zozy Dozy is the game you're probably more familiar with as that thing with robot dinosaurs 
dinosaurs and the archer girl from that one Disney film. In a post-post-post-apocalyptic future, really weirdly ethnically diverse tribes of future humanity live a subsistence lifestyle in the overgrown ruins of their forebears and all knowledge of their history has become shrouded in myth. There are also robot dinosaurs for some reason. Although all of this does get eventually explained by the main plot, including the weirdly ethnically diverse thing. There was definitely a lot of thought put into the story of this one, which is gratifying. I do slightly get the sense that the explanation for robot dinosaurs was rather blatantly working backwards from let's have robot dinosaurs because they kick ass, but I'm not complaining. Our protagonist is the slightly misspelled Aloy, which I rank just below Jules from Recor in the on-the-nose protagonist naming event. One wonders what these writers would call the strong female protagonist of a game set in a sewage treatment plant. Pissabeth? Ellen Shitley? Well anyway. Speaking of weird smells, Aloy is an outcast from her tribe due to the circumstances of her birth, and can only learn those circumstances by proving herself a hunter. But this is only the beginning as Aloy finds herself setting out into the wider world to unravel the mystery of her existence and discover the true story of what happened to the planet. See, what they're doing here is starting with a narrow focus on Aloy and her personal issues so that the scope can naturally broaden out over time to encompass the fate of the whole world in a manner that reflects how our personal scope of the game world gradually broadens as we explore it and uncover more of the map. A bit of ludonarrative synchronicity that will be appreciated by anyone who can determine what the fuck I'm on about. Putting aside the robot dinosaurs for now, difficult as that would be without industrial lifting equipment, I'll grant you, Horizontal Morning doesn't have very many original ideas in its head, but it admirably takes time out to justify the tropes it falls back on, like how it's subtly established that Aloy growing up as a shunned outcast is why she does the usual solo protagonist thing of constantly mumbling exposition to herself like the homeless nutter she technically is. I hope you haven't put that industrial lifting equipment away because we're bringing the robot dinosaurs back in, it being the unique selling point and all. It's the Far Cry 3 and 4 arrangement where animals roam the land to act as little walking loot dispensers and occasionally sneak up and headbutt your tits off while you're trying to do something else. Obviously the number of flimsy wooden arrows it takes to pull a chrome exoskeleton apart would jeopardise the rainforest all over again. So you have to use detective vision, I mean focus vision, I mean that thing where everything of importance glows like the warning lights in your head when the in-laws bring up politics at Thanksgiving dinner to determine the weak points and what weapons to use on them. So you can find a good position and make pinpoint strategic attacks, Monster Hunter style. And it is fun, once you've taken down a robot alligator or one of those things that look like giant roast chickens with their bums in the air with strategic hits to the sensitive regions, it's easy to get overly impressed with yourself and march with undeserved confidence into the range of those cunting flying motherfuckers and swiftly discover what it's like to be in a duck bond during a gale when you're a piece of bread. But hunting robots is just one aspect of the game and that brings me to another thing I'm sick of about these constant sandboxes and that's having 500 different gameplay mechanics and the usual ooh take the approach you want to take attitude that usually means none of the individual mechanics could carry a game by themselves and we're hoping that stringing together enough C pluses will somehow add up to an A. Let's start with the long range combat, the hit detection is for shit, unless some of these bandits have learned a mystical technique for making their heads non-corporeal for brief moments and the game has introduced every available long-range weapon by the time you hit the second village, so there's less evolution going on than in a rural school curriculum. Same applies to melee combat, you start and end the game with one slow and annoying attack that seems to arbitrarily miss half the time, and one really slow and annoying attack that definitely arbitrarily misses half the time. The climbing is restricted to rigidly determined climbing paths, and all other terrain can only be navigated by making furious two-footed jumps at it like you're throwing a tantrum over how perfectly climbable this ledge appears to be. And then there's the inevitable stealth. How that works is you're visible when standing and invisible when crouching in a specific kind of grass. I'm all for keeping the rules simple after all, most of Sony's audiences, but it does mean that we can be up to our neck in plant matter and the enemy still spots us because it's not the special designated stealth grass. I suppose it's because the stealth grass is red and Aloy is a ginge. She needs the one specific camouflage that matches her pubes. I should stress that none of this is a deal breaker, but it's also not helping me muster the same enthusiasm most of my peers seem to have for erection nice breakfast. The story aspect's alright, although it never answers the question of how someone who grew up shitting in creeks and sleeping in slit up robot horse carcasses every night can be so well adjusted and perhaps more to the point clean. And the robot hunting is a highlight, but it's all held back by the baggage that AAA open world games now seem to find impossible to shake off. But as I said, maybe it's just me. I'm about to play something other than a wilderness sandbox now, so if you're expecting me to do Ghost Recon Wildlands next week, then feel free to go suck the spiders out of Tom Clancy's dead grey cock. 
near, so-called, because it's very nearly spelled correctly, was a very neared, I mean weird action RPG thing where depending on your location the main character was either a shirtless middle-aged man or a skinny twink generally better disposed to shirts but couldn't quite figure out the whole sleeve aspect. I reviewed it way back in 2010 and it left quite an impression. There aren't many games that dramatise the moment wherein Richie Rich transforms into Casper the Friendly Ghost, so I was gratified to see the property franchising with this new sequel, Near Automata, which the casual eye would indicate to be largely bugger all to do with the original, but after reviewing Near the first I have since learned that it too was a sequel to Drakengard, and I think I could be forgiven for not realising that, it might as well have declared itself a sequel to Mrs Doubtfire for all that it mattered. You might want to be careful being so laissez-faire with the definition of sequel, next thing you know everything will be declared a sequel to everything else, and they'll be selling Moby Dick in box sets with confessions of a window cleaner. Maybe we're all just sequels in this great disappointingly long-running franchise we call life, but the practical upshot is that you can play near Automata without having played near Shirtometa, although you might need a few extra nanoseconds to predict the eventual plot twists. The first near pulled the old Planet of the Apes gambit where the fantasy world turns out to be the post-apocalyptic sci-fi future, and now near Automata is set even further into the future when things have come back around to being sci-fi again. The main characters are human-like androids fighting a seemingly endless war to retake the ruined Earth from an army of primitive but highly numerous machines that all seem to be modelled on women's sanitary products. The androids are doing this on behalf of humanity, whom we never see, but we're assured they're all living on a secret colony on the moon that we can't go to and from which we only hear general announcements that all sound suspiciously pre-recorded. Doesn't quite take Alfred Hitchcock to see where that's going, does it? But ere you smite me with downvotes for the looseness of my spoiler-riddled tongue, the game's not actually about that. What it's about is the purpose of being and what it is that separates a machine from a human anyway. The story begins when some of the machines start to display human-like behaviour and emotions, in contrast to the androids who are instructed to remain emotionless despite having been programmed with emotions possibly as a prank. Remember last week I was saying that naming the main character of your robot game Aloy was a bit on the nose? Well there must be something nose-related going around at the moment because the main character of this game about existentialism is 2B. 2B as in or not 2B, you see, it's not just a kind of pencil. 2B is one of several mostly identical female android warriors, or gynoid warriors, thank you pedantry corner, who fight the machines with katanas and robot suits and dress up in French maid outfits. Thank Christ for that, I might have forgotten this was a Japanese game for two seconds and stopped loading my mouth with Pocky. 2B is assisted by a hacker named 9S, hacker in the video game sense of basically also a warrior but with a 70% increase in minigame density. I don't think 9S has a hidden meaning, unless the 9 is supposed to be his approximate physical age, but Wikipedia does tell me that 9 is an exponential factorial and 9S certainly wants to exponentially factorise 2B, wink wink. The gameplay of Nier on Tomatoes is what we academically call an odd duck the kind of duck that spends half the day hanging out in the lion enclosure demanding to be called Simba. Remember how the first game, okay fine, previous game, took influence from bullet hell shooters by making every projectile attack waves of giant slow moving testicles like you were trapped in the nightmare of a professional zoo animal castrator? Well that's still there, but now you've got a gun, not dissimilar to a bullet hell shooter's gun, that you can use to supplement your traditional platinum games fast paced dodge focused melee combat against enemies with health bars longer than the emotional distance between you and eligible members of the opposite sex. There's also a hacking minigame in which the whole pretense is dropped and you play a bullet hell shooter for two seconds. It's like there was an argument over whether Nier should be an action RPG or a bullet hell shooter and the action RPG guy won, but the bullet hell shooter guy decided to bide his time and play the long game, so Nier 3 will finally be entirely bullet hell and the action RPG guy's corpse will be found in the parking lot with 900 million gunshot wounds. But the combat stopped mattering some ways in because there's an upgrade system not a million miles from the Paper Mario badge system where you can swap upgrade chips in and out of a limited number of slots, so I plugged in a bunch of self-healing abilities and never died again, breaking the combat like the heart of a little dog when they discover you weren't holding a treat after all. Then it 
was just a matter of getting to the end, which was a more complicated business than it sounds because near Arigato Mr. Roboto has funny ideas of what the word ending means. The first ending comes when you get to the end of 2B's story, at which point the game none too subtly suggests starting a new game, and we find ourselves playing the same story but as 9S, who was tagging along with 2B for most of it, so the differences are limited. But only after that, and the second round of credits, do we restart the game a third time, and oh what do you know, this is where they're hiding the second half of the plot, where the important climactic stuff happens. I'm not sure what the point of all this was, maybe they were trying to make the most of the small and dreary open world full of repetitive combat and dull side quests, but that's like trying to make the most of a bowl of stale porridge by eating it with a pitchfork. The funny thing is, by the end of Near Far Wherever You Are, I was quite into it and thought I was going to recommend it, but now I've sat down to write it all up, I'm like, wait a second, if the combat was kinda lame and the open world was shitty and the main characters were underdeveloped in their every sense of the word, then what the hell did I like? On reflection, Near Am I God To Thee was a lot less cleverer than it thought it was. Despite its lofty philosophical ambitions, the plot wasn't making any kind of actual point, it just dumped a load of existential thematic elements on the garage floor and buggered off to let us sweep them up. Oh look, the main characters look like they're wearing blindfolds, but take them off during moments of revelation. There's some complex fucking symbolism for you. The second half had some pretty good gut punch story twists that managed to make some emotion spark off my flinty heart, but it could be because I've been stuck revisiting the same locations with these characters for so long that I'd gotten invested largely through Stockholm Syndrome. It is a very weird game, on every level of story and gameplay design, and that might be enough. Weirdness is refreshing. In the general blandness of life, weirdness alone is worth preserving. That's why we drew the line at nuking Japan more than twice. Well, as I said from the stretcher after I came runner-up in the all-county lard-eating contest, no one can say I didn't try. And that's not the only way in which Ghost Recon Wildlands paralleled an afternoon trying to hold down a stomach full of disgusting, highly processed fat. I knew it was yet another Ubisoft sandbox game and therefore another round of blandly visiting icons on maps like an overworked Uber driver, but I didn't expect it to be THE Ubisoft sandbox game, the ultimate archetype at long last. Come on, Yahtzee, be nice, every game deserves a fair chance, even the obvious dog shit. Ghost Recon Wildlands is a sandbox shooter reminiscent of oh blimey, that rabbit hole never ends. It might be quicker to list the game's Gostracon Wildlands isn't reminiscent of. Well, it's not in the least bit like Jet Set Willy, because at no point do you have to travel down a toilet, except in, you know, the metaphorical sense. The first comparison that comes to mind is The Division, as both are flying the Tom Clancy flag, and between the two we now have quite an insight into Tom Clancy's view of the world, or rather the view of the world of whatever creative director is currently holding up Tom Clancy's disinterred head on a stick. The message is, have another cheeseburger complacent subjects, for the government has secretly inserted packs of trained killers into all the world's populations, and the moment our way of life is kinda sorta indirectly threatened, they're ready to step up and start shooting the disenfranchised. Meanwhile, in the real world, the government can barely manage secretly inserting the president's knob into an intern, but I digress. A powerful drug cartel takes over a region of Bolivia, so the CIA do the usual CIA thing, send in covert specialists with maximum deniability, overthrow government, entrust power to America-friendly faction, then withdraw presence while crossing little fingers and praying to God that for once the infrastructure won't immediately collapse. Our main goal is to take down a dense checklist of leaders and underbosses by completing a fucking endless wall of repetitive missions which we can of course approach in whatever way we choose, providing we choose either stealth or a direct assault. Except the direct assault may cause high-value targets to leg it, so the actual choice is stealth or extra stealth with bells on. Very quiet bells, obviously. So there's a big chunk of Far Cry 3 in here, with the wild landscape scouting bases and marking targets. The drone you can use for such purposes evokes watchdogs too. There's a heavy note of just cause in here, with the whole CIA insurgency plot, and the process of liberating the regions by taking out the local leaders adds games like Mafia 3 and Crackdown to the hypothetical soggy biscuit game from which Wildlands was born. What Gostrakon Wildlands does not have is any of the things that made any of those games fun or interesting. It doesn't have Far Cry 3's tigers, they're probably all sitting 
sitting around coked up in a wood somewhere. No interesting hacking gameplay, superpowers, plot, personality, or rocking 60s soundtrack. It also doesn't have much in the way of tactical shooting, despite ostensibly being a Ghost Recon game. The extent of the squad tactics gameplay is this. You can mark up to three enemy targets, then press the magic button that makes your squad instantly kill them with no risk to you or themselves. That is not tactics. That is only tactics if using the fucking warp whistle in Mario 3 counts as tactics. And now I've said tactics so many times the word started to sound weird. Tactic. It's the breath mint from the mirror universe. What we do have is an open world with a splattering of enemy bases vomited across it and little structure or order to do them in because letting the player choose their own direction was carved into the design document with a Stanley knife. I think the player is supposed to choose their own tone as well since the protagonist, customizable Natch, delivers most of their dialogue in a faintly offended monotone, including when they occasionally go shitballs in mild frustration whenever hot lead is tearing bloody gobbets from their living flesh. Well, since the villains are the only people that seem to have personalities, I'm going to decide that we're playing a game about a government-constructed assassin robot on a quest to learn what it is to be human by murdering some. And you can't tell me I'm wrong because player choice. Another thing Ghost Recon Wildlands elaborately fails to have is challenge, because even putting aside the free squad kills, enemies can take bullets as well as my self-esteem can take mild insults, and the game reads as a headshot any bullet within the same postcode as the head, so I sniped my way through a string of easy victories with the starting assault rifle, which comes with a free suppressor, but you have to think really carefully about the pros and cons before you equip that because it might reduce the weapon's effectiveness from an instant kill to a consequence-free instant kill. Furthermore, you're not supposed to be able to see dudes on the minimap until you spot them, but you can anyway because the game puts a big circle there to let you know you're supposed to be spotting and so danger never ever comes as a surprise. So all in all, complete flatline. I hope you're satisfied Ubisoft because you've destroyed sandbox games. Homefront the revolution didn't manage that. Merely bad sandboxes at least throw the decent ones into sharp relief, but you did it by grinding them out month after month until they were nothing but tedious to-do lists with all the bumps sanded off. We were like school kids finding a dead dog behind the playing field. We were having a great time poking it with a stick and saying it was Lee Drummond's girlfriend, but you were the kid who took it too far and ruined everybody's fun. You picked up the dead dog and put it on your head and chased us around with it until the stomach burst and now everyone stinks of rotten half-digested chappy. When I accidentally parachuted into a crevice I couldn't escape from because there's no fucking jump button, I was confronted by yet another opportunity for player choice. I could choose to fast travel somewhere and start the journey again, or I could quit and play Night in the Woods instead. Have you played Night in the Woods? It's this indie game about a cat girl who drops out of college and comes back to their hometown to find some things changed and some things the same and there's an undercurrent of lurking intrigue. It reminded me of Gone Home somewhat because it eschews core gameplay in favour of storytelling. It takes a while to figure out what it's going for and the supernatural horror stuff feels a bit at odds with the rest of the overall tone, but I respect the game for drawing a line under itself design-wise and not getting bogged down shoving in standard gameplay bullshit until it ultimately forgets to add anything new and the bullshit is all there is. So in summary, Night in the Woods is a solid worth checking out if strong writing is enough to make you forgive the very slow pacing and gameplay taking a backseat. Wait, was I talking about something else? Ah, it can't have been important. So after Mass Effect 3 boiled down three games worth of complex politics and character building to an ending in which all we did was choose what flavour of ice cream got handed out to everyone in the universe, there were going to be obvious difficulties with the next sequel. How do we continue this story that could have gone one of three ways? How can a story set in the universe where we picked pistachio ice cream possibly also follow one from the universe where everyone got Neapolitan? Bioware's solution seems to have been to wash their hands of the business completely. Whatever you picked, everything just worked out, alright? The Milky Way galaxy's fine. Well done. All the races are getting along and they just bought a new puppy together. Peace and prosperity forever. Kind of boring, actually. You probably wouldn't be interested. Oh gosh, what's that over there? Looks like a whole new galaxy just packed to the gills with intrigue and peril. Why don't you go look at that one instead? Off you go, don't bother sending postcards, you mustn't dwell. Shoo, shoo. And that's how Mass Effect Andromeda starts. The Milky Way galaxy is going so great that four giant shiploads of people decide they'd rather live literally anywhere else and piss off to Andromeda. Maybe they're all lactose intolerant. So the overall theme of the game is new beginnings, which I figured out from how the main characters subtly mention it once every five fucking minutes, but hey, it wouldn't be a Bioware game if characters didn't spend most of their time verbally explaining their personalities while staring boggle-eyed at you like 
like you just drop your trousers. We're not Shepherd anymore, now we're Rider. You'll note that Shepherd and Rider are both kinds of people one might find on a farm with poor standards for basic spelling. But while the Shepherd is the garden protector, a Rider is a pioneer who explores untamed lands to find fresh graze for the herd. And so in the spirit of exploration, our hero travels to strange new worlds, seeks out new civilizations, and offers to do their laundry. Let me ask you something. If an alien came down from space and walked among us as ambassador to beyond the furthest stars, would it ever occur to you to call him over and ask if he wouldn't mind popping down the shops to run you a couple of errands? Maybe that's partly why Bioware games always speed down the uncanny valley like a herd of autistic wildebeest. It's not just that all the characters look and act like department store dummies with snap-on plastic hairdos, the game feels like it was written by one as well. Ryder finds himself thrust into the role of head pioneer and the promotion requires him to have part of his brain cut out and an AI put in that talks to him inside his head, does all the difficult adding up and occasionally fucks around with his bodily functions. He takes this in his stride and reacts with bemusement when other people think that that's slightly fucked up. It does all rather come across as a plot written by someone who learned about human emotion from children's pop-up books. Anyway, it's not just the characters pursuing a new beginning here. Mass Effect Andromeda is what is termed in the modern vernacular a soft reboot. Technically a sequel, but refuses to move out of the original's apartment, occasionally steals its clothes and maybe plotting a deranged single white female-esque murder and replacement fantasy. It's the familiar Mass Effect setup, explore galaxy, build party, solve problems, occasionally come back to home base so that the space police chiefs can shake their tiny impotent fists at how much cooler you are than them. Like an aging barfly, Mass Effect Androgynous looks like a mess on the surface with its Jerry Anderson puppet show aesthetic and its hilarious bugs. I got a fun one where all of Ryder's animations were replaced by spastic jumping jacks like someone cut his Omni gel with MDMA. But you just get that barfly home after closing time and slip their pants off and then you'll discover just how much of a mess it is internally as well. Ingredients from all the previous games have been thrown in like Bioware are throwing a fucking high school reunion. The driving around on planets from Mass Effect 1 is back except the planets are now sandbox maps with actual stuff to do rather than one square kilometre of sweet Fred Astaire. And the planet scanning that Mass Effect 2 replaced the driving with is also back and badger buggeringly boring as ever. Going to every random planet, pointing to each one and getting a teaspoonful of crafting resources isn't exactly stimulating Mass Effect. Hmm. Would it help if we made the journey to each planet excruciatingly slow and dull and force you to watch it every single time you travel anywhere? No, I don't think that would help Mass Effect, but keep trying, I hear there's a lot of money in anesthesiology. On top of that, you can send strike teams to complete off-screen missions, create and manage new colonies for your people, research and develop new equipment, level up your own combat abilities, and then if there are any hours in the day left, you can bum around your ship trying to decide which of your crewmates you're eventually going to flip over and give a ruddy good seeing to behind the coolant pipes. But as much as this extensive feature list looks good on a pitch, none of it addresses the question of what exactly is Mass Effect Automata's core gameplay. Core gameplay is what all this ancillary fucking about is ultimately supposed to serve. In most games it's some kind of combat. In Far Cry 3, for example, all the tower climbing and vehicle challenges and crafting gorilla scrotums all somehow serve to help you fuck up enemy soldiers, as well as vengeful scrotumless gorillas, with greater efficiency and variety. But Mass Effect Andrew Lloyd Webber's combat is bollocks. Combat in Bioware games is like managing a swimming trip for five-year-olds. You put all this effort into making sure everyone's properly equipped with floaties, and carefully work out a schedule based around the skill levels of each group, and then once you actually get to the pool, everyone just jumps in and pisses about for 20 minutes. But there are plenty of RPGs with shitty combat, because the core gameplay of an RPG can also be character building, making your character fit a role, a role that you are playing, as it were. But just about the only prior Mass Effect mechanic that has been slung in the bin is all that Paragon Renegade business, and now whether we respond to each dialogue with wit, with intelligence, with aggression, or like we've pounded ourselves between the eyes with a mixture of Botox and horse tranquilizer trick question, that's every response, doesn't seem to matter one chafed mosquito nipple. And besides, to what end are we building our character? See, after the last game was popularly considered to have a worse conclusion than the fucking 1930s, I felt duty-bound to power through to story end in the limited time I had available. The result was a rather tepid The Adventure Continues affair, but what's important is that having skipped a large degree of the side stuff, there were three entire planet sandboxes I hadn't so much as set foot in. So what the hell is all this tedious side bollocks for if I can do in the final boss perfectly comfortably without it? To see the grateful looks on the quest givers' faces? It's a Bioware game, they'd make the same face if I pissed on their shoes.
20 years ago, before real life started to feel like a late-night sitcom that got renewed past the point any of the writers gave a shit about it and is now seeing what it can get away with, there existed the mascot platformer, a staple of that weird transitionary period between 2D and 3D graphics when we hadn't quite internalised the fact that platforming is enhanced by 3D gameplay the same way bobbing for apples is enhanced when you've got a bear trap stuck on your head, and when most protagonists were big-headed cartoon mascots because the attempts at realistic characters looked like used toilet paper origami. A more innocent time, certainly a more colourful time, before graphics improved and every protagonist became a short, brown-haired, white middle-class dude, which would only serve as a mascot for the Kansas City dullards, but this era saw such wonderfully varied titles as Banjo-Kazooie by Rare, Donkey Kong 64 also by Rare, Conker's Bad Fur Day by Industrial Light and Magic, just kidding, it was Rare again. You know what, let's forget about examples, this isn't fucking TV tropes. Let's focus on Banjo-Kazooie, because this new game I've been playing, Ukulele, is to Banjo-Kazooie what Mighty Number no. 9 was to Mega Man, proof if proof be needed that there is no sector of nostalgia so obsolete nor so loose in its interpretation of the spirit of copyright law that you can't get a couple of thousand people on Kickstarter to pony up for a thinly veiled copy-paste with the names changed. Banjo-Kazooie was a 3D platform in which you gather collectibles around a pseudo-open world to unlock more areas and skills, not to be confused with Conker's Bad Fur Day, which was a 3D platform in which you gather collectibles around a pseudo-open world to unlock more areas and skills, and also there's tits in it. Ukulele is consequently that very thing as well, minus tits. Like Banjo-Kazooie, you play as an animal sitting on top of another animal, or perhaps you're playing the animal the other animal is sitting on top of. Talk about an identity crisis, you're collecting golden prizes that have been spread throughout the land by a villain for some unimaginably contrived reason, and every single character talks by making one specific noise in a variety of different pitches, like they've got synthesizers lodged in their throats. And also like Banjo-Kazooie, the game devotes about half a pinky finger's effort to holding up the fourth wall before giving up and repurposing it as a coffee table. I mean, yes, on the surface the baddies have stolen our magic book and we have to find all the missing pages, but the real reason for doing so is because it is a video game, and we aren't shy about mentioning it at every opportunity. I always find something obnoxious about this too-cool-for-school kind of dealio. It's like walking into a Santa's grotto to find a slouched and disinterested Santa beard askew who jerks a thumb towards a bag of toys on the floor before returning his attention to his copy of the Racing Post. Hey, more power to you for your irreverent subversion of my expectations, but you still charged me ten bucks for this shit. It's like farting in a lift and acting like everyone else is the weirdo for noticing. No, actually, it's like farting in your own face and sarcastically rolling your eyes at the smell. But hey, the list of backers in the end credits takes about half an hour to get past the Aaron's, so clearly this is what the people want. In contrast to Banjo-Kazooie being a bear and a bird, Yuka and Lele are a lizard and a bat. Nominally different, but functionally the same. One thing that flies, one thing that would annoy your sister if you left it in her bed. You've got your hub world and you unlock new themed worlds with a set number of jiggies, I mean pages, I mean mundane objects turned into exciting collectible by means of sticking E on the end of the name. Then if you pay the game even more stapleries, it'll unlock each world a second time, adding more content and collectibles with the high-minded entrepreneurial spirit of a heroin dealer. One might reasonably wonder why they don't just unlock all of the world in one go. I suppose it could be to pace things out a bit and give you a reason to come back to previous worlds to collect more crystal methies, but there's already a reason to do that. Some of them are out of reach until you've unlocked certain abilities. You can only get the Allen wrenchy that's sitting on top of a giant erect cock, for example, once you acquire the blue balls attack that gets you into world 4. But then again, another of the things Ukulele doesn't give much of a shit about is sequence breaking. And if you don't have the blue balls attack, you can still do a prolapse pogo off a bit of brickwork that's not technically a platform, but they didn't put an invisible wall around it so go nuts, and get on top of the giant erect cock that way. I applaud that because it makes things a bit more organic, but later in the game once you unlock the ability to fly, we discover there weren't any invisible walls on the ground because they all got arranged into a ceiling instead. Sometimes if you see a tall thing you should fly to the top of it to find the hidden distributor cap from a Ford Anglia E. At other times we were supposed to intuit that the tall thing was just window dressing and the invisible ceiling will smash you back down into the dirt where you belong. Getting the flying power is also the point that the bottom drops out of most to the challenge with an audible thunk, since half the activities are platforming related. But if I were to put my finger on the major defining problem with ukulele, the pulsating orange hernia that dangles most prominently from betwixt its legs as it were, it would be inconsistency. And incidentally it's a bad idea to put your finger on people's hernias. Yes, inconsistency. The rules seem to keep changing behind my back. You've got your bog standard spin attack for dispatching enemies, but as for whether it will actually work on an enemy can only be determined through the scientific method. No, you see that guy wasn't vulnerable at that moment, he was moving 1.3 times faster than he does when he is vulnerable. Oh yeah, and your sonic blast can shatter ice 
most blocks, except when it can't. And here's another power that lets you take on the qualities of things you touch with your tongue. What does that mean, ukulele? Because I've been licking this picture of David Hasselhoff for hours and I don't feel any more virile. No, no, it's just some things. Like you can lick a fire to become a fire lizard and walk through fire barriers. Ukulele, I just hurt myself on a flaming torch. I didn't mean any fire. Ugh. This is like figuring out what the in-laws want for dinner. Sadly, I came away from ukulele in a profoundly negative mood, but it was mainly because the final boss was an absolute pig. You can tell they put the effort in for it, because the two prior interludes where one would have expected mid-game bosses instead contained fucking trivia quizzes like we were having to take the fucking DMV knowledge test, but we finally get an actual boss fight and it just goes on and on with phase after phase, and which of your 50 different attacks will arbitrarily work for each new phase can only be determined through trial and error. It's a shame, really, that all the diverse fun up to then should be ruined by a boss that shows up and pisses on everything. Oh bugger, I was hoping to avoid gags about American politics. You know, Japan's a lovely country and all, but from what video games have taught me, I'm really glad I never went to high school there. I'm not sure I could have handled the overwhelming pressure to succeed academically, knowing that I might show up for final exams and find an enormous radioactive footprint where the school building used to be. And then there's dating, having to use a vacuum pump at a protractor to spike your hair every morning, not knowing if you're satisfying your girlfriend as much as the tentacled alien sex demon she hangs out with at weekends. Still, at least Japanese high schools always seem to have an impressive range of extracurricular activities available. There's the track team, the newspaper club, the guys who travel to a magic netherworld after school to battle symbolic demons born from the dark desires of humanity, and ooh, volleyball sounds fun. Which brings us to Persona 5. This is the first Persona game I've played, but I know the series by reputation. The games are half high school life simulator and half fantasy JRPG, which really goes to show the kind of lengths Japanese culture will go to to bring tentacle demons and schoolgirls together. We are bog-standard, mute yet paradoxically good at making friends JRPG protagonist who is on probation for a crime he didn't commit and is sent to a last chance school where he discovers he has the ability to enter a strange other world formed from the minds and hearts of evil humans and that he can then steal the source of those humans' malevolence and make them better people in the real world. Also, for some reason he has to do this while dressed like he has to go straight from a wedding reception to an S&M party. He enlists an ever-growing Scooby gang of fellow outcasts, partly to aid him in his campaign against a string of tormentors, partly to see what kind of stupid outfits he can persuade them to wear. It sounds complex, but it really isn't. Ooh, the school turns into a castle and the evil teacher is its king because that's how he thinks of himself. That's some sophisticated symbolism, and if you haven't quite understood yet, we'll explain it another 30 or 40 times before we're done. The morality is not terribly complex either. As much as the heroes wibble endlessly back and forth about the righteousness of their actions, the baddies all turn out to be so cartoonishly monstrous that doubts rocket away like a New York motorist after the light turns green. But hey, if I like complexity so much, maybe I should stop playing games with cartoon cats and girls in skin-tied vinyl who won't stop thrusting their bum out even when they're dying or bathing elderly relatives. Persona 5's story gets the basics down pat. We like the heroes and we hate the villains in the same uncomplicated way one likes McDonald's cheeseburgers and hates spiders that live in McDonald's cheeseburgers. But it does the job. I can even forgive the JRPG turn-based combat because all the systems are infused with this almost musical rhythm that makes it viscerally satisfying. Although having said that, if you're going to make a 60-hour RPG, have a speck of fucking mercy and have more than one music track for standard battles. Doesn't matter how good the track is, Bohemian Rhapsody is good, but if I had to listen to the first 30 seconds of it 40 times an hour for three days, I'd end up wanting to travel back in time and skull fuck the idea out of Freddie Mercury's living brain. But I digress. The turn-based combat is less about standing around exchanging attritive skull clocks, and more about figuring out elemental weaknesses so you can bully the monsters into giving up and take their lunch money. No, really, you can do that. You can also sit down and have a little heart-to-heart which has a chance of convincing them to climb inside your Santa's sack with your other stolen goods and lend you their power. Later, you can combine two Persona together to create a third by executing them violently in a startlingly bleak metaphor for child-rearing. And when this was all introduced, I smelt a little rat and fancied I heard the sound of a dinner gong being struck to summon the 100% completion nutters. Because it turns into Persona Pokemon, and I ain't got no truck with all that tedious grinding up to maximise combat efficiency, not while the review's due on Tuesday. So I just dialed the difficulty down a notch every time the boss fights started getting too hard, which probably explains why my career as a football coach ended so disastrously. But if I was the sort of player who gave a shit about fully optimising myself, Persona 5 seems like the kind of game that would give me a fully optimised nervous breakdown. And not just because you have to prowl the dungeons like the fucking child catcher striking names off your list, not just because there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason behind what dialogue options convince the monsters to join you, you might as well push your cheeks towards your nose 
person communicating wet farting noises. The secondary portion of the game, the high school life simulator bit, will also infuriate the psychotic completionist because you've got five stats to keep ticking over and you've got all these friends and party members you need to spend time with to improve your persona and their combat skills. But the rub is that most of your limited number of days only have two time slots, daytime and evening, and you can only do one thing in each slot. Can't meet with more than one friend at a time or just for an hour at lunch, no, because apparently we exclusively befriend insecure twerps who couldn't be any needier if they were in a permanent vegetative state. And the game's also a little unintuitive about what constitutes a time slot filling activity. You can get the metro to the pawn shop, flog a bunch of loot from the last dungeon, take another metro to the bookshop in the red light district to buy a copy of Razzle, and no time will pass at all. But sit down at your desk to craft one fucking lockpick and there goes the fucking afternoon. And then sometimes the game goes into a prolonged story phase and several days of cutscenes will go by with no opportunity to do anything else. So if you've got rented DVDs due back then you can piss up a chimney, Joe Titwank. Also when it says you have 20 days to complete a dungeon you actually have 18, because you have to take two days out to prepare for the final boss, it being very exhausting to stand in a circle yelling PERSONA over and over again, but despite occasionally feeling like a game that was designed by sloths that takes forever to get anywhere, I admit to finding Persona 5 quite absorbing. Not for the combat, not if I'm knocking the difficulty level down the moment it starts to even slightly annoy like a jaded babysitter. I suppose Stardew Valley has shown me that I get easily absorbed by day-to-day -day life simulators because it lets me know what it's like to have a real job, but in truth I kept playing because I wanted to see what happened next. There's a comparison to be made with Mass Effect here, both games are about forming a Scooby gang, but I like the Persona 5 Scooby gang members because they're underdogs, they don't open up to you straight away, and they're expressive. They're not alleged sci-fi super soldiers with the combat skills of a dead salmon, they don't blurt their entire character and backstory at you because you ask them to pass the salt, and they don't emote like the same dead salmon experiencing PTSD flashbacks. Ah, spring is in the air, the daisies are in bloom, the mild April breeze is bringing the sweet smell of rotting flesh that emanates from the vacant lot full of disinterred corpses that the winter snows once mercifully preserved. Which is as good an explanation as any for why so many fucking remasters have come out this month. So if you're one of those idiot millennials who think Halo 1 counts as a retro game, then there's never been a better time to educate yourself in a couple of old classics and start the long, slow, difficult road to becoming a tolerable human being. Having said that, some of the old classics on display this month are playing a bit fast and loose with the definition of the word classic, and for that matter, old. Bayonetta's just been re-released on Steam, and I've got skid marks in my underpants that are older than Bayonetta. Although fair's fair, this wasn't so much a remaster as a port. Platinum Games finally bringing an old console exclusive to PC in accordance with the basic law of the universe that all matter must eventually gravitate towards a point of maximum sensibleness. A better example would be the Bulletstorm Full Clip Edition. That actually does posture itself as a remastering, and not merely a port to Steam, which is just as well since Vanilla Bulletstorm was already on Steam, or rather had been, before this thing showed up. But hey, it's only by getting the Full Clip Edition that you can have the original intended Bulletstorm experience, by which I mean pay full price for it. Besides that, you're getting a graphical improvement, but it was only one generation ago, so it's the kind of graphical improvement that's like hanging a slightly nicer chandelier over an orgy, and there's a new mode where you can play through the game as Duke Nukem. I'm guessing Duke Nukem was the only one to return their phone calls. Because I can't imagine the Bulletstorm devs sitting down and saying, right, who can we add to our game who embodies in our audience's minds success, high quality, and having a realistic understanding of one's value and capabilities? How about Duke Nukem? What an excellent suggestion, Crispin, let's go with that. Obviously I'm being sarcastic, and since it's so obvious I'm going to omit this sentence from the official transcript of this meeting. But anyway, let's move on to remasters of games that are actually both old and classics, such as Full Throttle Remastered, a scene-for-scene -scene remake of the classic Tim Schafer adventure, now with the pixel resolution that doesn't make all the characters look like they're having their identities protected. Because he'd already done that for Grim Fandango and Day of the Tentacles, so the only one left to do was the dodgy one. Tim Schafer has stated that Full Throttle's shorter length makes it a better fit for 2017 audiences, a surprisingly candid statement, effectively saying what a relief that everyone's standards are so much lower these days. No, that's not fair, Full Throttle is by no means a bad game. It's a fun, fluffy little yarn about the leader of a biker gang in a proto-Mad Max near future battling evil industrialists, the voice cast is basically a Batman the Animated Series reunion, and really how can one not admire a point-and-click adventure game whose standard commands are not look, talk, or use, but look, talk, use, or kick in the bollocks? Unfortunately, the metaphorical monkey on Full Throttle's back, or perhaps I should say Monkey Island on its back, is that it has to be compared to the other classic LucasArts adventure games, among which it would be the runt of the litter, if it weren't for the 
the dig, staggering around on its one functional leg, leaking on the carpet from every body part that can leak. I never had a problem with Full Throttle's length, it was more that most of the gameplay was shit, so complaining about the length would be like complaining about someone vomiting on your pie because they could only manage two heaves. Story traditionally steers the adventure game motorbike while gameplay sits behind to offer the occasional reach around, but for some reason Full Throttle is obsessed with breaking things up with arcade minigames, most annoyingly the bike combat that's like trying to play cookie clicker while riding a unicycle. But even disregarding those, the puzzle design just isn't up to the usual classic LucasArts standards, where in Monkey Island you get puzzles that balance cleverness, good writing and world building like the insult sword fighting business, Full Throttle has a prolonged puzzle centred around staring at a crack in a wall. Perhaps there's an inherent issue with making an adventure game, traditionally a more thoughtful genre about characters who can't brute force their way through situations, about a dude who uses brute force like it's a brand new soda stream that he's trying to convince himself wasn't a waste of money. It makes you wonder why we suddenly have to craft some artful means of distracting the souvenir stand man when smashing people's faces into the dirt has been so reliably fruitful thus far. So let's move on to another new remaster, Planescape <laughs> Torment <laughs> Enhanced Edition, a CRPG popularly considered to be one of the best of its kind. Full disclosure, I can't confirm because I can only ever play Planescape Torment for about an hour before the combat gets too much for me. Not the combat combat, which is a load of sticky bollocks on a cold serving tray, I'm talking about the relentless battle I find myself in with the fucking text window, as it remorselessly disgorges endless spikes, subclauses and paragraphs and conversation trees with more branches than Wells fucking Fargo. I've heard Planescape Torment described as the best book you'll ever play, but sadly I'm not a book critic, because you need actual qualifications to be one of those. I like games, with narrative woven into gameplay, and only prefer books when I'm in specific sorts of moods, you know? Like when I'm on a long haul flight, or when both my thumbs have been pecked off by crows. But hey, I fully admit to having a low attention spur- oh, I'm bored of this sentence. Let's talk about something else. The last remastering I'd like to bring up this week is perhaps the definitive example of aging poorly, second only to a fruit bowl in direct sunlight. I give you Parappa the Rapper remastered on PS4, which some people seem to remember fondly, but which looked to me like a string of cutscenes that couldn't be enlarged beyond native PS1 resolution, and as such you could miss entirely if a medium-sized fly lands on your TV screen, broken up by a total of six gameplay sections consisting of the crumbs of gameplay that fall off a modern game if you hold it upside down and shake it vigorously. I thought I'd like this, since I can hold my own at Guitar Hero, and the principle of press the button when we say so is one that the last ten years of AAA combat engines has been keeping me well practiced in, but the rhythm in this rhythm game is being monitored by a narcoleptic mountain goat. I could not for the life of me get past the fifth stage. I pressed the buttons when it said to, but the game wasn't having any of it. Then experimentally I tried playing as awfully as I thought I could get away with, and somehow that had a slightly better success rate. One of us clearly has something badly wrong with them, Parappa the Rapper, and I know it's not me because I got my test results back from the SDI clinic. What the fuck do you want? If you tell me to crack 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 the egg against the bowl one more time, I'm going to crack 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 your head against a plinth. In the popular subgenre of first-person horror games where you have all the defensive capability of a daddy long legs in the hand of a schoolboy with a difficult home life, of which indie developers produce a near-constant stream because all they need is some corridors, a lighting engine, and a soundtrack made by repeatedly sitting on the arse end of a piano keyboard, the first outlast was arguably the benchmark setter, a highly disturbing haunted mansion ride through a corrupted asylum that illustrated just how terrifying a thing the human penis can be when it's bathed in night vision green and bouncing festively back and forth as it comes at you in a poorly maintained public lavatory. It also had a plot that left a lot of unanswered questions, and now the sequel, Outlast 2, is adding another fairly significant one, namely what the fuck happened? On the surface the formula hasn't changed much, first person lost in crazy town lots of hiding from glowing green todgers, so why did Outlast 2 feel like such a third place trophy full of spit? Maybe we've changed, maybe Resident Evil 7 broke the spell on these Heidi Chasey horror games when it discovered that hey, turns out having a gun does help. Wish I'd known that when I was in Slenderman's woods looking for me maths homework. But anyway, you are ace cameraman Blake something or other, who comes with his wife to hillbilly murderer country to cover a story, and makes the rookie error of showing up in a helicopter which in video game intro sequences hold together like a jammy dodger in the back pocket of a pair of jogging bottoms. So the inevitable happens and he's got to rescue his wife from both a Christian death cult and a pagan death cult that appear to be at odds but seem to find plenty of common ground when it comes to doing horrible, horrible things to Blake's gormless ass. Again, maybe Resident Evil 7 ruined this with all that chainsaw-based overzealous manicure business, because I swear Outlast 2 is trying to break the horrible, inescapable torture in first person record. Fucking hell, it's like the Passion of the Christ VR edition. You wanna know the 
precise moment Outlast 2 lost me, it was five minutes in when I was spotted by the very first enemy before I could possibly have spotted them, whereupon they ran up and smashed me in the dick with a scythe. I then had to enjoy the spectacle of blood spurting from my brand new vagina before the quickload kicked in and I was back on my feet, Todger restored, barely 50 yards back. Instantly, all tension was broken. I'd seen things get as bad as they were ever going to get, especially after I got traumatically Todger tackled two more times before I realised I couldn't just sprint past the enemy but had to sort of lure them away and give them a bit of the runaround first. So everything that was supposed to scare me from that point on was just an annoyance, because the game had blown its load in the torture porn and I knew the autosaves had my back. Part of the annoyance was that, yeah, evading enemies is a perfectly adequate core mechanic, but there are two sides to that coin, Benedict Runberbatch, running away and running to. And Outlast 2 never makes it clear where we're supposed to be running to. That's pretty obvious in a corridor, but most of Outlast 2 takes place outdoors in a wilderness where the difference between a plant we can push through and one with invisible walls around it can only be established by smashing headlong into it as a platoon of fundamentalists jab at our heels with pitchforks. There are one or two bits where you have to search a cornfield for the exit while being hunted by multiple rednecks, and it's about as much fun as playing Pac-Man blindfolded in a sports bar where the power got cut halfway through the Super Bowl. Mind you, it seems like all the other chase sequences take place in tight linear environments where gameplay descends into trial and error, and again, I'm not frightened, I'm annoyed. Every time I'm chased into another non-obvious dead end, it's annoying in the same way as losing another round of Connect 4 to a hyperactive 12-year-old with poor sportsmanship. So it's back to the loading screen to be alone with my nagging thoughts again, such as why the fuck is Blake still filming this? I know that's the sword of Damocles that hangs over the plot of every found footage horror film, but in Outlast 1 it made sense. We were trying to document something to bring the perpetrators to justice. I think rescuing our wife should be a slightly higher priority than getting this isolated murder cult onto Judge Judy, Blake mate. And one would think you'd want a hand free to defend yourself and to dig the nails out of your flesh. Yahtzee, clearly Blake needs the camera's night vision mode to see in all the places that aren't lit by strung up burning homosexuals. Alright, but why does he keep recording stuff? And why can we watch the stuff he records back to hear some of his internal thoughts on them? Like he's boring us to death with his holiday snaps. And this is the mass grave I had to claw out of, and there's me being violated, and there's me being violated from a slightly different angle, and there's me hallucinating my old elementary school, but obviously you can't see that because it was conjured from my fevered brain. Which brings me to one of the more baffling aspects of Outlast 2's story, that every now and again Blake finds himself in a hallucinatory vision of his old school, and each time it's hinted with varying degrees of subtlety that something traumatic happened there that went entirely beyond the cafeteria food. Now, I've played enough horror games to know that no story delves this much into the main character's seemingly unrelated backstory without there being a big juicy twist at the end, showing how it connects to the main plot. The problem is, and here we take the exit ramp onto Spoiler Avenue, so if you're going to play this game then cover your eyes and stick hissing cobras down your ears for the next few minutes, there is no connection! I played all the way to the end where we find out exactly what happened to Blake as a kid, and it's completely unrelated to the hillbilly murder cult he's having to deal with in the present day. So to coin a phrase, the fuck? Am I reading this right? Blake responds to the hideous trauma of his situation by daydreaming about a different trauma that happened in his past. Doesn't seem very likely. Personally, I'd daydream about something nice to take my mind off it, like a friendly dog with the voice of Bob Ross. Maybe I missed something. The childhood trauma involves a religious person being a bastard, so maybe that's the connection. Don't trust those religious people, Blake, even if they are just trying to make sauerkraut out of your joy department. I don't know. I didn't get Outlast 2. I didn't get what the school stuff was for, or why that lady gave birth at the end, or even what made the helicopter crash in the first place, except that it was a video game intro and that's the fucking law. I'm not even sure there was anything to get. Maybe it was just a slap-together series of horror and torture porn ideas, brainstormed by a group of oily 15-year-olds whose parents let them drink too much soft drink and watch late-night television. It's pretentious as well, with all the religious imagery and messing with our sense of reality, but at the end of the day, the only thing you need to outlast is your fucking gag reflex.
Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but this week's game isn't actually about a ghost warrior, as in a ghost who fights people by moving all their kitchen chairs around when their backs are turned. No, it's saying that a sniper, metaphorically speaking, is a ghost warrior. But if you ask me, yon subtitle doth protest too much. Warrior carries certain connotations. You picture bold, powerful figures clashing on the field of battle, muscle quivering against muscle like an earthquake in a leather goods shop. But if a sniper was involved in that, there'd only be one bold, powerful figure standing by themselves looking confused on the field of battle before there's a distant cough of cordite and their head explodes. Not that I wish to denigrate the noble profession of lying on the ground idly splattering the heads off people five miles away who couldn't have seen you even before you turned the vision centre of their brain into delightful confetti. After all, Sniper Ghost Warrior 3 has already done a perfectly good job of that. It's the video game equivalent of having to sleep in the bunk below a serial bedwetter. It's not just that it's pissing on you, it's that it's pissing on you in an entirely predictable manner. Sniper Ghost Murderer 3 is a sandbox tactical shooter in the Far Cry scout ahead, mark them up, stealth it up, fuck it up, shoot them up model. Except unlike Far Cry it just saves time and gives you the silent sniper rifle from the word go to get all that troublesome gameplay challenge out of the way early. I say sandbox, it's actually three arbitrarily sectioned off mini sandboxes, which I guess was for the best, because every time it goes to a new map we have to stare at a loading screen for ten fucking minutes, so I dread to think how long it would have taken one giant combined map to load, maybe long enough to make us come to our senses and play something else. Oh, Ghost Warrior 3, tell me you're not loading up the entire sandbox map every time we transition to it. That's like an asshole housemate who runs the dishwasher when there's only three plates in it. But anyway, the game opens with a flashback to two brothers, the older, brash, confident and already enrolled in the military, the younger, more shy and troubled and looking to the older with hero worship. Now, if you think you've guessed which of these brothers will be our underdog protagonist, then you've been misled by your basic storytelling instincts, you big stupid cunt. No, the protagonist is the older brother, and after jumping gleefully over about 15 years of character development, we suddenly cut to the brothers on a mission to ghost warrior the bollocks off some fools, which ends with the younger brother being captured by some global supervillain group or other. We then jump forward again two years, what is this, the fucking Summer Olympics, when our hero, Mr North, I've honestly forgotten his first name, it was either John or Rob, let's just call him Oliver, is deployed to Georgia searching for his brother and finds himself up against a mysterious masked sniper conducting a reign of terror. Oh, Gottington ballbags, I wonder who that'll turn out to be. Who will be behind that mask when we confront this person who snipes almost as well as we do and seems to be interested in us personally? Will it be Whoopi Goldberg or Cardinal Richler, Charlie the Chip Shop Man? Ooh, maybe it'll be the competent story writer who disappeared right before the game began. Am I beating the sarcasm drum a bit too hard? Sorry, I'm trying to bring across what level of story writing we're dealing with here. If you could imagine a level somewhere between the ground and the average height of a dog turd, that's where we are. Hang on, Yardsey, if the protagonist turned out to be a different brother than who you expected, that's a subversion of expectations. Isn't that a good thing? It might have been if the brother we got left with hadn't been an insufferable tosspot. I think his in-game character profile says it best. North is a firm believer in America's role as world police. Wait, what? So our protagonist watched that Team America film and didn't realise it was a satire? I feel like all the dialogue scenes North is involved with read like meeting transcripts from a support group for incredibly insecure people. Grr, I'm gonna kill all those motherfuckers and then leave by Bible verses on their corpses in spunk from my incredibly huge cock. Grr, yes, do that thing you just described. I will make a note of it along the side of my even larger cock. Wait, my cock just got slightly bigger! When North isn't using his sniper rifle to make people's jawbones spin around like football rattles, he largely spends his time finding persons of interest and getting information from them. He has a three-step process for doing so. First he asks them a question, then he asks it again but with a period between each word, then he usually just threatens to smash their teeth in. And I noticed one of the optional objectives was do not provoke anyone, so I wanted on record that I didn't tell him to say that game. North is assisted by a small team of support characters, most of whom are hot women. That's why he's sometimes known as Magnetic North. One of them sporting enough cleavage to conceal an entire manila folder, and the other's got an arse like mating narwhals and wears vacuum-sealed plastic bin liners instead of trousers. They also act really catty to each other because both of their compass roses are pointing north, if you catch my drift. It's like a fucking James Bond film, but James Bond has had all his charisma sucked out and replaced with unresolved parental issues. It's all so mind-numbingly lacking in nuance. Seems like every single person we shoot is a bald-bearded Russian with angry 
domestic violence eyes. And when we are given information on targets, they always seem to be dastardly criminals on top of whatever reason we have for shooting them. Blimey, he's a high-ranking mercenary, a drug dealer, and a serial rapist. He must have very good time management skills. I can barely work on two projects in the week. After all that, the core gameplay is just sort of dull, really. You have the what now seems to be mandatory drone to scout the area, and you have to stare at enemies for ages before North will wake the fuck up and mark them. And sometimes you won't even mark them, because it turns out they're unarmed workers who just happen to also be in an enemy stronghold, but won't attack you or raise a stink, because I guess the enemy soldiers are dicks about paying overtime. Effort has been made to create sniping gameplay with a degree of skill and complexity. There are always plenty of possible vantage spots. You can extend the little bipod legs and steady your rifle on the floor or on a chest-high wall, and you have to factor in bullet drop-off and wind as you change the angle of your scope in accordance with the target distance. Or you press the magic hold breath button, which steadies your gun even if you're holding it in mid-air with one hand on your balls, and makes a big glowing dot appear showing exactly where the bullet will hit, so so much for that. I'm sure some admirable bastion of humanity will inform me there's an option to switch that off, but then I'd have to play Sniper Ghost Warrior 3 some more, and I'd rather hammer my scrotum into a six-foot pancake and roll myself into a bollock burrito. I wonder how far they're willing to push this. I'm already having to call the sequel police every time they reboot an old game and not change the title, and now look. The first game to be named Prey isn't particularly old, and more to the point is somewhere on the low end of bugger all to do with this new game called Prey. Watch it, Bethesda, this is the kind of bullshit that brings down the sequel feds. Alright, both games are about alien invasions, but by that logic it might as well have been called Space Invaders Episode 973. This really goes to show how utterly allergic these bean-counting, creatively bankrupt loaves of chunky shite are to new ideas. They had a perfectly acceptable original IP and still felt the need to slap on whatever pre-existing name they could find clinging to the side of the rubbish chute. Prey 2017's more of a spiritual successor to System Shock 2 than Prey 2006, not to be confused with the official spiritual successor to System Shock 2, Bioshock, or Doom 3, or Dead Space, or basically every sci-fi horror game since 1999. Blimey, how many spiritual successes does one game need? There'll be bloodshed at the reading of the will, I tell you that. Prey 2017, god that's awkward to say, but Prey 17 sounds too much like a teen gossip mag, gains a few spiritual successor points by having basically the same plot as System Shock 2 as well. There's a spaceship, the crew encountered something alien, some kinky weirdo got it into their head to put the alien thing inside themselves, and now you've woken up on the ship with no memory, and have to piece together what happened and firmly discipline the newly monsterized crew by bonking them with a wrench. There's also plenty of influence from Bioshock on display, in that the whole place has a retro aesthetic about it, like you're trapped inside an episode of Tomorrow's World from the 70s. You upgrade your character and skills by taking a foreign device and doing something harrowing to your soft fleshy parts. And there's a bit of a moral choice thing going on, but don't panic, it's the sneaky kind of moral choice mechanic that creeps in so gradually you barely notice, like a beetle in a packet of licorice all sorts. But whether you're good or bad, you're always the kind of person who searches every cabinet in the kitchen and then eats 18 bananas in five seconds, like a video of your mum on Fast Forward. Another game I'm reminded of is The Evil Within, because Prey also opens with a somewhat interesting set piece that's largely fuck all to do with the rest of the game, but bollocks to it, maybe the hype videos will sell a few more copies. Get past that and the game proper begins. Your character is you. Morgan you, that is. Scientist, executive, let's face it, probably responsible for this whole mess type person. And roughly the first direction you're given is a little note from your previous self instructing you to feed the cat and pick up some cornflakes, and if there's any time left, maybe think about blowing up the entire station to save Earth from the alien menace. Hey, fuck you, myself. You don't know me. Maybe while I'm going through the extraordinarily prolonged process of unlocking the self-destruct, I'll explore the vessel, meet survivors, and learn more about the backstory so at the end of all this I can make an informed choice on whether I want to blow everything to space hell or find a less drastic solution, like hold the alien menace down and make it watch Independence Day on loop for three days. So since Breath of the Wild is so popular with the kids these days, open-endedness is back in fashion and Prey is strutting up and down that catwalk with an enthusiastic goose step. When the introduction's over, the game informs us we have the run of the entire ship except for all the locked parts. But what's neat is that you can leave an airlock, explore the entire ship's exterior, and re-enter it by any airlock you want. Oh hang on, they're all locked as well. Alright, it's not that open-ended. And besides, I didn't see much point in exploring beyond where I had to go for the main missions because monsters continually respawn, a chest of drawers can only be looted once, and I wasn't convinced that I'd find more resources than I'd use up going walkabouts. Ammunition is always scarce, even though you can load armfuls of kitchen appliances and medical equipment into the recycling 
recycler and turn them into more ammo as part of a rather on-the-nose metaphor for recent changes in American foreign policy, because at least early on I was going through pistol ammo like a boarding school dormitory goes through tissues the night after free Wi-Fi is installed. Combat took me a while to get a handle on, the way one gets a handle on a horse when the vet with the big testicle clippers closes in. Like Bioshock combat, it gets very chaotic very fast. It loves taking you by surprise. The starting enemy is a mimic that can disguise itself as small objects, so you're merrily searching a desk for old dictaphones and breast milk pumps when a mug jumps up and sticks its tongue down your throat. Then it runs out of your field of view and starts nibbling your bum while you blindly spin around looking for it, smashing your wrench about and you feel like a gorilla in a phone booth with a wasp. The next enemy zips about like a nervous party host and has a really hard to avoid projectile attack that chomps up your health bar like a fun-sized Snickers. On that note, Prey just can't get enough of murdering me without warning. I'm sure it never stops being funny for it. Oops, the enemy created a big bomb right next to you where you didn't look and it didn't have line of sight. Why didn't you dodge it, you loser? Oh, you thought you could increase your spacesuit thrust speed and lightly brush against a wall? Dead. That's what we do to hurrying heralds. Oh, what's this now? You're trying to walk across an empty room? I think someone forgot to stay at least ten feet away from broken electrical panels. Zap. Blimey, was that built by the same contractor that made the consoles on the Starship Enterprise? But the combat at least I eventually figured out. All you have to do is stick fistfuls of alien drugs in your face until you can psychic beam all the motherfuckers to death, remember where all the robots are that restore your side points for free, and quick save like a twitchy drinking bird toy. And Prey is in all aspects a game that you have to figure out, which I suppose it's to its credit. It would be no bad thing to my mind if the trend for vaguely retro-style open-ended game world structuring continued. It's all tasty millet seed for the exploration parakeet. Once it gets going, Prey is an effective enough self-contained action RPG. What it isn't is an effective horror game. Part of it's the way most of the ships lit up like a fucking Ikea showroom, but I think a lot of it's the old Arcane Studios character problem again. I'm not saying there's been no improvement, it's not as bad as Dishonored, the all-done wall most monotone voice competition, but what survivors are on Talos 1 don't act much like their former friends and crewmates are having their nostrils split by space horrors two rooms over. They come across like they're just having a bad day at work. Ugh, Mr Henderson was in a foul mood this morning. I only stopped in to drop off the figures and he tried to dissolve my arms and legs off with his acid-spitting more. People often say to me, Yahtzee, your support of VR as a concept seems rather incongruous with your established tendency to neophobically reject gimmicky hardware. It seems odd that someone usually so mindful of the slightest flaws in games can forgive a gaming system whose fancy plastic eye trough could be repurposed as a sick bucket at any moment, also Veni Vidi Vici. And I say, well, the ghost of Julius Caesar, have you ever thought that maybe we're the ones who aren't meeting VR halfway? We're going to have to suck up this whole vomiting nonsense if we want to be serious about immersion tech, when the hyper-intelligent alien whales declare war on our society and we have to assault their undersea cities in giant torpedo-equipped mechas squid, the remote control operators in their sensory deprivation pods aren't going to be able to turn over and complain that their tummy hurts. So I've been fiddling with the Oculus Rift lately and have been playing a new game that the Oculus people seem to be really trying to push, Wilson's Heart. Not to be confused with Wilson's Hearth, which is the fireplace especially for former presidents named Woodrow. That wasn't exactly A material, was it? Fuck it, move on. This was also my first time using the motion controls, or to use the proper name, the fucking motion controls. I'll admit the touch devices are an improvement on waving dildos around, because the Oculus constantly tracks your hand and finger positions, rather than trying to interpret the spastic flame as they come, but at the end of the day, whatever buttons you're pushing or titties you're fondling in VR Magic Land, you're still groping empty air and getting constant reminders of the real world, where you're just a twat on a couch with bills to pay and two pounds of plastic strapped to your eyeballs. But immersion aside, so you're looking down and seeing your hands inside the VR world reacting and moving in perfect synchronicity with your meat space ones, what then? You're still rooted to the spot and can't even rotate without the risk of making a confession to the Church of Armitage Shanks, so the potential for deep gameplay is limited. It's more suited to the sort of thing that's euphemistically billed as an experience rather than a game, where there's a a fruit bowl and you pick up a banana and then you look at the banana and then I guess that's where you're supposed to reach orgasm. Wilson's Heart is an attempt to get a full-on narrative adventure game out of that setup. It's a horror game where you wake up in an abandoned hospital with no memory of how you got there. What bold new strides we're taking with this new technology. Next you'll be telling me it's dark and raining outside and the electrics are on the futs. Oh wow, I didn't even mention the lightning storm. I think that fills out my bingo card. To its credit though, the game's not asking to be taken seriously, which is just as well. It's all in black and white and it's deliberately evoking old horror B-movies in a universal monster sort of area. Think 
vampires, werewolves, the creature from the African-American lagoon. The main character is Wilson, cantankerous old fart and former neighbour to Dennis the Menace, who acquires a whole new suite of problems when he discovers his heart has been removed and replaced with a weird mechanical device that looks like the puzzle box from Hellraiser had sex with a magic eight ball. This device has many strange gameplay convenient powers, such as the ability to fix malfunctioning light fittings. What do you mean, call an electrician? How is that easier than selling my body and soul to channel the forces of a capricious ethereal netherworld? Alright, how do we play this game then? Well first, you need to stand up in the middle of your living room. Let me stop you there, game, with a hearty bollocks to you. I went through this already with Rise of Nightmares. I'll only stand around getting my feet sore for hours if I'm at a rock concert, or a cattle auction, or anywhere else where there's a non-zero chance of getting laid. I'm going to sit on my nice comfy couch, tell the game that I'm standing, and we can just roleplay that I'm sitting in a very high wheelchair, okay? Okay, but don't come crying to me next time we need you to open a drawer on a low desk and you crack your knuckles on your coffee table. So there we are, sitting three feet off the ground in an abandoned hospital, and the true horror grips us as we look around the room and see a number of ghosts peering interestedly at doors and furniture, until we realise, oh wait, that's the user interface. This is how we're bypassing the motion sickness problem. Instead of free movement, we jump from position to position like the original Mist. But hey, there are people who still think of Mist as a classic, generally people who haven't played it lately. And I don't feel nauseous. I'm just getting a headache like I'm stuck in a metal lift with a concert brass section. I think that's because I'm constantly having to twist my neck around to look for travel points behind me. Guess you should have stood up after all, Yards. Oh sure, if I were standing I could have turned all the way around and then throttled myself with the Oculus cord. So the puzzle's a pretty standard time-wasting fare for a modern adventure game. There's an obstacle, there's at best three rooms to explore, and the solution for each obstacle is obvious as soon as you've explored everything. There's a Randy Stallion in one room and a pair of sturdy wanking gloves in the other, that sort of thing. I guess it's the experience thing again that's less for the intellectual challenge. We're supposed to still be creaming ourselves over the fact that we're actually using our own hands to jerk off a horse. There's also the occasional combat section, the mechanics for which change from battle to battle, but they generally start with you getting insta-killed three or four times before you figure out what particular gang sign you need to throw up to deflect the attacks. I suppose there's some catharsis in repeatedly punching the air as the air squeaks and makes fleshy noises, but things fall down a bit whenever you're called upon to accurately throw something. Throwing accurately with motion controls is more art than science. I watch my missile bounce off the ground three feet away and I'm right back at middle school, rounders practice. Terrifying, yes, but not in the right way. Wilson's heart, in summary, is harmless enough with decent production value, but will seem adorably quaint when stroke if, and that's a massive pulsating if, VR moves out of the experimental phase. Like watching a 3D movie from the 80s without the 3D on. So you're left wondering why the actors keep pointing things at the camera and acting like you're meant to be shitting yourself. With that in mind, making the rest of the game as quaint as possible was smart, although not as smart as it thinks it is. Spoiler warning, you know the drill, buckets on heads. Throughout the game we find bodies drained of blood and conclude there's a vampire about. Now, one of the NPCs is tall, thin, with a widow's peak and pointy ears, and is named Bella, as in Lugosi. No, seriously. Of course, he's not the vampire, but what bothers me is how, after that's revealed, the game seems so fucking pleased with itself. Bet you thought he was the vampire, you silly sausage. Ha ha, crow crow. Actually, I didn't, Wilson's heart, because I was giving you one nano angstrom of credit. And now to solve the mystery of Mr. W. Airwolf and his fondness for tennis balls. When Deck 13 Interactive set out to make a game to rival Dark Souls, the naysayers said it couldn't be done, but Deck 13 damn well knuckled down and made Lords of the Fallen, thus proving the naysayers right. Because Lords of the Fallen was, while superficially Dark Souls-esque, short, boring and reminiscent of a D&D campaign run by a bloke who collects knives. But nonetheless emboldened, having gotten the straight rip-off out of the way with a dark fantasy game, Deck 13 now moves to bring super-hard exploration RPGs to the world of science fiction with their new game, The Surge, thus breathing new life into the word Surge, which was previously of use only to electricians and erotic fiction writers. Seriously, try it. Describe any human human body part is surging, and voila, you're writing erotic fiction. Tenderly he caressed her surging kneecaps. Sadly there's very little erotic about The Surge, which continues many of the trends started by Lords of the Fallen in that the combat's a bit clunky and most of the characters look like they covered themselves in glue and rolled around in a dumpster full of old dishwasher parts. I don't know if The Surge is as short as Lords of the Fallen, I've heard it is, but I couldn't say because I stopped playing at the third boss. In fact, let's not mince words, I think I might hate The Surge. I feel like I've been easier going lately, it's probably because I have a small dog now, but I forgot how much I enjoy really hating things. It's like putting 
putting on a favourite old sweater and smacking yourself in the balls with your childhood teddy. And the surge got off to such a promising start too. We open on a futuristic train with our slightly generic main character Warren, so called because he likes sticking rabbits up his bum, making his way to his first day at work with some kind of tech company. And when we're given control we move him away from his seat and see for the first time that he's wheelchair bound. That's actually pretty neat storytelling wise, just a smidgen ripped off from James Cameron's avatar, but hey, without cutscenes or dialogue we've established our protagonist as vulnerable and hoping for the better life that this tech company's industrial robot suits can offer. So he probably felt a bit gypped when it turned out all they were going to do was nail bits of scrap metal to his legs. You see, what follows the prologue is a cinematic in which Warren gets all his fancy new cyber bits drilled into his flesh, except they forgot the anaesthetic and he's awake and screaming the whole way through as the camera zooms gratuitously in on the blood squirting out of his new shoulder-mounted shelf brackets. It's quite harrowing, and I'm not even sure what the point of it is. I'm sorry the surge, perhaps there's been a misunderstanding, I came here for some exciting sci-fi action, but you seem to be showing me cripple torture porn. Alright, fine, begrudge is a little fun. Bam! Now you're in a junkyard fighting robots, go! It's that abrupt! Maybe if Warren had interacted with another human being during the wheelchair prologue segment we could have gotten a handle on some context. As it stands, for all we know, the torture porn cinematic and everything following could just be some kind of how-not-to-do-it occupational health and safety video they're making Warren watch. But this is another callback to Lords of the Fallen, isn't it? Which also began with a pre-rendered intro cinematic that was largely cock-all to do with the rest of the game. So I guess this is Deck 13's design philosophy. Hey, do you mind watching this video we threw together for a laugh while we finish nailing bread bins and of old pipe to the main character's armour. I was impressed by how the story successfully created the atmosphere of a new work environment though, because something has gone horribly wrong and no one seems to know why or who to blame. But it scarcely needs an explanation. The machines have all gone hostile, standard science fiction plot 14 alpha. The explanation is they needed to do that for there to be a video game. So we begin the usual Dark Souls pattern, gradually advance, explore, unlock shortcuts and get repeatedly smashed like an avocado in a sprinter's jockstrap. More so than in other Dark Souls-likes I'd say. If it is a relatively short game then they may have compensated by cranking the difficulty up even higher than usual, so we have to creep forward square foot by agonising square foot in case another concealed enemy jumps out from a blind corner and chomps your health bar up in two hits. But hey, if it's obnoxious difficulty that makes me like Dark Souls then surely even more obnoxious difficulty can only make things better. Don't you try to catch me out with your earth logic, human. In the world of difficult games there exists a hypothetical line which I like to call the tropic of fuckabout. It is defined as the point where high difficulty stops being a stimulating challenge and becomes merely fucking me about. The fact that we and most of the half-human enemies we face are basically scrapyards on legs and that the robotic enemies lean towards being flat geometric shapes on legs mean it's really hard to read their movements, especially in dark areas because for some breathtakingly arbitrary reason you can only turn your flashlight on when you're wearing a piece of body armour, and even then it's a miserable spot about sufficient to illuminate two thirds of the entity trying to shove a pneumatic drill up your nose. The best approach I found was to wade in and start mashing attack, not with a fast light weapon because I'd always come out of it with some health lost and a foot missing because apparently one of the enemy's indistinct movements might have been a stab. I'd use a heavy weapon I could be sure would stunlock them, and which only have a wind up time of about 900 million years, and locks you into long combo animations that might end with you comboing right off a fucking ledge into a pile of sharpened supermarket trolleys. None of which are impossible to compensate for, of course, this is all shit that could still be countered with the usual go-to advice for twats, get good, even the fucking horrible dodge mechanic where you have to flick the right analogue stick. I've said this before third person games, leave the right analogue stick alone to its happy little world of controlling the camera. You force it out of its comfort zone and it's just gonna piss on the bus seat and ruin the whole field trip. None of this was enough to bring out that hate I mentioned earlier. Frustration, yes, but frustration doesn't stop me from playing, it just means I'll need two diazepam and a wank once I'm done. The hate only came when I was taking on the third boss. It's a big industrial machine with about nine things on it trying to kill you, fair enough, but for some turbo-cocking reason every time you attack one the game auto-targets it, leaving you staring blissfully into its eyes as its eight friends are winding up attacks where you can't see. Get past that and I can start attacking the core, but if you target it, fucking switches to a fixed camera so I can barely see what I'm doing. What's got into you, camera? Is this about the pissing on the bus seat comment? Finally after much frustration and about 900 attempts I've gotten the core on the ropes and have moments from landing the final blow whereupon I glitched through the floor and fall to my death. No! That's too much. That's gone right over the tropic of fuckabout on a jet ski full of dicks. I'm done. Fuck the surge, fuck deck 13, fuck anyone who likes
likes it. Blimey, that's filled my schedule out for the week. I think it's fair to say that the DC Comics universe and its various adaptations could stand to take itself a touch less seriously. Oh, it's easy to be an armchair cinematographer, isn't it? Snarks Johnny DC in reply. You try getting in a cheery mood when your films need to break 400 million on opening weekend, or your executives will have to take a pay cut and cause the collapse of the local pool cleaning industry. I'm just saying, Johnny DC, that Superman and Batman crying in the rain, smashing each other's faces in and talking like pro wrestlers with mouthfuls of cat litter, might be drifting somewhat from the essence of those characters, that is to say, power fantasies for little boys who don't want to tidy their rooms. But here's Injustice 2 anyway, and another team up between the DC Universe and Netherrealm, the Mortal Kombat people. Although DC shouldn't feel special because the last Mortal Kombat game ended up crossing over with Alien, Predator, Jason Voorhees, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and basically everyone that ever replied to their emails, so I'd advise DC to get themselves down the clap clinic once they get back from the honeymoon. Still, as I believe I said last time, the one-on-one -on -one fighting game and the superhero comics universe are an actual combo, as both are concerned with larger-than-life characters beating the snot out of each other for one incredibly contrived reason after another. The broad incredibly contrived reason running through the Injustice property is a falling out between Batman and Superman over whether or not killing people is good. Batman takes the position that killing is the uncrossable line at which all negotiation breaks down and vigilance gives way to tyranny, while Superman takes the position that wow wow, I'm really sad and cross and I'm not going to tidy my room so there. After the events of the first game, Superman is in super prison until he jolly well does tidy his room, young man. Batman's trying to rebuild the world. Supergirl has turned up and is being misled by Wonder Woman, who had precisely none of Superman's motivation to turn evil, but did so anyway with about twice the gusto, because that's what happens when you let those slimy girls into the treehouse club, isn't it lads? And to this big ball of nonsense comes a new threat in the form of Brainiac, planet-destroying one-man Borg collective and classic Superman villain, named presumably by someone who assumed they were writing an escapist fantasy for little boys and not a gritty apocalyptic horror epic. Injustice 2 takes a stark realistic art style that makes the main cast resemble a bunch of mums and dads escorting their kids to the cosplay convention and getting a little bit too into it. The highly realistic faces are breakfasting at the ski lodge overlooking the uncanny valley, especially when Black Canary does her screaming attack and she looks more like she stubbed her toe on a coffee table. But hey, all the realistic graphics in the world would go to waste the instant a fight actually starts and the two characters start boinging back and forth like a pair of hyperactive grasshoppers playing British Bulldog, and yet the obvious effort that went into making things look arse-achingly authentic is contrasted against a distinct lack of effort everywhere else. It's obvious that they've simply taken the basic skeleton of Mortal Kombat X and slotted different characters in. It uses the exact same pre-fight banter script. Character A says banter, character B says response banter, character A gets offended, commence hyperactive grasshopper business. Same camera angles, same elaborate animations every time. Gorilla Grodd always produces a skull and crushes it when delivering banter line 3. Where is he getting all these skulls from? Is there a little off-screen monkey slave with a big bag of the fuckers. Also, I wonder if some of the choices of D-list character editions might have been affected by what assets Netherrealm already had lying around. We had Killer Frost last time and now Captain Cold, I suspect because they'd already made a load of ice effects for Sub-Zero in the last Mortal Kombat game, who incidentally is also getting added to this game as DLC, which is an act of supreme redundancy. That is at best putting a cherry on top of another cherry that already had a cherry on it. I worry this sort of thing is going to turn into what Guitar Hero turned into, but with characters instead of songs. If you're just going to use basically the same bloody framework every time, why even bother making entirely new games when you can just keep adding downloadable characters to the existing ones. That's pretty much how Mugen works. Perhaps I should keep my ideas to myself because I can faintly hear the sound of Warner Brothers executives hyperventilating. I'm still not a big fan of actually playing fighting games. It's for twitchy people who like inputting stupidly complex button combinations at very short notice, like a jazz pianist on myth. Tutorial doesn't help. Still got no idea what the fuck a bounce cancel is unless it's a surefire way to disappoint a children's party. I would think these five minute long super movies would break up the game flow rather drastically. Maybe fighting game fans appreciate having a little time out to sip their coke and reset all their finger bones. But you know what? I've come to appreciate fighting games as a sort of bare-bones exploration of characters. My favourite Batman villain is Scarecrow. Dunno why, maybe because his bits were the highlights of both Arkham Asylum and Batman Begins, maybe because I bet no one ever gets all up in his grill for not liking Smash Brothers enough, and I admit I got a kick out of playing as him in this game and going through his tower mode and ending. Of course, before I could do that I had to find the tower mode and they don't make that easy. It's buried right at the bottom of multiverse mode like a furtively stashed porn mag under a mattress. Multiverse mode, incidentally, is the method by which the game stacks up six or seven random unrelated fights.
websites and pretends you're achieving something. It's the long sought after missing link between gaming and data entry. The other main new feature is gear drops. Crack open your hard earned loot boxes and you'll be rewarded with a glove, a pocket square and a sweatband for Dullard Woman and Captain Never Used, which ups their flouncing ability by 0.1%. This loot crate shit is an indictment of the times, especially since it's always so bloody successful, but it's not like unlocking a fun alternative costume where the Joker looks like how he looked in landmark issue 537 of Flouncy Comics. Most of the gear does very little to change the overall look of a character. Most of Superman's torsos are just a hundred variations on a theme of blue jumper with lines on it. So in terms of what I want out of a fighting game, Injustice 2 is cloyingly stupid. Watching the story mode and its increasingly contrived setups for a conveyor belt of fights in the same six or seven locations is like watching a school play with an irresponsibly extravagant budget. And incidentally, did everyone just forget that normal humans can't beat up superhumans on equal footing, or is that one of those things we weren't supposed to notice? But you know what? Injustice 2 is like a puppy chewing a fire extinguisher. Charming in its stupidity, but I'd rather watch it on YouTube than have it in my house. It's been a long, confusing journey, hasn't it, Platinum Games, which funnily enough also describes most of your fucking releases. There have been some strange turns, Bayonetta 2 exclusive to Wii U springs to mind, that was like a fucking modern art installation being exclusive to the Etcher sketch, but Platinum Games has finally joined us in the sun. First Bayonetta 1 gets a Steam release and everyone went, okay, bit weird. We didn't particularly mind that being a console game, because it made it slightly easier to furtively hide when our mum bursts into the room. Why don't you bring out a Steam version of that shooter you made? The one that became a bit of a cult hit and that's now sort of hard to find. What, you mean Anarchy Reigns? <laughs> <laughs> no. Obviously we're talking about Vanquish, which is highly suitable for release on PCs partly because it's a high-octane cover shooter, and partly because the main character spends the entire game wearing one. Obviously no one told the Vanquish dude not to wear a pure white suit of armour to a grimy battlefield, by rights he should have ended up looking like the floor of a sharehouse bathroom. The plot of Vanquish concerns Russia being evil. It was a little bit quaint at the time the game first came out, but has since somehow come back around to being relevant again. They take over an orbital death ray station with an army of death robots, and blow up San Francisco in a humanitarian effort to combat rising housing costs in California. But America take it the wrong way as always, and refuse to surrender, dispatching a bunch of marines to the death ray station to take it back. The main character is not a marine, but an employee of DARPA wearing a very expensive DARPA-developed suit of armour, because it's not like DARPA develops tech to be used by the military. No, that's why every tank and fighter plane has to be piloted by the nerd who developed it. Shush now everybody, the thing is, we're not actually supposed to be taking this plot seriously. So it is a shame that the Russia aspect has gotten itself all inconveniently relevant. There's always an undercurrent of irony in Platinum Games' stuff, although it's admittedly slightly subtler here than it is in, say, Bayonetta, the woman who routinely has to clean small children out of her armpits after they mistake her for a roller coaster. The main character smokes constantly to maintain the stereotypical grizzled badass image, but I think he only does so so he can dramatically flick cigarettes away when he's about to do things, because I don't think he ever got through more than a quarter inch of one. He's partnered for most of the game with Robert Burns, famous Scottish poet and author of Auld Lang Syne, here reimagined as a nine foot shaved bear of a man who's so grizzled he can peel potatoes by rubbing them on his chin. And as for badass, his ass is so bad it denies the holocaust and fraudulently uses disabled parking spaces, so the two of them spend the entire game having an incredibly insecure grizzle off, the flashed young newcomer in his go faster stripes versus the cynical old timer wearing an entire double decker bus, down on their knees competing to see who can suck the most gravel into their throats. There's also an attractive female support character and whenever she's on screen the camera always seems to be one flicked cigarette away from pointing right up her skirt. It's all immensely silly stuff and par for the Platinum Games course. What makes Vanquish interesting is the combat mechanics. So obviously Vanquish set out to make a cover shooter but after looking up what those were it asked, do we really have to plop ourselves down behind little walls so much? We exclusively make fast paced games because we have the attention span of a moth at a fireworks display. Then, after they were firmly told that yes, plopping down behind cover is a pretty essential part of a cover shooter, Vanquish went, could we maybe have the character breakdance behind cover rather than plop? Oh and weird idea, rocket skates! Yes, apparently DARPA's jetpack research went nowhere so they've repurposed the tech to let you scoot along the ground like a fast forward video of a dog with an itchy bum, and most of the combat takes place in big wide open arenas so the emphasis is less on plopping down and more on dodging, changing position and managing your suit energy. Here's a little tip I discovered, if you switch weapons midway through a reload animation, the first weapon will be reloaded when you switch back to 
to it, in accordance with the principles of homeopathy, I think. Whatever, it keeps the pace up, but speaking of pace, one thing I could do without is the way you automatically go into slow motion when you're near death. Yeah, I know, it's to get yourself out of danger, but once you are, there's no way to turn it off again. So all you can do is let your suit energy run out and then pop a plop while you wait for it to come back. It's a bit of a pace killer, I thought we were avoiding plop. The last thing you want is for your game to become ploppy. I very much enjoy saying the word plop. Plop aside though, Vanquish's combat is generally a speedy and interesting take on the genre. What else has it got? What else? Damn it, we weren't prepared for this part of the interview. Quick, spawn 500 million identical robots. Yes, sadly, like a severely poorly maintained harp, the game's kinda one note. The entire thing takes place in the same environment, in probably oversized space station city that can't be bothered as much as throw a carpet down now and then, and you fight 10 million copies of the same robot that looks like a transformer that turns into a pink dildo. Everything that passes for a boss fight happens again at least twice, the story somehow gets from A to B while standing completely still, I sort of grasp that Burns doesn't care about innovation individual soldiers dying and the main bloke does, but demonstrate it another six or seven times just to be sure. At least he cares in cutscenes, not in gameplay because he's busy plopping. But hey, don't worry that the game doesn't evolve much because it's also really short so it won't bother you for long. All in all, if you're planning to buy Vanquish then make doubly sure you don't need the money for anything really important like medicine or a donation to the Republican Party because it kind of feels more like a proof of concept than a complete game. A concept proved, certainly, you can have a fun cover shooter while you glide around on your back the whole time like a prostitute on a highly polished dance floor, but the time to develop the concept into something a bit meatier has long since passed and now the game only exists is a sort of glimpse into a parallel universe where AAA shooters remember that video games are supposed to be fun. That aside, Vanquish is also a PC port of a last generation game. So let's take a moment now to share our favourite bugs. That one where you took double damage if the game was running 60fps must have been a nightmare for hardcore PC gamers, for whom playing at 30fps is apparently like trying to breathe with a plastic bag on their head. The measure I was given to correct the bug added a whole bunch of exciting new ones, like on one level I kept falling through the floor and dying before the screen had faded in. Loading screen, pause, hideous dying scream, reload, repeat. It was like playing a blunt dramatisation of stillbirth. So here was the conundrum I found myself in, listener. E3 has come around again, and without my usual roundup of the show, it may inflict that most insidious of modern diseases, optimism. But at the same time, I kind of want to review Friday the 13th The Game, which I've been weirdly absorbed by lately, and I don't want to put it off another week, so what do I talk about? This nihilistic horror experience in which a lumbering, faceless idiot endeavours to bleed numerous young people dry, or Friday the 13th The Game? That's when I realised the answer was staring me in the face. All I have to do is review E3 using analogies to Friday the 13th The Game. So with that in mind, let's run down yet another handful of shows in which highly scrubbed people with earpieces and well-trained speaking voices attempt to get as excited about games as hackneyed and unoriginal as Friday the 13th the game's map variety. What map shall we choose for the next round? The campsite on the lake, the other campsite on the lake, or if we feel like a change, the campsite on the lake but it's on the other side of the lake. In hardware news, Microsoft have updated Project Scorpio with a somehow even worse name, the Xbox One X. There's already two X's in Xbox, you dozy gits, this name is starting to look like a defaced game of tic-tac-toe, and I feel bringing it out alongside the Xbox One S is practically inviting the confused elderly relative on Christmas morning nightmare scenario, which never fails to be as disappointing as Friday the 13th the game's lack of an option to bind push to talk to one of the controller buttons. Anyway, the Xbox XXXX, an essential purchase for people who like buying all new hardware every fucking year and lack the level-headed common sense of a demolition derby contestant, has a bunch of numbers attached that are apparently larger than the numbers of other consoles, but who the fuck cares, it's the games that count. The only teased Xbox exclusive that gave me any kind of tickle squirt was Crackdown 3, and even that rang alarm bells because Terry Crews was in it. And celebrities just scream distraction tactic, it's as distracting as the tendency of certain public Jason players to get into character by narrating all their actions in a furious comedy bellow. I'd turn voice chat off, but then I wouldn't be able to hear my fellow teammates calling me a cunt for not having a microphone set up. What it's crying out for is some kind of emote system, like maybe I could make an icon flash over my head indicating things like, yes I have some car keys, or no I am not available for sexual role playing. Just like the Sony presentation was crying out for some games we didn't already fucking know about. Yeah, new Spider-Man game, trying too hard to be a Batman Arkham game yet a fucking gen. There's got so many quick time events it's like watching a Transformers movie while programming a microwave. Yeah, new David Cage game about emotionless robots 
with only vague ideas on how to act human. Fuck, great idea, David Cage, play to your strengths. Yeah, new God of War, which by the looks of it is 10% actual gameplay and then more cinematic set pieces than Friday the 13th has hilarious physics fuck-ups that make ragdolls bounce out of kill animations like they're just really excited to be getting a fresh start on their new life as a corpse. Old Man Nintendo had a better showing, although that Mario vs. Rabbids game makes you wonder if Ubisoft is trying to steal their pension checks. Fair play to them, Mario Odyssey needed a new angle and it found one. They've done Mario Becomes a Raccoon, they've done Mario Becomes a Cat, but they've never done Mario Becomes a Tunneling Brain Parasite. What is it about Mario Odyssey that screams Sonic 2006 at me? Must be the cartoon characters interacting with realistically proportioned humans, which is always faintly sinister, like Christopher Lloyd's scenes in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But fuck all that, because splice my urethra, Nintendo were working on a game entitled Metroid Prime 4. That's literally all we know, the title. This is where one of those shit game journalists would say, let's stay optimistic. But this is Nintendo we're talking about. They've shown a bigger grudge against Metroid fans than I have against playing as Jason's with a fast swim ability when you need to swim about as often as a cat made of soluble aspirin. So let's talk third party. Oh boy, another bloody open world action game featuring wilderness exploration and where the player can decide what approach to take, meaning they will choose stealth followed by direct assault after the stealth fucks up. And in the spirit of player choice, you may now choose what game I'm talking about. Far Cry 5, Days Gone, or Anthem. They really have given up on making gameplay videos that don't seem totally scripted. The people they got to voice the open quotes players of the Anthem open quotes gameplay video sounded like they were trying to unwind after a hard day appearing in David Cage games. And of course there's Assassin's Creed, emerging from its hiatus, waving its arms and yelling, we figured out where our incredibly cluttered unfocused gameplay design was going wrong. What people really want is incredibly cluttered unfocused gameplay design with the minimap taken off. Pre-order now for an exclusive golden bow with a fucking knob on the end or something, whatever. The annual E3 bet you thought we were hoping you'd forgotten about this award this year goes to Beyond Good and Evil 2. Although sadly all they had was a pre-rendered trailer which as we know only tells us three things, jack, fucking and shit. Speaking of which, what's with all the fucking profanity? It's funny animal people pulling merry pranks on cartoonish fist-shaking villains in an upbeat sci-fi universe. Seems ideal family-friendly fare, but everyone's effing like a sailor who showed up last for the queue outside your mum's house. It makes as much sense as Friday the 13th stamina mechanics. Standing under light makes stamina recover faster, what is Jason mad at us for drinking all his chlorophyll? Star Wars Battlefront 2 is pulling what's known as the Titanfall gambit, make full price multiplayer only game, add single player campaign to sequel then expect praise for it, like a player who wastes a shotgun shell on Jason in the first five minutes when there's nothing to distract him from. A Way Out is a narrative game that's co-op only. Oh you blighted industry with the long term memory problems of a combat focused player character attempting to repair the car. Linear narrative focus and multiplayer have never worked together. You can't get immersed in a story's universe when there's a human next to you acting as constant reminder of the real world. And that title is asking for trouble from snarky critics, A Way Out, I certainly wanted one. In conclusion, Friday the 13th the game is like most one versus group multiplayer games in that it's basically hide and seek with extra steps, but the core rules of it create enough effective suspense to draw me in despite its lack of polish and slight problem with random players acting like twats. Meanwhile, E3 has all the polish in the world and is a fucking twat safari. So that's the final comparison. Jason sucks down damage and hacks up kids, E3 damages kids and sucks off hacks. So E3 is over with, the summer now stretches out before us like the intestinal tract of a beached tuberculotic whale, which is the perfect opportunity to slam the door in Summer's face. Fuck you, Summer. All too hot and no games, and don't think I've forgotten about all that David Berkowitz business. I'm going to talk about a game that came out last month in spring before everything got fucked up. Strafe, a roguelite. Indie gaming has been beating the roguelite drum like it's a dusty carpet with the face of a cabinet minister these last few years. There doesn't seem to be any genre on God's green earth that someone hasn't thought of enhancing with procedural generation and permadeath. We've got roguelike dungeon crawlers, we've got roguelike space sims, we've got whatever the fuck 
the Binding of Isaac is. We've got roguelike Castlevania-style platformers, roguelike Mega Man-style platformers, roguelike straight platformer on the rocks. I hear there's even a roguelike investigative Lovecraftian horror adventure game by some jolly talented indie developer who certainly isn't rubbing himself through his trouser pocket as he types this. No, I don't mean Darkest Dungeon. Shut up. Strafe is a roguelike shooter that evokes 90s FPSs like Quake and Unreal and everything else that was low poly and brown like a very disappointing Rubik's Cube. It's a deliberateification of retro-style gameplay with a subtext of nudge-wink self-aware irony, and it's published by Devolver Digital, because of course it is. Even if it had tried to get published by someone else, Devolver Digital would have burst in the window dressed like a highwayman and kidnapped it, because this is very much Devolver Digital's shit. Devolver Digital breakfast every morning on a big bowl of pixels and a tall glass of the piss that it took out of something. There is a plot, in the same way that my cutlery drawer has a grapefruit spoon in it somewhere that I could probably find given an hour and some earth-moving equipment. It's something like, you're a space salvager type person and you've been down to some planet space station thing in a distant corner of the universe to find materials, and something's happened to the place and its occupants roughly equivalent to what happened to Sunderland after they started selling Diamond White in two-litre bottles. But honestly, what the game's about is what all those Quake-likes were about. Here's you, here's the level exit, and here's 500 grunting primates in Warhammer cosplay who are determined that never the twain shall meet. Fortunately, you have a shoulder-mounted murder stiffy with which to blow off all their arms and legs. I don't mind telling you, listener, Strafe has become my new unwindy game. A game that I can just sit down to at the end of a long three-hour workday and mindlessly play while I listen to a podcast or maybe some music that young people don't like. Which I hasten to add doesn't necessarily recommend a game. I mean, Euro Truck Simulator has been one of my unwindy games in the past and it wouldn't be my fucking BAFTA nom. Strafe's just a nice, nostalgic, comfortable place for me. It takes me right back to my youth, playing games like Quake and Duke Nukem 3D and Who Can Masturbate to Climax in the School Showers Without Mr. Trevor's Noticing. Straightforward point-and-shoot action, no fucking stealth, no fucking mini-map, and definitely no fucking pre-animated takedown moves. You see, you never kill only one thing in Strafe. Kill one thing and there's about 17 more things just around the corner who are all triggered by the sound of triggers being pulled, ironically. But if the intention was to evoke the mindless rocket-jumping fun of Quake, then that and the whole roguelike element combine like samosas and licorice. In Quake, self-preservation was always fairly low on the list of priorities. It went under killing the enemies, exploring the level, and using rocket explosions to hurl yourself onto the tops of doorways. And that's because in Quake, health packs are lying around like it's Christmas morning at the old folks' home, but in Strafe you can only restore health from the occasional sandwich dispenser that's as generous with its contents as an emetophobe on a desert island, and self-preservation is paramount. I think a more accurate name for Strafe would have been backpedal, because that's what you have to do every single time you alert anything. Most of the enemies are only programmed to make a beeline for you and start thwacking at your undercarriage, and the rest shoot slow-moving bullets, so the smartest thing to do is create distance, wait behind a doorway that can bottleneck them, and pick them off like a disgruntled Walmart greeter. For all the enemies you reduce to clouds of objects that look like they were removed from a sink trap in a kebab shop, it's hard to get a sense of abandon. Especially when you have to be twitchly looking over your shoulder constantly, either for acid-spitting traps mounted to walls above the door you just came through, or for one of the inevitable monster closets that randomly open behind your juicy arse. Funnily enough though, the hardest part of the game is probably the first part, when you're on tight corridor safari on board the USS Blind Corner. Get past that and you're probably in for a long run, as from then on the environments get more open and chances are good you picked up nine rocket launchers on the way that you forgot about. Unless of course you used a teleporter. See, a handy thing for a roguelike to have is some kind of permanent upgrade to work towards for the benefit of all future playthroughs. Fun as it is to bang your head against a wall, it only gets that little extra spice after the permanent brain damage. In Strafe you can assemble a teleporter for each level past the first that lets you start on that level rather than the default. So I went out of my way to complete the slightly esoteric steps required and successfully finished the teleporter to level 2, only to try it out next run and swiftly get my balls pulped, because I was trying to beat level 2 enemies with starting equipment. I was plinking away at one of them rock monsters like a lion tamer with a water pistol. So if you are looking for a bell end to the grindstone action power fantasy along the lines of Doom, or indeed Doom, you might be put off from Strafe, where the starting enemies will mob you like you're a kindergarten teacher with Pokemon cards glued to your ankles. But I'm somewhat into it as a roguelike, there's something very zen about losing everything you've been working towards because of a few careless mistakes and having to start anew from scratch, it's the same reason I set myself on fire every weekend. And what really makes Strafe for me is the little details, the scrappy visual design, the slightly dodgy gameplay choices, the elaborate secrets like the hidden Wolfenstein 3D pastiche, and the bunny hopping level. That's what evokes the freer, more experimental early days of 3D game development in the 90s, more so than any amount of rocket jumping. 
jumping. That's what gives Strafe the edge, the fact that it seems like it was crafted by flawed human beings with a vision in mind, rather than a genetically engineered boxcar full of human skin with an overfunded marketing department. Imagine my disappointment, listener. Hmm. Right, that's enough imagining, here's the real stuff. A new IP developed by some of the guys who worked on Painkiller, that's first person and has guns in and is called something that wouldn't look out of place as the title of a Jason Statham film, clearly this will be some terribly exciting action murder fantasy with huge guns perched on the end of a stiffy, big enough to impale an entire subway carriage full of eager milfs. Then I actually played it and found that the chest-thumping bellicosity of the title had misled me, and the only chest-thumping that took place was when the game thwacked me reproachfully across the nipples for wanting to kill things with the gun that it gave me for killing things with. Get Even is an odd mishmash of elements, the kind of game that can only be described with a sentence beginning with the words sort of and ending with the word thing, as in sort of stealth action adventure thing, or sort of sci-fi psychological thriller thing, or I sort of pulled my trousers down to show you my thing. The protagonist is named, and you might want to hold a fishing net in front of you or something because when you hear this your eyes might just roll out of your head, Cole Black. He's a grizzled mercenary type bloke who sounds a bit like Sean Bean making out with a fat angry dog. He spectacularly fails to stop a teenage girl getting blown to bits and then wakes up in an abandoned asylum. The world of video games probably has special sorry to hear you woke up in an abandoned asylum greetings card it happens so bloody often. With the help of a mysterious voice, Cole must use a third-party VR helmet to explore his own buried memories and piece together the events leading up to him not saving a teenage girl from being blown to bits. But nothing is as it seems in the abandoned asylum, as should be expected of any game that introduces total immersion VR as a concept and refers to itself as psychological in any way. So first you don't know if anything's real or simulated memory, and then you don't even know if the simulated memories are reliable, so trying to get your head around what actually happened is like looking for a fun-sized Snickers in a cat litter box. Get Even's gameplay suffers from a lack of discipline, as it indecisively wanders around the buffet table loading up its plate with spaghetti on one side, apple crumble on the other, and pouring popcorn butter all over it. It started off reminding me of Condemned a little bit, as we have to explore the rundown asylum holding up our magic video game smartphone with the functionality of a Star Trek tricorder, taking pictures of evidence, but this turned out to be not much more than a collectibles element for filling out Cole Black's scrapbooking projects. Then we introduce a puzzle element, where we use the thermal setting on our magic tricorder phone to follow an electrical wire to the correct fuse box, but I think this only gets used one more time in the whole game, and it's the point as to a fuse box I was about to use anyway, because I was already exploring every inch of the level to document every nondescript stain on the wall that's identical to every other nondescript stain except it makes the evidence detector go widdly-wee. Oh yes, and then a prisoner begs me to release him, and a bit of text comes up to none too subtly inform me that my actions will have consequences. Of course they will. Walking across a room has consequences. The consequence is that I'm on the other side of the fucking room. I know what it really means, that we're strapping in for some of that branching narrative bullshit. So a short ways in, when I randomly press an unlabeled button that lets all the crazy murderers out, I'm informed that I'm a bad person for doing so, and not randomly pressing the other identical unlabeled button that provides free breakfasts to poor school children and brings Scrambles the Wonder Dog back to life. So now I have to worry about my decisions mattering, until about two-thirds of the way through and we switch to a different character and they stop mattering. Christ on a camping weekend, I wish Get Even's game design would put on its own magic VR memory machine, relive its first planning meeting and try to remember what its core element was supposed to be. I feel like there must have been three teams, one working on a stealth shooter, one on an atmospheric horror game and one on an episode of Taggart, and they all had a big after-work sex party and accidentally put on each other's trousers. Because the combat element is strangely elaborate, considering that the rest of the game treats it like the vegan at the barbecue, you might reasonably wonder why there's combat at all when we're just exploring VR memories, but don't worry, the game has an explanation ready that it wrote down on a piece of damp toilet tissue. You're subconsciously trying to hide the memories from scrutiny, okay? And conjured up soldiers from other memories, or even books and films, Cole Black apparently reading nothing but Andy McNabb novels, which thinking about it makes a lot of sense. In reality it's just a weak excuse for throwing in token gameplay, but it's doubly strange that the game would rip its trousers squeezing the combat in, and then tell you off for engaging with it. It's actually got one or two interesting new ideas, like the gun for shooting round corners, and a whole lot of very uninteresting old ideas, like being able to sneak up behind dudes and pinch their buttocks to make them swoon with flirtation shock, but make use of either of them and the game browbeats
tweets you about it as part of the above-mentioned moral choice branching path thing. It's incredibly obnoxious because apparently nothing less than a complete ghost run will satisfy. No kills, no alerts. So when I'm spotted because the minimap lies about the length of the enemy's vision cones and the usual cock-up cascade begins, the voice in my ear droningly threatens me with the bad ending because it apparently reflects poorly on Cold Black's moral character that he can't conceal himself behind a blade of grass. One too many cheat days, I suspect. Yes, the game offers you the chance to redo the memories as much as you want until you do them right, and lays on the are you really 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 sure you want to continue prompts before getting the hammer of judgement out, but putting the effort in for the more positive outcomes would have required me to give a quarter cup of powdered bird shit for the characters, and that wasn't happening. There's a lot of acting going on in Get Even, which is not quite the same thing as acting. Acting is what amateur dramatics productions do when they've been informed there might be a casting agent in the audience. When I had pieced together the plot I concluded it was about a bunch of unlikable soap opera characters making long strings of stupid decisions, beginning with their haircuts and only going downhill from there. In summary then, Get Even is a bit of a mess. The fails to give its handful of interesting ideas enough room to grow because of the other 500 things it was trying to do. It was like someone tried to raise baby ducks in a bag of pick and mix. And besides, Cole fucking Black, you raise enough eyebrows naming your character Mr. Black without making their first name another thing that's black. Might as well have called him Edgewood Darkbottom. I have a revelation to make that may blow your little minds apart, listeners. Ready? I quite like Dark Souls. Phew, glad to have gotten that off my chest. It starts to weigh on me if I don't make it clear 60 or 70 times per week. And the indie gaming sector also quite likes Dark Souls, because if there's one thing it quite likes above all else, it's retro gaming. And high difficulty is associated with retro because of the arcade era when gaming was less art than rigged carny game with no prizes. So one of indie gaming's ongoing collective projects has been to translate Dark Souls gameplay to 2D, thus bringing Dark Souls and retro even closer, like a couple being hideously crushed into a pulp by a malfunctioning tunnel of love ride. Today I'd like to contrast two indie 2D platformers that are both taking this challenge from slightly different angles. Hollow Knight, a metroidvania, and Dead Cells, a roguelike. Dead Cells is still on early access, but Steam's a bit more stringent than it used to be about early access games being mostly done. You can no longer upload a bowl of rice pudding and promise to add the pixels later. So without further ado, let's run them both through the Dark Souls test. 1. Grossness of main character In terms of art style, Hollow Knight and Dead Cells embody the two dominant art styles of indie gaming. Hollow Knight has cutesy hand-drawn art straight from the student portfolio of someone with unrealistic career ambitions. Dead Cells has good old pixel art. But what matters is that an important part of the Dark Souls formula is that the main character has to gross us out a little bit, whether it be because they're dried up undead hollows as in Dark Souls, or dressed like they join their high school heavy metal poetry club as in Bloodborne. Hollow Knight's main character is a gross little insect, as are all of the enemies, all of the friendly NPCs, and about half the platforms you jump on, but the stark cutesy art style makes it more endearing than gross if in a Nightmare Before Christmas sort of way. Not only is Dead Cells in pixel art, which is slightly gross already because it makes everyone look like they've been fed through a chipping machine and reassembled, but the main character is a lump of snot on a corpse, which is what I call an admirable commitment to the grossness doctrine. Well done, Dead Cells, please don't touch me. 2. Unrelentingly bleak tone Again, Hollow Knight's cartoony, slightly Ori in the Blind Forest-esque style undermines the prerequisite Dark Souls tortured atmosphere similar to that of a very slowly sinking battleship with nothing to eat on board but expired Lunchables. It's just about the only thing that does mind. Like Dark Souls, Hollow Knight is a story not about the protagonist but about the world they're in. A story told largely through suggestion as we pick through the looming ruins and infested tunnels, piecing together the final moments of this doomed once mighty civilization and putting its tortured inhabitants to rest at long last. It's a sort of cockroach scuttling about the ruins with the other bottom feeders vibe. So if anything, making everyone literally an insect is cutting out the metaphor middleman a tad. Dead Cells doesn't give the same impression of telling a story about a place because it's procedurally generated, it'd be a very rambling story with lots of weird tangents that don't go anywhere. As a roguelite, it's very much emphasising gameplay and challenge over story and atmosphere, and you only get the sense of grim bleakness when you die after a particularly long run and realise you'll have to go through those fucking sewers again. 3. Minge-creakingly high difficulty Dead Cells, which you'll note sounds a tiny bit like Dark Souls if you get very drunk and say it in an outrageously racist foreign accent, is as we said a roguelite 
dies. And that means permadeath. It's not fucking about either, you have to start all over again when you die, right from the septic tank where the snot dribbles out. Meanwhile, Hollow Knight does the traditional thing where you wake up at the last bonfire, I mean bench. Actually I don't think it's explained why we keep coming back to life, I guess Dead Cells doesn't need to because we're snot and snot can only be truly destroyed by a Kleenex through the heart. Of the two, Dead Cells has the most Souls-like combat, by which I mean you can dodge roll. Dodge rolls is another thing that sounds a bit like Dark Souls if you put on a ball gag and beat yourself about the head a few times. You can dodge roll, shield, throw bombs and a lot of other things you'll forget about when you panic because you got mobbed by six dudes at once and their vicious attack particle effects. It's also got some shallow RPG elements and a choice of weapons, while Hollow Knight's choice is between using the starting sword or turning off the game and going out for a pasty. The character progression is very metroidvania, explore new places, find upgrades, so the difficulty curve tends to take sudden dips like a quadriplegic on an escalator, especially after you get the dash, slash enemy, dash away, it works as well for most combat encounters as it does in many real life social situations. It gets hard later on by requiring faster and faster reaction time, whereas Dead Cells has that Dark Souls quality that even the starting enemies can pulp you into phlegm if you zone out for a moment because you were distracted thinking about, I don't know, water heaters. 4. Exploration Hollow Knight is Metroidvania and Metroidvania is all about filling the map. What's weird is that you can't map an area until you buy a map from the map guy somewhere in the area, but the map's still mostly incomplete and you have to fill in the rest yourself, so essentially what you've bought is a piece of paper. You couldn't have brought one? Drawn a map on the fucking wrapper that your breakfast burrito came in? Well I suppose making us explore blindly for a bit keeps us on our exploration toes. Dead Cells, if anything, seems to be trying to discourage meticulous exploration. There are doors to extra bonus areas that lock if you don't get to them fast enough. Fuck you, door! Of course I couldn't get here in under three minutes. I passed by six tunnels on the way here and had to be extra certain that they all contained flashing red clawed death. 5. The Conclusion I suppose asking which game is the most like Dark Souls isn't the same as asking which one's best. In truth they're both nice little time killers, but on balance I prefer Hollow Knight as the more complete experience. Dead Cells does a better job at translating Soulsy combat to 2D, but it's like the coin-up arcade machine version. Hollow Knight's got the atmospheric world, the exploration, and perhaps most importantly the sense that we're not pissing in the wind. Dark Souls might be a poor choice of things to give the roguelike permadeath treatment because its monstrous difficulty is a means to an end. We come back and bang our heads on the wall because every chip that breaks off is another step of permanent progress to finally making a big enough hole in the wall that we can get to the candy shop, or perhaps more likely, the next wall. Maybe I've got roguelite fatigue, maybe sometimes when I assemble a Lego building I accept that a little brother might smash it up and make me start again, but maybe there are other times when I want to keep that Lego building so I can tape it together and shove it up my little brother's ass. Once upon a time video games were invented, thus rescuing the human race from not having video games. A short while later someone said, these video games are great and all, but they'd be even better if they were constantly reminding me of my rate of acceleration in standard earth gravity, and thus was born the platform game. A genre that ruled the roost for many years until it was sacrificed on the altar of 3D graphics. Turns out being able to fall off the front as well as the sides of the platform was the one step too far that would make platforming suddenly not fun. Lord knows people tried it anyway, Mario 64 was officially aged about as well as a herring under a floorboard, but during this confused transitionary period a little company called Naughty Dog, responsible up to then for a few nondescript titles like Keef the Thief, said hey let's see if there's a way to make a 3D platformer that doesn't feel like directing a kitten around an air hockey table, and if possible let's see if we can do it while climbing aboard Sony's massive todger and banking their checks for the rest of our fucking lives. And so they developed a 3D platforming system based around moving along a single axis, thus pioneering the concept of 3D, except not really. Great job, Naughty Dog, said Naughty Dog to itself. Now all we need is a plot. Okay, how about something like Sonic the Hedgehog meets actually fuck it, let's just leave it at that. So we end up with Crash Bandicoot, in which a mad scientist with nothing better to do with his time than pick on small furry animals gets decked by one of the furry animals who has acquired advanced offensive capability by putting on some shoes and spinning around a lot. In fairness, Crash Bandicoot takes it a step further than Sonic by putting on trousers as well as shoes, a look known in the cartoon world as the inverse Donald Duck. Crash Bandicoot came out around 20 years ago, a period that the ever-advancing nostalgia wave has recently crashed against with its usual tiresome predictability, so of course the first three Crash Bandicoot PS1 games have been remade in HD for PS4, which presents a wonderful opportunity for old gamers 
gamers like myself to recreate those wonderful screaming one-sided arguments we used to have about what does and does not constitute a collision. Crash Bandicoot 1 features Crash Bandicoot on a quest to rescue his girlfriend who has slightly disturbingly human sexual characteristics. The girlfriend mysteriously vanishes from all subsequent games for the obvious reason of wanting to avoid turning any more kids into sexual outcasts with DeviantArt accounts. Crash Bandicoot 2 features main villain Dr. Cortex sitting upon the unsophisticated but surprisingly effective plan of instead of trying to steal the power crystals, simply asking Crash Bandicoot for them. Which works for a while, because Crash Bandicoot isn't the sharpest witticism in the book of after-dinner speeches. Finally, Crash Bandicoot 3 pulls the old Masters of the Universe bullshit where the villain is revealed to have been working for another, more evil villain all this time, so now we can get to work on making that villain totally ineffectual and non-threatening as well. The Crash Bandicoot Insane trilogy is the Warts and All style of remake, stopping just short of having that special button that switches back to the old style graphics, largely for the benefit of people making comparison videos. It's precisely the same levels and music, but with a modern restyling, meaning that Crash Bandicoot is covered in that slightly creepy digital fur effect that makes him look like he was stitched out of bath mats. There have been some changes, you still have to smash every crate to get the gem for each level in an act of flagrant genocide equivalent to the Blood Diamonds Crisis, but now in Crash Bandicoot 1 you no longer have to do it without dying as well, at least in most levels. This does mean that at the end of each level we have to watch Crash being brutally beaten about the head with every box we've missed until he's prostate and weeping on the floor, which I suppose is motivating but is probably adding sadomasochism to the already exotic cocktail of fetishes you're giving to those DeviantArt kids. Now I owned Crash Bandicoot 1 on the PS1 and actually 100%ed it back in the day, before I had more games vying for my attention than Daniel Radcliffe has weird smelling fans, and as I played the remake and watched myself miss a ledge for the 14th time in a row, I became convinced that something fundamental had changed, besides dimmed vision and stiff hands from 20 years of self-abuse, and I'm led to understand that I was right. Mr. Bandicoot's hitbox is slightly more rounded than in the originals, making him slide off ledges easier, so it was only partly the wanking. It's a small change, but it becomes a big one considering how often you called upon to cross gaps the width of a gnat's labia shorter than your maximum jump distance. It's platforming focus after all, and combat consists only of spinning around and nudging things like you're looking for the toilet on a packed subway train. But perhaps the relevant question is not how accurately the insane trilogy recreates the Crash Bandicoots of yore, but how well the Crash Bandicoots of yore hold up in this modern spoiled age of quick saves, auto-aiming, and online wikis providing access to an entire global network of big brothers to get past the hard bit for you. It is easy to forget in our nostalgia madness that the games are pretty murderously difficult even without the edges sanded off the hitboxes. All three games are an adventure in completing the sentence that begins with the words those fucking, as in those fucking bridge levels, those fucking motorbike races out of nowhere, or those fucking chase levels where you have to run towards the camera so you can only see about two inches of the upcoming road, and hazards require reacting quicker than the amount of time between arriving at your girlfriend's parents' house and them starting to judge you. So to anyone considering the purchase, I counsel caution if you're only remembering the fun parts of the 90s, like the pogs and Saved by the Bell, not the control-annoying frustration or the dead princesses, but I think it's too easy to say we're all pampered by modern games that hand out pillows and rim jobs with every pre-order, not in the age of Dark Souls. The fact is, Crash Bandicoot's murderous difficulty is more often related to things other than skill, like the perspective for the levels where you travel into the screen, making it difficult to tell how far away the hazards are, and then your spin animation abruptly stops one millimetre from a stationary monkey and you lose a life because I guess the monkey was wearing contact nerf poison aftershave, and with the ability to look back from our enlightened 21st century futuristic utopia, what really was the point of that whole push for 3D gameplay in arcade platformers, considering that most arcade platformers these days have gone back to being 2D? You can't even say it was for looks, because early 3D was like rubbing a Lego dog turd in your eyes. Ultimately it made as much sense as grafting two extra legs to your butt cheeks. They have no sensation and you can't run properly anymore, but at least you can wear twice as many crocs. Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. My first idea for this episode of the Zero Punctuation Occasional Guide to Gaming's Most Voluminous Trouser Shitting Incidents was that we could all laugh at the virtual boy, tee hee hee. But that didn't feel too revelatory, you know. Nintendo's headache-inducing Mask of the Red Death didn't do so well. Then I thought perhaps we could all laugh at everything else Nintendo was doing at the time as well, tee hee hee. Because they stepped into more than a few potholes and the potholes were big and black. But then again, Sega was about to fall into some potholes that were bigger and blacker and also full of cum. So I did a bit more reading up and eventually threw up my hands and said, fuck it, let's all laugh at the entire fifth generation of consoles, tee hee hee. <laughs> 
Funny how the world of gaming was turned completely on its head by the incrementing of a single digit by one, that digit being the 2 at the start of 2D. If only they'd known that one day 90% of the indie games on Steam would be aping the 16-bit era, they could have just gritted their teeth, held on for 20 years, and been perched pretty as the perfect patrician of port pixel art, but no! Everything had to be 32-bit now, sprites out, first generation polygons in. There's no stopping progress, even if progress looks like double-bagged tiger whoopsies being jizzed out of a dead spider. It was a painful transitionary period when the old kings collapsed syphilitically from their thrones and the crowns were up for grabs. What really sums it up is that amid veteran companies that have been doing the console war thing for years, the eventual winner of the generation was the newcomer, Sony, a company best known for a thing for men to use while walking called a Walkman, and their station for playing things on, the PlayStation. Apparently Sony was the one doing all the smart thinking, even if their naming division wasn't. Nintendo went into the fifth generation with everything to lose. The SNES and the Game Boy had created a world in which confused elderly relatives referred to every gaming platform as Nintendos to the undisguised contempt of their children. Perhaps Nintendo had gotten cocky, that might explain why they tried to push a VR console 15 years before commercial VR tech was even remotely viable. That could only do red on black sprites and had no head tracking, so it was essentially just the experience of sitting really, really close to a broken TV. But let's not dwell on the virtual boy, that was just an experiment that got rather misguidedly over-promoted, and hey, experimentation is good, that's how we learn. How else would you know that you get sexually aroused from packing peanut butter into a dolphin's blowhole? Partly it was pushed to distract from the Nintendo 64 being delayed half a year, missing the Christmas sales, but that was small potatoes in the long run. The N64 boasted the most powerful graphics take of its time, and first-party titles that still to this day appear in best game ever lists written by nostalgia-blinded twats, who probably still eat children's breakfast cereals. The N64 had the power, the IP, and the good reputation, there was just one tiny little massive cargo container full of bat smegma sitting on the N64 railroad tracks, and it had the word cartridges written along the side. Cartridges did have merits, they load fast and are sturdy enough to still work after you smack your brother with it for asking for their turn, but the same is true of an articulated truck and you wouldn't pick up your dinner date in one. The age of the CD-ROM had come, which may well have been slower to load and stopped working if you used them as improvised weaponry, but in comparison, developing for cartridge was like chiselling the ones and zeros onto stone tablets, and third-party developers were turned off. Ultimately, the third-party developers would be the kingmakers of this generation. Capcom gave their old pals Nintendo the cold shoulder and showed up to the PlayStation's birthday party with Resident Evil. Squaresoft batted away Nintendo's attempt to hold hands so it could go behind the bike sheds with Sony and show them their knickers, aka Final Fantasy VII, but it wasn't just the Nintendo 64 strapped to the railroad tracks. Sega also saw the incoming PlayStation juggernaut, its driver blinded by all the moist third-party developer panties covering the windscreen, and had a little wee-wee squirt which led to them launching the Sega Saturn in the US four months early to selected retailers. But that squirt went right in their face because some of the not-selected retailers got pissy, so to speak, and dropped Sega from their lineup. This included Walmart, and so Sega lost the important shithead market. In the end, the Saturn's head start only let the PlayStation piss on the back of its head, but there were many factors leading to the Saturn's failure. Some blamed the cancellation of its one and only Sonic game, Sonic Extreme, which would have been the 3D Sonic to counter Mario 64. And yes, I think it's a shame we didn't discover early on that Sonic and 3D meet the way the German invading infantry met the Siberian winter. Perhaps a lot of later unpleasantness could have been avoided, but if you ask me, banking on a console mascot is playing the game by old rules that the fifth generation was in the process of rewriting. Mascots were part of the world left behind, the one that would be compressed down into a little comfortable nostalgic ball that Nintendo would wear on its head for the rest of fucking eternity, like a space helmet full of gummy bears. In a pivotal moment of technological upgrade, all the old established ways proved to be nothing but a necessary baggage that weighed the veterans down as the lithe new hotness ran up and took the gold. So congratulations Sony, you won the fifth generation. Here's your fabulous prize, several million snotty unpleasable fanboys that must now be kept in a state of constant satisfaction. Don't overdo the champagne now! Today, the console conflict is a three-party system. Well, two parties and one bloke chewing gummy bears in a space helmet. And of course, PC gaming, watching it all through high-powered binoculars from the roof of their giant money factory. But in the turmoil of the rise of 32-bit, it was anybody's race. And there was quite a field of the healthy competition we could do with more of nowadays. I didn't even mention the console I had, the Amiga CD32. The console was so good it had to be discontinued and declare bankruptcy after six months to give everyone else a chance. Then there was the 3DO, with its wonderful FMV games that made human flesh look like biscuit dough smeared in water-based lubricant. Or the Atari Jaguar, technically the world's first 
64-bit console. In that at least 64 people looked at it and said, well, it's a bit like a console, I guess. But what's with the controller that looks like a Genesis controller got knocked up by a pocket calculator? Hmm. You know, on second thoughts, healthy competition wasn't the right choice of words. Slightly run-down competition, maybe. Or how about competition that could probably get out of bed given a drip, a wheelchair, and the second coming of Jesus? You know, in this age of fear-mongering, populist takeover, increasing class divide, and Ed Sheeran cameos on Game of Thrones, a lot of people seem to take comfort in the fact that the mushroom cloud will probably drop soon and burn our eyes out while the radiation agonizingly dissolves us from the inside out. Well, it's a lovely fantasy, millennials, but sadly we're an infuriatingly adaptable bunch, and if nuclear firestorm couldn't save us from the Bay City Rollers, it's not going to save you from, discreetly Google's current Billboard Top 40, Imagine Dragons. You're probably just going to have to tough it out, but in the meantime there's no harm in a bit of wholesome escapism with Edmund McMillan's new game, The End Is Nigh. Edmund McMillan is a game designer forged in the old 2000s Newgrounds Flash game era when everyone was learning that lack of censorship plus extremely low barrier for entry equals an awful lot of super violent, poorly drawn cartoon games and animations about poo. Macmillan stood out by making such games as Super Meat Boy and The Binding of Isaac, actually quite well designed super violent cartoon games about poo. Macmillan's hallmarks besides poo include high difficulty, a simplistic but highly animated art style mainly centered around squashy blobs of flesh, an obvious enthusiasm for retro video games, and a grandiose apocalyptic sort of theme. So the end is nigh represents all of his squishy, blood leaking poo monsters coming home to roost, so to speak. It begins with a squashy blob of flesh playing retro video games before realizing he has to travel out into the grandiose apocalyptic world to make things highly difficult for himself. The game is a 2D platformer with much of Super Meat Boy about it, except slower paced and is theoretically an open world as opposed to Meat Boy's level-based structure. In practice though, each room is an individual challenge and there's not much point in coming back to each one once you have the bandage, I mean tumour, so it might as well have been level-based for all it mattered. Well I suppose you might want to come back if you get off on watching water balloons full of gravy explode, but there are plenty of places where you can enjoy that particular spectacle, such as every square inch of the fucking game. Hey look at me, world, I'm about to say that this high difficulty game is too hard. That's right, now you have a whole brain cell dedicated to me saying that and you'll never get it back. Yeah, genius, it's supposed to be hard, but a slower ramp up would be nice. Difficulty curve, not difficulty wall, not difficulty overhang, slick with eagle jizz. Feels like every time a new element is introduced it's demonstrated precisely once, and then we're immediately called upon to pixel-perfect tootsie jump off it with the exact timing necessary to miss a gargoyle's deadly swinging bell-end piercing by one-eighth of an inch. And if that's what you want, then I could recommend The End Is Nigh, as well as possibly hiring a therapist to work through your self-destructive urges. I like hard games, you know that, but The End Is Nigh is just isn't grabbing me, and I think it's because I don't get a sense that there'll be any reward for putting myself through the trials. I repeat pound my testicles with a hammer because I'm trying to save money on a vasectomy, not just for the sake of it. Super Meat Boy had stuff to unlock, a squashy flesh blob princess to save, a dizzying array of secret extras, a lively air of fun, and a varied palette of blood reds and poo browns, and Ender's Night just feels like Super Meat Boy with none of any of that. Your only reward is more, harder challenges. Fucking hell, at least Sisyphus was getting regular exercise. In brief, I don't think the Ender's Night has enough going on. I turn on, it goes, hello, everything's gone to shit. I'm shit, you're shit, the world is shit, why don't you come outside and see how shit it is and we'll continue to be whatever you do. And then I turn off the TV news and play the Ender's Nigh instead, which gives a very similar vibe, and I don't feel particularly motivated to stick with it. I'm not saying it needs to promise me chocolate buttons and snuggles under a rainbow, just something other than more opportunities to get remorselessly pounded like I'm a turd, it's trying to stomp through a shower drain. Moving on. I thought I'd better play something from the opposite end of the open world spectrum as well this week, if only to stave off the voices, and Steam obligingly belched up the rather ungainly titled Yonder the Cloud Catcher Chronicles, an open world crafty explory hoardy time wasty ooh nicey strokey animals game. The vibe I was getting from it was Harvest Moon by way of Zelda Breath of the Wild, build a farm inside a freely explorable sandbox world and help lots of people who are all perfectly alright, except they're missing five moose scrotums for their husband's sausage factory. Also, the art style reminded me of a Playmobil pirate ship I used to have as a kid, especially at the beginning when you're on a pirate ship, although thankfully this one didn't have the spring-loaded cannons with the projectiles that get lost in the carpet for the guinea pig to one day choke to death on. A ship in an intro sequence to a fantasy exploration game is of course equivalent to a helicopter in the intro of an action game, so naturally it's wrecked for no adequate reason, and we're deposited on a beach to start our quest. What was our quest again? Yonder the Cow Tipper Chronicles? Uh, pick up some stuff. Anything else? Uh, talk to those guys. I talked to those guys yonder and they told me to pick up some stuff. Well there you go then. I think the key phrase that sums up the yonder experience is, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? It is the final destination for every part
path you can take. You explore the island, find a hidden ore vein in a cave, mine it for copper, then you have some copper. What the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Oh look, a place where I can build a bridge if I bring it 20 sticks, 10 vines and a tube of prit stick. It leads me to an island with a treasure chest containing a vajazzling kit. What the fuck am I supposed to do with this? I think we're supposed to be setting up farms. So we search the land and find the places where farms can be built and build farms on them. What the fuck am I- Wait! Now we can find a wild cow, wave a curly whirly under its nose and lead it back to the farm to make it your cow. Okay, what the fuck- Ta-ta-ta-ta-ta! Now find an NPC whose face you particularly don't like and you'd like to go away. Feed them the entire contents of your fridge and they'll go off and run your farm for you. There, you see? Now you've got free milk coming out of the farm whenever you want it. And what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Look, if you like directions so much, maybe we could get you a fucking kaleidoscope. As far as I can tell, Yonder is a game about becoming the island's random crap baron on the off chance that some of the random crap will be required for one of the many fetch quests or crafting recipes that result in you having even more random crap. You can't even sell the random crap because the shops will only exchange it for different random crap. It's like dealing in fucking bitcoins. Honestly though, Yonder's main fault is a failure to commit. Either do the free exploration scavenger hunt or the farming sim because they don't mix well. One is about constantly moving on and the other sitting in one place, behind a cow, elbow deep in colon like the sorter at a punctuation factory. You creative auteur types never think about the damage your genre-defying games are going to do. Think of all those innocent shitheads in the 2000s who bought Killer7 because it was tentatively classified as a shooter and ended up tragically suffering independent thoughts and generally becoming better human beings. And now look, what convenient catch-all umbrella label am I supposed to put on Pyre, Supergiant Games? I suppose there's always action-adventure, but that's as informative as a 19th century sex manual. Oh, you want to think outside the box, do you? Well, maybe sometimes I like being in a box, because it's warm in a box and safe and sometimes they contain packets of cheesy what's-its. Anyway, Pyre is a new game from the creators of Bastion and Transistor, which in bold defiance of established pattern is neither isometric nor narrated by a bloke with a voice like melted chocolate dripping off a Darth Vader mask. So here we fucking go, Pyre is best classified as a visual novel, party-based, role-playing, three-on-three basketball simulator. Blimey! It's lucky no one buys games from physical shops anymore, because this would need a whole new shelf, and the label would be longer than the shelf. Buckle up while I attempt to explain this. In an oppressive fantasy kingdom, literacy is banned, perhaps the most sensible response to the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey books. You, by which I mean the player character, not the greasy unpleasant serial masturbator watching this, are a scholar exiled to the wilderness below the civilized world, who hooks up with a group of fellow exiles that need you to read a book they found that tells them about the secret rituals that have the power to free them from exile. For some reason, it turns out the rituals all involve going up against a similar group and competing to throw a ball into the other team's hole. If it seems like a rather contrived explanation for the three-on-three -three basketball thing, that's because it bloody well is. Oh yes, and during your Odyssey come basketball tournament, you attract several more party members, each representing one of the sentient fantasy races in a case of what we academics call the traditional Bioware bro buffet. Most of the game plays out visual novel style, all the action and dialogue in plain text while characters are represented by beautiful hand-painted cardboard cutouts on sticks, and that didn't bode well for me. I don't like visual novels much, because call me a ravishingly handsome stick in the mud with a great big cock, but I prefer my games to have some, you know, gameplay in them. But nevertheless, I kept playing, reached the first sacred basketball match and then went, never mind, let's go back to the visual novel stuff, less gameplay, less! I wondered what the fucking target audience for this game could be. The overlap between people who like fantasy visual novels and people who like NBA Jam can't be the biggest niche in the world. But I stuck with it, and after playing it all the way to the end, I think I'm prepared to say I like Pyre. Obviously I dropped the basketball difficulty to low, because honestly who gives a shit, but I should have remembered that Supergiant Games are pretty good at this whole interactive storytelling lark and scratch my scrawny scrotum if I didn't genuinely want to see what happened to these characters. We call it the Bioware Bro Buffet, but between this and Persona 5, Bioware seemed to be the worst at it. Again, I liked the Pyre lads a lot more than I did the Mass Effect Andromeda Burger King Kids Club, in spite of them only being still images that didn't make any effort to emote, or possibly because of. The turning point for me was when we reached the final climactic basketball match on the peak of Mount Globetrotter and the game goes, psych, only one of your party members gets to return from exile, you have to choose which, and everyone else pisses off home to rub gravel in their hair until the next basketball tournament, I mean ritual. The plot then continues with your chosen party member gone, forever, presumably happy, but you don't see or play with them again, and that's what makes the difference. In your mass erects and your flagon ages, you can be sure that all the losers who latch onto you like needy primary school children to the playground monitor are going to be stinking up your castle mooching off your fantasy unemployment benefit forever. And there's always going to be one or two losers who join too late who you never use because you
because you can't be bothered to get them up to speed with everyone else, but with the simple addition of us having to pick a party member to lose every now and again turns that on its head. Suddenly I had to level up Joe Scratchbum and Melissa Nosepick because the characters I liked, had spent the most time with and were the most effective on the playing field, were the ones I most wanted to set free. At which point they'll be happy, but I'll have to push through the rest of the plot with all the fat wheezy lads that I picked last. Things really melancholy up a notch towards the end when you realise basketball season is coming to a close and you're not going to be able to liberate everyone. I'd been deliberately hanging on to a couple of good characters just to keep the matches expedient and that was going to be an awkward conversation in the shower room. Supergiant games are always effectively melancholy through a combination of appealing art and sad music and there was a very real lump in my throat whenever an old hand disappeared forever into a new glorious existence as I tearfully made my way to the nearest pawn shop to flog all their gear for cash. On that note, it turns out there's not a whole lot of depth to 3 on 3 basketball, put ball in hole, that's the design document done in four words, so the token RPG elements feel a bit needless. Your characters level up and gain new buffs and equip items to give them buffs, but the only buffing that really matters on the court is the kind the janitor does to the floor. Yes, this is probably because I turned the difficulty down low, but an extra 25% damage Joe Scratch Bum does to enemies who've just eaten Mexican food or whatever doesn't add much when all you need to do is run circles around the other dudes for a bit, then put ball in hole. I was into the story, but frankly the actual basketball matches started to feel like an unwanted obligation. I very carefully planned the order I wanted to liberate my chap roster, and I didn't want my severely wanting capacity for team sports to mess with it. For you see, losing a match doesn't end the game, one of the NPC players might end up getting liberated instead of yours, and changing the entire course of the story is the kind of pressure I don't need resting on my ability to dribble. Maybe there could be some even easier difficulty setting that replaces all the basketball matches with two buttons marked win and lose, and if you still want there to be drama, maybe the win button could have a spider on it. Still, the fact that the story can keep going regardless of what combinations of characters have been booted skywards is testament to the writing on display, and if the writing is good in a game that's mostly visual novel, then wrap it up, Jose, because I think we're done. Supergiant succeed in doing the organically branching story thing by focusing more on characters and their interplays than the central driving plot. After all, a good story is nothing but the actions of characters, optionally intercut with the odd titty shot. Oh Splatoon 2, please don't think I've been avoiding you. I know I've been knocking off a string of indie games since you came out, and I already regret giving time to that Yonder the Child Toucher Chronicles or whatever it was, but the thing is, I get a terrible sense of foreboding whenever I do a Nintendo game. As I speak, there are fanboys just lying in wait to copy-paste one of the usual statements into this video's comment box, either, well this reflects his obvious bias against Nintendo, or how surprising that he liked it considering his obvious bias against Nintendo. Although to be honest, there was another thing making me particularly leery about Splatoon 2. The first Splatoon was Nintendo's first original thought since Pikmin, arguably. I mean, they basically took one of the standard Mario enemies and made a multiplayer shooter around them with a single-player campaign, reminiscent of the things that flake off a 3D Mario game when it combs its hair too vigorously, but even that I knew was using up Nintendo's entire creativity allotment for the next three decades of first-party games, and the added excuse of bringing the franchise to a new console made it an all-but-certain bet that I could review Splatoon 2 by copy-pasting my entire Splatoon 1 review and adding a few digs at the Trump administration. And again, I know exactly what you predictable comment section throat mongs are typing in response to this. What did you expect, Yardsey? Torturously bringing out sequels identical to the last game but with absolute best case like two new things is precisely what people want from Nintendo. Use my big Big Harry Balls as binoculars, if Splatoon 2 had evolved and elevated the franchise to a new peak, if it had been The Empire Strikes Splat, then no one would be saying to Nintendo, ooh what a disappointment, I was hoping for the same shit as before but with a number on the end. You see, sometimes if there's nothing else, a game can be brought down simply by what it is not, and Splatoon 2 is not much worth speaking of if you've got Splatoon 1. You start the game and you're back in the same squid city with the same player avatars distributed about the main square, with speech bubbles coming off showing what that player scribbled into the message window while excrementally bored one day. Interestingly, this time around I saw very few messages to the effect of, ooh Nintendo are great and I want to kiss them on the knob, which might reflect a bit of a societal mood shift, or perhaps more likely Nintendo are getting lazier about the message filtering this time. Actually, a lot of the messages I saw were related to furries for some reason. I have a fursona, hooray for furries, I wish it to be known that I'm a very unreliable dog sitter. Was there some kind of call to action in some dark embarrassing corner of the internet? Does a squid-human hybrid count as a furry, strictly speaking? Or is this just a case of any port in a storm until the new Sonic comes out and they can all whack themselves cross-eyed? Well anyway, I sped through those lads trying not to make eye contact and began my first match, and what do you know, it's the same sodding game! They took that little minigame out that 
that you played to pass the time waiting for the round to start, so I had to get by with thinking about rainbows and touching myself. But otherwise, yeah, you run around in arena, whittling all over the floor, and the winner is the team that whittled on the most of it. Sounds simple, but you'd be surprised how few players seem to be clear on that second part. The game match makes about as well as a Victorian orphan with severe frostbite, so I was going up against dudes all the way up to level 20, but I was still routinely coming up top of the list for most floor piddled on. Something's not right here. I'm notoriously shit at multiplayer, why are you all being shitter? Is it because you have an average age of nine and a half? But no answer came, because you can only talk to each other through a fucking phone app. Which is a risky move on Nintendo's part, because while fiddling with my phone I might decide I'd rather be playing Bejeweled, or that I could get pretty much the same experience as Splatoon voice chat by ringing up the local kindergarten and yelling that Santa isn't real. As before, there's a single player campaign which looked like it was hitting all the same notes. Hub world, collect local equivalent of Mario star at the end of each level, profound sense of a suffocatingly tedious repetition broken up by the odd do thing three times boss fight. I think it was the first boss that killed any interest I had in seeing the campaign through. It was a giant killer baker's oven containing murderous bread with angry eyes. I just don't see what that's got to do with any of the established themes of the game, those being ocean-going life forms and a slightly desperate air of 90s coolness. Octopi do not bake bread, nor could one picture Tony Hawk doing it. This Nintendo is why we don't design boss fights right before lunch. So I kicked the single player in the head and focused on the multiplayer modes this time around, and one thing that is new is a co-op mode where you and your team fight swarms of AI-controlled fish monsters in order to collect their eggs, which does rather throw up some questions about the inner workings of this post-human mutant squid society and what specific intentions our employers have for the unborn children of a militant underclass, but who cares, now we can buy new t-shirts to which none of the other players will pay the slightest attention. The fish rampage fetus abduction go round, while not really going anywhere, is a perfectly functional little distraction, but it's not that difficult and your ammo's infinite so I question the need for it to be co-op. All the other players can do is resurrect you, and their main role at all other times is to start the cocking elevator just before I've gotten on the thing. Also, it essentially reduces gameplay to bog-standard shoot the enemies while putting the whole whittling all over the floor mechanic in the back seat, which is supposed to be Splatoon's unique core. I think we can all agree, Splatoon, that nobody likes having their back seat whittled over. Finally, one thing I was privileged to witness was a Splatfest, a one-day event that left me very confused indeed. It started with a TV asking me if I preferred ketchup or mayo. So like any red-blooded Englishman, I chose ketchup over that insipid, colourless McChicken sandwich ruiner. I was then invited to battle it out against Team Mayo in standard matches, but after I joined one along with three other Team Ketchup kids, we were kept waiting about five minutes before the enemy team also filled up with Team Ketchup. This happened for every single match, which at first I put down to Team Mayo being as popular as a used tampon in a jacuzzi, but then at the end of the Splatfest, Team Mayo had won the most rounds. Where? I never saw a single Mayo molester. Did I just misunderstand the concept? The winner was whichever team won the most points against itself. I'm not sure if that counts as self-harm or masturbation. You know what, I kind of suspect it was a programming fuck-up, because I noticed one of the dudes in the opposing team on one match went by the name Agent Mayo, and it seemed unlikely that such a person would be ketchup aligned. Unless he was a double Agent Mayo, in which case watch your back, Agent. Team Mayo don't forgive turncoats. You can run, but they'll find you in the end. You'll be walking the streets of Rio one day, thinking you've finally lost them, when you turn around and BAM! Ruined chicken sandwich. Many games have attempted to simulate the experience of being insane. It's a tradition going all the way back to when Pac-Man used to ward off hallucinatory ghosts by downing fistfuls of pills, but none of the many video game depictions ring authentic to genuine mental illness. Eternal Darkness equated madness with thinking that you're sitting on your TV remote. Amnesia the Dark Descent just made the screen go a bit wibbly-wobbly, and the less said about Crazy Taxi, the better. But Ninja Theory are making a very serious effort to tastefully dramatise insanity with Hellblade Huuuuh's Sacrifice, a sort of equal parts hack-and-slash walking simulator about a primitive warrior pulling a Dante's Inferno on Viking mythology. Apparently, Ninja Theory even got in touch with some actual mental health professionals to make the portrayal of psychosis all the more authentic, and hopefully while they had them, also work through the deep-seated issues that made them do what they did to Devil May Cry. Hellblade Hoots at Sooner's Sellotape has also been referred to as an independent AAA game, so already the mental illness thing is coming across pretty well. It's got dissociative identity disorder down fucking pat. Anyway, the game opens with Senwa, who looks like an awkward high school girl drew all over her face with the blue whiteboard marker and tried to wash it off in the septic tank, paddling her way to the entrance of the Viking afterlife in order to rescue her lover, who I think was murdered by Vikings, but it's doing the standard walking simulator 
piece together the backstory through vague arty flashbacks thing, so it's hard to tell. To say nothing of the main character is two consent forms shy of a gangbang and might have imagined all this and is actually carrying around the skull of the local milkman thing. You know, it's just occurred to me that what with this game trying to do a very serious portrayal of real issues that affect real people's lives, taking the piss out of it might make me look like a dick, which is ironic I think because a dick is a thing that piss comes out of. But then I remembered, oh yeah, I've got a mental illness, phew. That means I'm fully within my rights to say that Senua's constant boggling at the camera makes her look like a fainting goat setting off a security light. This very serious game about serious issues takes itself way too fucking seriously. And before you start clipping out that statement to make a hilarious dance mix out of it, obviously I wasn't expecting custard pies and a laugh track. What I mean is Hellblade Hoot Selena Scott's attempt at po-facedness is let down by the fact that the main character looks like a blue-tinged dork and apparently took acting lessons from the scenery chewer's guide to milking it. It's like she's only got two settings, urgent deer in the headlights frightened whispering and furious defiant screaming with teeth clenched together like two piano keyboards in a sleeping bag. But let's put Senua herself to one side, after all that's what the camera does. Bam! Masterful link. The core gameplay uses a Resident Evil 4 style chase camera as we explore various deserted non-specifically mythic landscapes looking for the fucking gameplay. There is combat, it just takes a while to find it. And incidentally, if anything's going to undermine the very serious message about mental illness more than me comparing the main character to various woodland creatures, it's a bog-standard and faintly annoying hack-and-slash combat element that appears as if by magic every now and again before vanishing just as abruptly, like a sleeping car park security guard intermittently waking up and pretending to work when they think their supervisor's around. So every now and again you'll get locked in a room and gigantic hunky vikings will keep spawning in until Senua works out her issues on their hairy nutsacks, doing the usual light attack, heavy attack, dodge, block, counter, calypso. And it does feel kind of token, like it was thrown in out of a sense that it had to be there for it to be a video game, or to justify characterising Senua as a warrior when I think the premise would have worked perfectly well without that element. What does work pretty well is the whole mechanic where a door won't open until you find a rune in the nearby environment by standing in a specific spot and looking at, say, a tree, a fence post and the post-mortem erection of a staggeringly well-endowed corpse so that they line up into a rune shape. That's a very fitting gameplay mechanic for the theme because that's basically a sign of paranoia, interpreting secret meanings and significance where none may truly exist, like when you hear a dog barking and take it as an instruction to gun down your neighbours, presumably given in a Scooby-Doo voice. Narrative and gameplay work together, so aside from everything else the combat element is tacitly associating mental health issues with kill-crazy violence, much the way I did just now. And isn't that kind of reductive? But I haven't even mentioned the other major gimmick of Hellblade <laughs> sausage sizzles, which it gradually informs you of right after the combat's introduced. If you die too many times throughout the course of the game, it'll delete your progress. Now, from a purely gameplay-focused perspective, this is of course the worst idea since Hitler's dad started taking fertility medicine, because it's effectively punishing the player for requiring a normal learning curve. But from a narrative perspective it makes a lot of sense, because it is the sort of thing that could potentially drive me completely up the wall. And you have to admit, it's a ballsy fucking move, at least on the surface. In practice, don't be too put off by the prospect, because I died in the combat precisely once in the entire course of the game. You can instantly block or dodge anything they throw at you, and even if they knock you down they all stand around swapping workout tips, waiting for you to mash the button that makes you stand up again. I died a bunch of other times and actually came worryingly close to the limit, but that was from a very annoying section where you have to run from light to light, because hanging around in the dark too long makes you die of, um being extra insane somehow. Which is just as irritating a mechanic as it was when Metroid Prime 2 did it. I had no idea mental stability was solar powered. But yeah, the combat's no threat at all. It's actually pretty boring, since every enemy has way too much health and you've just gotta slash them left and right for a while like you're greasing up a fireman's pole. On the whole I feel like Hellblade <laughs> Salty Sardines is trying a bit too hard. Setting out with this notion of making some terribly worthy game about mental health and then undermining itself with overblown performances and a main character whose backstory is so cartoonishly fucked up that the biggest challenge of the game is finding something to identify with. And then there's the combat that feels like it's fully aware of its completely obligatory nature and has resolved to put in as little effort as possible until it gets fired. By itself, the mental health thing was a nice idea. The Norse mythology thing was a nice idea. The hack and slashy thing was a- well it might have killed an hour or two if I were bored, drunk and paralysed below the waist, and the permadeath thing was certainly a thing. But throwing all of those things in creates a game kind of at odds with itself. So I guess it really does capture mental illness. All it needs is a Lexapro prescription and a tendency to vote third party.
Riddle me this, my little colostomy bags. What do you do to follow a series like Saints Row, the anarchic adventure in escalation that in the course of four games organically went from a humdrum crime sandbox to a load of hilarious nonsense about the President of the United States being competent? Well, you'd probably start by picking up all the sweet wrappers and energy drink cans it dropped, but then what? Another sequel? How are we going to escalate this one? The President has to fight two evil alien space empires? During a skiing holiday? Wearing a silly hat? No. Saints Row escalated to its final gushing purple orgasm and it's time to move on with a new IP. Oh, said Volition. But we can still make it a shooty drivey sandbox, can't we? Of course, Volition. After all, it's what you know, and there can never be enough sandbox games, apparently. Can we put some characters from Saints Row in it? I don't see why not, Volition. Cameos and callbacks are fun and rewarding for the long-term fans, and only mildly annoying for everyone else. Okay, can we use the same logo as the Saints Row games? Volition, you seem to be having trouble grasping this moving on concept. Come up with a new theme. What's another thing you're interested in? Uh, we quite like Saturday morning cartoons. Of course you fucking do. And so we have Agents of Mayhem, a cross between Saints Row and G.I. Joe. A Saints Joe, if you will. And possibly the first ever example of a single-player hero shooter. The connection to the Saints Row series is a little bit weird. Pierce and Johnny Gat both show up, but have completely different backstories. So I'm going to say we're dealing with an alternative universe where the Third Street Saints either never came about or aren't as protective of their branding. The story is, a highly organised high-tech terrorist group, consisting mainly of colourful characters with silly nicknames, tries to take over the world, and in response, a heroic high-tech counter-terrorist group is formed also from colourful characters with silly nicknames. All of this is established with little cartoons, in case you hadn't quite grasped the Saturday morning cartoon influence. Meanwhile, the actual gameplay takes place entirely in the ultra-modern city of Seoul, South Korea, which the baddies have targeted for particular punishment. That's a bit insensitive, considering the current geopolitical situation. That means I may, before this video goes out, have to change the above line to the nuclear-blasted hellscape of Seoul, South Korea. Anyway, after the usual induction, I'm dropped into the sandbox and Agents of Mayhem unrolls its full city map for my perusal, whereupon I get up and check behind it to make sure it's not folded up or something. Where's the rest of it, Volition? Don't tell me it all got broken off by nukes. No, wait, hang on, I get it. There's more than one city. It's an international terror group, so after we wrapped up the three or four things to do in Seoul, we're going to head to Rio or Milton Keynes. Phew, thank goodness it's not just this one embarrassingly titchy little map that would draw sniggers in the sandbox game locker room. Why are you giving me that hurt look, Agents of Mayhem? Guess this is what we're stuck with, but hey, on the other hand, I've often thought sandboxes can be too big, especially if all they're doing is putting a commute between missions, and it'd be more expedient to keep things tight and jack up the encounter rate per square yard. And this map certainly is tight. It's tighter than a virginal prom queen from a very Christian family with severe cash flow problems. Volition do seem to like getting their money's worth out of their sandboxes. They made the Saints Row 3 map last for three fucking games, like a man wearing his underpants inside out. So don't worry, Seoul is packed with enough car races, foot races, and random battles to make you go, oh, this isn't terribly original. And of course, there are the inevitable outpost takeovers that make all the icons appear on the map, a grand total of about three of the buggers. But sometimes the enemy retake the outposts and you have to re-retake them, which I suppose is functionally the same as a game with seven or eight arse-achingly identical outpost-taking missions, paging Dr. Ubisoft. But I do think it's odd for a game that's otherwise so economical with its content to include the ability to steal cars, considering that A, you can spawn your roided-up agency supercar at any time, and B, every civilian vehicle in the game is a rather humiliatingly slow bubble car that handles like a fucking Roomba. I suspect it's only there because it's the sort of thing one expects in a generic city sandbox, like race missions, an easygoing attitude to vehicular homicide, and lampposts held in place with fucking lollipop sticks. The phrase economical with content was my thoroughly diplomatic way of saying repetitive. Seems like every bloody mission involves going to the same secret underground enemy base as always and shooting everything in it. How the fuck did they build them all? Tell the South Koreans all the rumbling of earth-moving equipment was actually the gentle patter of North Korean missile tests. Everything to do with the city feels like a generic gameplay fest whose primary purpose is to provide a rich vein of grinding in which to build up all your characters, the core element around which all revolves. We acquire XP to level up and improve their stats, we complete missions to unlock new gadgets and legion tech to improve their abilities, we find the hidden crystals to activate their super abilities, although I fully unlocked all of them and still had about 20 crystals left over so I guess the mayhem base isn't going to be wanting for paperweights anytime soon. Essentially it's a game about unlocking all the dudes and finding your favourite combination of dudes to play with, while relegating your other dudes to the Assassin's Creed-esque off-screen missions, which really 
really don't take long enough, usually around 5-10 to 10 minutes, about enough time to go down to the sandbox and commit one parking violation before it's time to go back to base, collect the reward and set off the next one. The trouble with levelling up our characters as a core mechanic is the question of why we're doing it. To get better at the gameplay? The gameplay whose purpose is to let us level up characters. Where does that end? Are we supposed to be doing it because we like the characters? Well, there's the fucking rub, isn't it? As I said, Agents of Mayhem is a single-player hero shooter, and I think hero shooters are usually multiplayer for a good fucking reason. Multiplayer is an infinite gameplay model in which story is a bonus. Yes, I'm sure the Overwatch wiki would regale me with a story if I ever reach a suicidal level of boredom, but in the game itself, all context is just a splash of colour on a stream of cathartic time-wasting. A single-player campaign, on the other hand, is a journey, in which characters need to show off something more than a gimmick and or extremely broad national stereotype, and dividing that journey between 12 or 13 protagonists doesn't give us room to get attached. Their character arcs consist of two optional missions each, there are ninth tier pro wrestlers with better development. Can we ask much more of a game modelling itself on an artistic medium that existed mainly to sell action figures and lunchboxes? Well yes, lunchboxes for a start. So you may have heard there's a new Sonic the Hedgehog game out, you may also have heard certain people say that it's good, slightly inarticulately through mouths muffled by fursuit fabric and cocks, but maybe you're a savvy consumer who recognises this for the usual beginning of the Sonic game post-release cycle. It always starts with the Sonic fans going, it's good, Sonic's good again, fuck you mum, I was right to paint my tits blue and wriggle around on the Chesterfield. But then as the weeks unfold, reality inexorably sinks into the resistant minds of the public like a lead weight on a jelly. Well I guess it wasn't perfect, room for some improvement, quite a lot of improvement actually. Still better than Sonic 2006, actually you know what, let's just stop talking about it. Holy shit, they announced another Sonic game! Mum, buy more blue paint, this'll be the one! So savvy consumer that you are, you've come to me for the brutal lowdown. Well, first of all, there's definitely something different about Sonic Mania, which might be something to do with Sonic Team's logo being conspicuous by its absence, amid a dense cluster of developer idents I'd mostly never heard of, and thus did my subconscious scream out the words, elevated fan game. Sonic Mania is a deliberately nostalgic sightseeing tour through several old Sonic games, which was also the premise of Sonic Generations, which did it as part of the Sonic franchise's much needed effort to figure out what the fuck's been going wrong all these years. You may recall that Sonic Generations rather ill-advisedly attempted to celebrate the latter-day Sonic games as well, which came across like a toddler beaming with pride at you because they managed to smear a turd all the way across the playroom wall. Sonic Mania isn't making the same mistake and is only concerning itself with Sonic games that can be uncontroversially described as good. Unsurprisingly then, it's entirely 2D and looks like a Sega Genesis game. Still, the commitment on display is admirable, there are bits and pieces from Sonic 1, 2, 3, and Knuckles, Sonic CD, there's even a bit where you have to play a round of Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, which feels rather drastically out of place, but we made a pledge to reference every 16-bit Sonic game, and by Tails the Fox's implied second butthole, we're damn well gonna do it. The plot is a little bit hard to follow, but anything else might have required the characters to have spoken dialogue, so let's not mess with success. It's basically the usual arrangement. Dr. Robotnik steals the magic gems, decides to individually store them in abstract racing challenge levels rather than buy a fucking safe. He could at least store them in challenge levels that don't play to Sonic's strengths, like a bake-off or a cryptic crossword. Still, say what you like about Dr. Robotnik, at least he's a hands-on employer. A lot of managers would delegate the boss fights, but not him. He wouldn't ask those kidnapped and enslaved baby rabbits to show more faith in his contraptions than he's prepared to demonstrate. Anyway, Sonic Mania consists of a handful of original levels packed along faithful recreations of old ones visited through some hand-wavy time travel flappery, albeit zhuzhed up with extra features and more elaborate boss fights. But this is where the prickly spider of modernity starts to venture from beneath the comfortable toilet seat of nostalgia, because a fancy elaborate multi-stage boss fight is all very well if the level didn't have a ten minute time limit, and we hadn't already spent nine minutes of that getting boinged up the wrong tube over and over again. See, I don't remember the ten minute time limit ever being much of an issue in the original games unless you were in the casino night zone and had a compulsive gambling problem, but in trying to impress us, these extra long levels have suddenly made it a problem. The new boss fights are of a more modern style in that they gleefully piss you about, making you wait for the brief vulnerable moment, when as long as you could reach the buggers, you could bounce on the old boss fights at your leisure and bring them off with eight well-timed thrusts. Besides that, it's an almost totally faithful recreation of a Genesis Sonic game, but that being the case, why was I finding it so annoying? Could it be that a popular retro game from the 90s might actually have been more dodgily designed than we thought, and at the time we were all blinded by lack of alternatives and its obfuscating air of 90s tood? Help me out here. Why exactly was there an arbitrary ten minute time limit on every level in the first place? Was it just because adding an extra digit to the on-screen 
between time I would have been a bridge too far for the Genesis processor, I'd like to digress if I may and examine the old Sonics from which Sonic Mania takes inspiration along with several hundred art assets. The very first Sonic game, Sonic the Hedgehog, back when he still went by his full name and before the title of every single game was the word Sonic followed by whatever was on Sega's Word of the Day calendar, things were a little bit wobbly straight off because we hadn't quite come to terms with the whole gotta go fast remit. It was still a little too mired in the general standards of what a platformer was, a little too much accurate jumping in cramped hazardous tunnels where the only people who gotta go fast were the profoundly bored with life. That underwater ruin level in particular was like having to push a tomato through a tennis racket. Sonic 2 and 3 and, and Knuckles brought the going fast and the obligation thereof to the forefront. You were traversing huge sections of maps so fast you couldn't tell where the fuck you were going and you were afraid to press anything in case you accidentally jumped up the dilated exhaust pipe of a giant robotic arse. And what lets these games down and by extension Sonic Mania is that the levels are very annoying to explore. Easy to get to the end of, sure, just hold right and press jump every time you stop going right. But if you want to explore, and spoiler alert you do, because that's how you get the Chaos Emeralds and avoid the post credit screen with Dr. Robotnik provocatively waving his bollocks at you, then you have no way of knowing if a given path will take you to some lovely secrets or will lock you into a gun barrel that fires you halfway across the map through nine loop-the-loops and the intestinal tract of a whale before slamming a point of no return door shut behind you with a great big middle finger painted on it. This is one thing the first game got right, get 50 rings by the end of the level, bam, secret stage. Having to find the secret stage is like finding a speck of lint in a candy floss machine. Alright, well before all you fanboys start impotently tugging at my jumper while making noises like the last squealy fart of a dying manatee, yes, the Sonic games are rightly well regarded for their characteristic style, the whole drop the rings thing is actually pretty ingenious design and hauntingly familiar to those kids who used to get their lunch trays knocked out of their hands by school bullies, but that style was definitely papering over some cracks. I wish they'd picked a jump sound effect that didn't grate as much after a while, like the sound of a set of bagpipes being dragged across a chalkboard. Nintendo, what the steaming cross-eyed fuck is this? I'm still trying to get my head around it. A crossover between Mario and Raving Rabbids using turn-based XCOM-style combat? What is this, a fucking Mad Lib? Or did someone lose a bet? If only you'd won the beer pong tournament at the last game dev party, Sony would have had to develop a city management sim starring Crash Bandicoot and Pyramid Head. Look, I'm not ragging on you for doing something unexpected, I applaud that. If you only ever gave people what they asked for, every game would be an identical fucking multiplayer hero shooter with a range of unlockable nipple tassels. But when you set out to partner up with Ubisoft, was Raving Rabbids honestly the best option to cross over with Mario? I mean, the Assassin's Creed series is also frequently based around jumping on people and already has a bunch of comedy Italians in it. Tell me you couldn't picture it, Mario in a little assassin robe, jamming a wrist spike into an unsuspecting Koopa Trooper to make coins fly out. My point is, when was the last time Raving Rabbids was raving relevant? They haven't had a non-iOS game in years since those minion things ripped off their entire shtick, but it was never much of a shtick to begin with, was it? They look funny and run around hurting themselves while making high-pitched mouth noises. In a startlingly insensitive depiction of the mentally subnormal that wasn't particularly funny when the first medieval court jester did it, but three-year-olds and the inbred kings of 11th century Europe dutifully laugh and clap their hands and so such things persist. My point is, rabbits are complete non-characters, but here they are sharing equal billing with motherfucking Mario. That's like a political marriage between the Prince of Denmark and the daughter of an up-and-coming sausage manufacturer. And then I guess you hold the wedding in the fucking Sea of Tranquility because neither Mario or rabbits have ever been associated with strategic gun battling. And more to the point, three-year-olds and inbred monarchs probably wouldn't have the patience for it. Well, let's not spend five minutes boggling at the premise alone. The execution has lumbered up and rested its deformed skull on my workstation, and now it's up to me to tell it if it's ever gonna be a real boy. The intro spends just a bit too much time establishing the incredibly contrived series of events leading up to the crossover, so I'm assuming Ubisoft had the larger hand in that side of things. If it had been left to Nintendo, it would have been Mario and Rabbids meet in a field, Bowser kidnaps Princess Peach, and here's some horrible motion controls we're not gonna let you turn off. Basically, someone invents a device that combines two things into one thing, Rabbids randomly show up and nick it, and the lab is for some reason full of Mario action figures, and for this reason they all get teleported to the Mushroom Kingdom where Mario and Princess Peach are going through the tense motions of yet another day of meaningless royal ceremony.
ceremony and passionless pity sex. Mario and chums must then restore order by murdering all the unwanted foreign immigrants with the aid of some rabbits who have dressed up like Mushroom Kingdom residents to show their willingness to collaborate with the Peach Administration's genocidal atrocities. And everyone gets a gun somehow. I warned you it was contrived. You may notice that at no point did I mention Princess Peach getting kidnapped, because this is one of those rare occasions when she gets to be a party member with some appropriately twee skill, like group healing or umbrella floating, or in this case wielding a giant explosive close-range death cannon. Somebody asked me during the week if the rabbits actually add anything or if it might as well just been a Mario game. Well they do if you are one of those people who find it eternally amusing when someone's eyes are far apart and they go boah a lot and you're no longer allowed in the Down Syndrome Center. But the same question seems to have haunted the developers. There are eight playable squad members, Mario, Luigi, Peach, Yoshi and rabbit equivalents of each, and only three to a squad, so what if the player only uses Mario, Luigi and Peach the whole game? It wouldn't be Mario and rabbits at all. Then it'd just be Mario murdering rabbits and we've been skating on thin ice with the racism thing ever since we gave Mario an outrageous comedy Italian accent. So the game flat out forces you to put at least one rabbit character in your party. No explanation is offered, the game just greys out all the home team Mushroom Kingdom lads if you've already got two. So if you want to team Luigi's long range focus with Peach's short range superiority, then you can eat feces fettuccine, my friend. This might be the first example of a gameplay mechanic introduced solely for the sake of the contractual obligations of its characters. But let's take that initial question a step further, matey. Does it being a Mario game actually add anything? That business with giving Princess Peach a giant shotgun implies that it is basically just an XCOM combat engine with Mario art assets stretched over it, like a lunchbox or children's bedspread, for Mario is now merely a brand, a Windows desktop theme, and if adding Bayonetta to Smash Brothers didn't already tip you off to this, today's Nintendo demands integrity and consistency only of its quarterly income. But none of that should get in the way of your enjoyment of the gameplay, which should appeal to anyone who ever watched their last surviving XCOM squad member hold a shotgun six inches from the face of an alien berserker the size of the cliffs of Dover and somehow miss. Here it's nicely straightforward, if they're in range and out of cover and you haven't mistaken your gun for a giant uncomfortable suppository, then you're guaranteed to hit. And the warp pipes and jumping abilities give a full range of ways to get into position, you're not stuck creeping your squad forward bit by bit, slamming on Overwatch like it's the snooze button. But as much as I appreciate the simplifications, I'm on the record as enjoying XCOM combat and by the end of this sentence we'll be on the record as not enjoying this very much. The difficulty gets annoying after a while, possibly because we unlock new better weapon upgrades with each victory but I couldn't always afford them, so there's a subtle obligation to grind, as well as some very unsubtle ones, like when your path is blocked by a huge sexually aggressive panda and the game goes whoops you'd better replay this level after you unlock the Chinese zookeeper's wanking gloves. But also in XCOM there's a constant sense of discovery, from both revealing the current map and our ongoing understanding of the alien threat, whereas I feel like we go into Mario games with everything pre-discovered. I'm going to assume Bowser will be involved, and in the end Princess Peach will refuse to put out. I'd also like to note that XCOM made me actually give a shit. Evil aliens trying to kill us all when we'd rather not be killed, thank you very much. Here it's just, there's rabbits and they're generally bringing down the whole tone of the place. Again, it's designed by contractual obligation. I'd like to ask for slightly more motivation than propping up Nintendo and Ubisoft's failing marriage. I had a terrible sense of foreboding from the prospect of Destiny 2. Maybe it was the way I looked it up on Wikipedia and every bloody paragraph started with the words just like in Destiny 1. I felt like I had enough to go on right there. Oh boy, another installment of the game so emblematic of everything that's wrong with AAA games these days that if you stuck pins in it then all of AAA gaming would get twinges in its back. Another fucking Skinner box drenched in grandiose scenery to distract from the fact that it's got no fucking gameplay ideas beyond go to place and shoot the lads over and over again, and no real story beyond here are some lads who deserve to be shot after you have gone to the place. Don't forget to pre-order for your bonus golden catsuit and matching staple remover, although we're gonna reward you with new bits of armour every time you successfully shoot a certain amount of lads, the way one rewards a budgerigar with yummy millet seed every time it climbs the little ladder and rings the little bell, so your physical appearance is gonna be in a state of constant flux like one of those suits from a scanner darkly, but even if it wasn't, every character is over-designed to the point of meaninglessness, so you can't make any kind of mental attachment, which will hopefully pay off in a couple of years when we want you to stop playing this particular Skinner Box and buy Skinner Box 3, The Return of Jafar. But let's not preemptively write off Destiny 2 like a prom date who picks us up on a riding lawnmower. Besides, it's either this or Knack 2, or asphyxiating myself to death in my car, and since the neighbour borrowed the hose pipe, I'm stuck with this. Destiny 2 returns us to the wonderful future Earth where humanity is watched over by a giant cue ball with a vague understanding that it's benevolent and that no giant snooker player is going to show up and pot the entire planet down a black hole. I played the original 
original Destiny and yet couldn't tell you now what the fuck happened in it, but none of it seems to matter at Inca's cusp because a generic evil alien race invades the Earth and puts a great big muzzle on the cue ball, taking away the superpowers of Earth's guardians because they couldn't remember the safe word in time. The main villain is the sort of ridiculously operatic figure one should expect from a Bungie game and looks a bit like a muton from XCOM got elected Pope. Fortunately, one hope remains in the form of a lone guardian who never speaks and has no name and if you're me looks a bit like David Warner wearing bright pink lipstick and green eyeshadow because why would the character creator even have that if it didn't expect you to use it? The protagonist, or as I like to call them Widow Twanky, crawls out of the ruins of the earth and manages to get their powers back by as far as I understood the process asking nicely. Your job then is to get the old band back together, meaning three guys we saw for two minutes in the intro sequence that are apparently important. They haven't got their superpowers back, but I guess we need them to tell us what to do next. Actually, maybe these guys were in Destiny 1, but just to reiterate, I played the Destiny 1 and I haven't a fucking clue. It's classic Bungie characterization, some very determined self-righteous people who do the right thing and have no sense of humour, and some who are designated funny characters, meaning they are also determined self-righteous and do the right thing, but they also over-clarify their statements a lot and determine aloud whenever a situation has become not good. These characters' personalities are entirely defined by things they say, not things they do, because they don't do anything. They wait for you to show up and tell you to do things, and those things are invariably go to place and shoot the lads. So as the only guardian who thought to ask nicely, we are the only one who can save the handful of hub maps from all around the solar system, just us and the other 10 million players running around. But that's probably one of those things we're supposed to suspend our disbelief about. Still, Density 2 at least started off a bit less like a dreary mire of knee-deep cold sausage meat than Density 1. There's a nice straightforward alien invasion and for a while the plot moves along at quite a clip. You start off on smashed up earth picking bits of alien shoe leather out of your bruised bottom, then a few time jumps later you're getting your powers back, then you piss off to an ocean planet and you've barely unfurled your beach umbrella before the plot mission's done and it's time to piss off to the next planet. So Destiny 2 has quite a long piss about deferment index or PDI, which is the term for the amount of time a free to play or Skinner box game gives you to get settled in before it starts pissing you about. It only started when out of nowhere the next plot mission required me to grind up two more levels, which wasn't much. I only had to do a couple of side quests, or rather adventures as they are called here, which I suppose is one way to make them sound interesting. Ho oh, traveller, are you a stalwart enough hero to adventure to a place and shoot the lads? But then after the next plot mission I needed to gain another four levels to proceed and yeah, I guess I see what we're doing here now, Destiny 2. Still at least the scenery is nice. In fact that brings me to a strange epiphany that struck me while I was playing the game that I'd like to share with you now. It was while I was following a series of objective markers in order to get to a place wherein might be found some lads to shoot, I paused about halfway down a corridor to take a break from the sheer roller coaster of excitement the mission was turning into and found myself staring at the wall texture. We were in one of the several hundred ancient alien temples covered in somehow still functioning LEDs that Bungie have made across their career and the decor had gone for an intricate pattern of narrow lines and right angles but then I looked closer and saw there were multiple layers of lines, some in sharper relief than others. I got curious and looked around the entire surrounding area for where the pattern repeated and I couldn't find it. Every part of the wall seemed to be a unique combination of lines and little glowy lights. Who were you, mysterious wall texture designer person, with whom I feel a strange kinship as I gaze upon your work? What ambition spurred you through the years of practice and higher education that brought you to this place? When you dreamed of your artwork being hung upon walls to be viewed by millions, is this precisely what you had in mind? I pictured them heading back to their cubicle to touch up another series of functionally identical but slightly varied wall textures and passing a meeting room where they overhear some designers discussing how best to word the latest iteration of going to a place and shooting some lads, whereupon they heave a weary sigh and add another few names to the workplace massacre checklist they know damn well they no longer have the balls to execute. Are you sure there isn't something else about Destiny 2 you'd like to talk about, Yards? Like, say, the PvP? or the level design or the fact that the three different categories of weapons are now called something different to what they were called last time. No! I want to talk about how I stared at a wall for five minutes and it was somehow the most interesting part of the game. I'm starting a new wave of game criticism right here. It's called Up Yours Publishers. You've got to admire the dedication of these AAA publisher types. New games like Doom and Prey and Breath of the Wild that employ a retro gameplay philosophy have turned all the heads lately. Re-releases of classic consoles sell out in roughly the time it takes to say the words blatant artificial scarcity. The Steam lists are choked with retro style indie games like a first time porn starlet to whom no one explained what DVDA stands for, and in response to all this, the AAA publishers say, so what we're hearing is that we should make more bloody identikit Skinner box games.
games. As I say, you've got to admire the dedication, and shun every other square inch of their repugnant amorphous slug-like forms. The exception as always is Nintendo, who do not need to be told that nostalgia pays off because they already carve that into the forehead of every fucking employee. It's part of the induction day schedule now, right after biscuits and pointing out the toilets. Seems they accidentally put their name on something halfway original this month and the balance needed to be redressed, so they spun the wheel of Nintendo policy and it landed on Remake Old Game. Which shouldn't come as a surprise as that option covers half the bloody wheel, with the other half split between Make Low Effort Unwanted Spin-Off and Announce Another Fucking New Console. So we have Metroid Samus Returns on 3DS, which is a remake of the Game Boy title Metroid 2 Return of Samus. The microscopic change of subtitle might seem a bit needlessly fussy, but while expressing the same sentiment, the subtitle carries a vastly different connotation than it did in 1991. Back then, Samus was returning in triumph. Metroid 1 had been her glittering debut, and the gaming public were collectively holding out their dinner plate with a hearty more please. Today, on the other hand, Samus is returning in the sense that she's being let out of the doghouse that Nintendo has been making her live in for the last few years. They let her out in Metroid Other M to run around crying in her underpants while narrating like she was reading aloud a very boring 1950s textbook on gender politics. And then in Federation Force, her role was roughly equivalent to that of the sexy lady the fighter pilots paint on the side of their nose cone. Nothing to do now, but go back to formula. Samus explores an alien planet, shoots Metroids, walks oddly sexily for someone wearing a Sinclair C5. Story and dialogue has been rather mercilessly kicked down the priority staircase, so my fellow Other M veterans can feel relieved that Samus keeps her mouth shut and doesn't spend the whole game going on about babies like a 35-year-old spinster after three months of dating. We're literally just handed a list of Metroids to kill and sent on our merry way. Through a traditional Metroid adventure in 2D platforming exploration, shooting at walls to find secrets, and shooting at angry wildlife to find a pathetic sense of limited power and superiority. Now I've never played Metroid 2 for the GameCube, so I can't tell you how accurate a remake this is, but if that factor is important enough to be a deal breaker for you, then please suck on an exhaust pipe and remove your lazy nostalgia-centric pollution from the cultural gene pool. I am prepared to bet that the original didn't have a parry button that effectively turns every single monster into a quick time event, but honestly I kind of like this feature because it means I don't have to keep holding down the free aim button. A posture that with the 3DS's sharp corners is still as unpleasant for my large dainty fingers as a fistful of angry plague rat. Besides that, Samus Returns demonstrate a strong commitment to replicating those nostalgic feelings of frustrating gameplay and dodgy controls. At least that's the only explanation I can think of for some of this interface design, considering how many wonderful buttons the modern handheld has, and how many wonderful alternatives there could have been to the control layout we've got. Press right on the d-pad to select rapid fire, press A to activate it, and then finally press X to actually shoot the bloody thing. Then you have to press A to deactivate it unless you switch to a different special power, in which case you'll have to press right again first. And bear in mind you'll have to do all of this in the 12 nanoseconds you have before the charging monster that for god knows what reason can only be harmed by rapid fire smashes right into the big stupid Lego spaceship cockpit that is your face. Also don't forget the grapple beam is now a setting of your main cannon, so you can't grapple and shoot at the same time and need to make sure you haven't absentmindedly left it on grapple lest you plough into the next room of baddies and end up ineffectually trying to lasso their turgid alien genitals. And since I brought it up, I didn't know that rapid fire also has the ability to break the weird grey spunk bubble things that block narrow passages. I did three circuits of the fucking level looking for the clumsy fellatio power-up before I figured this out. I know we're going for that minimal dialogue retro feel, but a speck more dialogue to clarify this wouldn't have hurt. Hell, I'd have been happy with a fucking rebus. Well, I think that sums up all my major nitpicks. I should clarify that altogether they probably won't be enough to turn off those of you looking for an authentic Metroid experience to while away the hours. Although if you are more familiar with Metroid as the thing that coined the first half of the Metroidvania genre, you may be a little disappointed by the way this game's laid out as a linear sequence of progressively harder areas, when Metroidvania should ideally involve having to go through old areas to reach new ones, so that going back through level 1 and finding the optional upgrades that you can't get without the plasma trouser press from level 4 can be done organically without having to temporarily slam the brakes on making progress. Again, though, it shouldn't be a deal breaker. I think the worst thing I can say about Metroid Samus Returns is that now I've played it, I will almost certainly never play or think about it again. Not that it was bad, it just went into my brain space, my brain space said, yep, that's a Metroid game, alright, and then kicked it straight out the exhaust pipe. I've had a similar revelation of late concerning Zelda Breath of the Wild. I remember being into it, I remember liking being into it, for there is such a thing as not liking being into something, heroin springs to mind, but I don't think I've spared it a single thought ever since I beat it. See, this retro style, heavier 
here on the open-ended gameplay lighter on the linear story is all very well, but there was no need to throw the baby out with the malfunctioning automatic circumcision device, and while gameplay keeps us occupied on the moment-to-moment -moment level, story is the part of the game you actually remember and stays with you. I suppose it's a question of what you'd rather have been in high school, the kid no one noticed or the kid who tried to castrate themselves with a belt sander? Do you mind not getting invited to parties, or can you accept that every time you show up someone's going to hum the opening riff to enter Sandman? Viewers, do you think there's something wrong with me? Rhetorical question, hands down please. I ask because my favourite kind of gameplay is ball-busting difficulty, and all my favourite story-based games seem to be miserable and depressing. In fact what might as well be my favourite game ever is both ball-busting and miserable. Not that having your testicles mangled should ever give one cause for optimism, but you get my point. And then there was that time I shat all over Ori in the Blind Forest for pulling a happy ending out of its ass and giving me misery blue balls. But balls aside, I checked over my childhood for some kind of trauma that might explain this and I couldn't find one in any of the memories I hadn't suppressed, so am I just a fundamentally negative person? Is that why I've spent the last ten years swearing and talking about my balls for a living? Well, who can say, but things might be changing because I actually quite like Cuphead, and it's not miserable at all. It's a bright, cartoony, upbeat romp. It is, however, so ball-bustingly hard that you'll be jizzing ball shrapnel for weeks. And having said that it's cartoony and upbeat, its premise admittedly is that you're crippled with gambling debts and now have to collect from fellow debtors or be murdered by Satan. See, the rub is that Cuphead is retro-style, but not in the usual sense, i.e. pixels the size of Plymouth. It's deliberately fashioning itself after retro animation in the style of Max Fleischer or very early Disney, and pulls that off with quite remarkable success. The film grain, the scratchy audio, the big brass band soundtrack, the fluid exaggerated animation where characters all move like warmed up gummy worms caught in the spokes of a bike. It all feels so bloody authentic. And most importantly, what a lot of people forget about early cartoons, here we very unsubtly waggle our eyebrows at Epic Mickey's forgotten gravesite, is that they could be really fucking dark. See, back then it wasn't generally understood that kids needed to have their delicate sensibilities protected, as odds were pretty good they were all going to die in a European trench war before they turned 18 anyway. So thematically, cartoons were lighter on wholesome lessons about friendship and heavier on skeletons and racism. So there's something overtly sinister about Cuphead, which might be from subtly wrong things, like the drinking straw in our character's head. I mean the teacup head thing I buy, but who the fuck drinks from a teacup with a straw? That's just pushing it. But I think it's the overall scratchy look and feel that makes me think the little girl from the ring could push out of the screen at any moment and start making comical trombone noises. This surreal, almost elegiac atmosphere pairs remarkably well with the relentless difficulty. This is a world where every inanimate object has angry eyes, gyrates constantly like it's busting for a piss, and desperately wants you dead. Which is just as well because you'll have obliged them several hundred times before the game is done. Gameplay-wise, the closest comparison I can think of is Fury, in that the game consists mainly of a string of multi-stage boss fights with elements of bullet hell, in which you must balance pouring damage into the enemy against avoiding the damage that pours out of them. The difference is, in Fury you had a big sword and a mysterious backstory and could regain health from therapeutically twatting people, while in Cuphead you have a cup for a head that can take a total of three hits before it shatters as assuredly as to a pushed off desk by the naughty cat of archetype, and you have to start again. There's also a fairly centralised two-player co-op mode I'm in two minds about. On the one hand it seems like it'd be dramatically easier, since you're doing twice the damage with twice the targets and one player can even save another player from death. That seems weighed excessively against the lonely shadows of the world, whose best friends and sex partners are attached to the ends of their wrists. But then again, it means you have to keep track of a few more of the several hundred moving objects on screen at any one time, so maybe it balances out. And besides, a proper bollock tussler of a challenge is something to be enjoyed like a fine wine. And personally I wouldn't drink from a glass of wine with another person, that seems like a good way to make a mess and engender unwanted sexual tension. The secret of enjoying gonad distressingly hard games is to not give up, because I guarantee you'll find a hundred things to complain about while you're struggling with a boss. Like how you die fifty times fighting say a giant hole punch with angry eyes, before you finally squeak past its first two stages with one health left whereupon the hole punch turns into a fucking Power Shred 64CB paper shredder and you die instantly to its innovative jam blocker technology. It can seem very unfair that you've worked so hard to memorise the best way to avoid the first two stages attacks, only for them to be replaced by completely different attacks that you must now figure out in your estimated 12 nanoseconds of remaining life will start all over again. The music's pissing you off and your eyes hurt and that fucking pirate has twice as much health as every other boss I fucking swear, and you're pretty sure you're going to write down some very harsh swear words when you come to do the review, but then all of a sudden you enter a sort of cosmic state of hyper-awareness and beat the boss perfectly, and it's like someone's lifted a whale off your lower back 
back and you just feel serene until the game grades you with a C minus. But honestly, stick your grades up your ass, Cuphead. I'm happy and I won't have to beat my kids tonight. See, if I'd stopped because I was frustrated or because I should have walked the dog two hours ago, I'd only have been left with bad feelings and a pissy carpet. I'd have gone to bed that night with that fucking music stuck in my head and woken up the next morning with teeth marks all over my pillow, mattress and spouse. So it's important to put complaints about the game in the proper context. Yes, it's frustrating, that's the whole point, it needs to be for the payoff. But it's not just challenge that gives Cuphead its weirdly hypnotic draw, because there was another, um, cullion traumatizingly hard game that came out last week. Ruiner it was called, and I didn't like it very much. It seemed like a cyberpunk ripoff of Hotline Miami, with none of what made Hotline Miami interesting, like the psychedelic imagery, or the fast pace, or the not taking place in a succession of the most obvious fucking environments imaginable, and then trying to make them less obvious by illuminating them like a fucking ghost train ride. Yeah, the fights were hard, but I wasn't getting that all-important sense of payoff. All I felt I was earning was more chances to fight boring gang members in murky environments. That's the cuphead difference. Its utterly unique style makes it an instant breath of fresh air, even if that breath of fresh air also contains a thousand stinging hornets. And you tank the stings just to see what it's going to belch up next. It's like being stabbed to death by Dick Van Dyke. Yes, it hurts, and it's probably not good for you, but you can't stay mad. It's too adorable how he thinks he can do a Cockney accent. You remember Knack One, it was a launch title for the newborn PS4, for it is just as true in the games industry that newborns come into the world covered in blood and shit and scraps of tortured uterus. At the time I summed up my opinion with the phrase, Knack is cack, but honestly it was what you'd expect of a launch title. The launch title's job is basically to use the graphics hardware to erect a big glittering neon sign saying, your game here. Just something that looks halfway decent and has some basically functional gameplay that isn't going to blow any minds. Something that will look glittery for the dumb dumb masses who have grown bored of staring at their jangling keys, but also doesn't scare them off and provide a nice low bar for developers to top as they get to grips with the hardware. It's like how you want the opening act to be someone competent enough to warm up the crowd, but not so good that they overshadow the main event. With that in mind, bringing out a sequel to a launch title four years down the line that isn't much different to the first is like bringing the opening act on again to play the fucking encore while the main band hide backstage, crying and gorging on wagon wheels. Yes, Knack was cack, but Knack 2 is cack poo. The premise of the franchise, but we now must call it a franchise however much the word sticks in my throat like a bitter toilet brush, is that you play a sentient creature made of the kind of small geometric wooden puzzles commonly bought as stocking fillers, who can grow indefinitely by adding more puzzles to his mass. Knack, for tis his name, is also an unstoppable fighter and problem solver with a very good speaking voice whose existence is shrouded in mystery, and yet despite being the player character he doesn't seem to be the protagonist of the story. That honour goes to a drippy little teenage twat who hangs around with Knack to form a highly effective world-saving partnership. Knack provides the muscle, the intellect, the lucrative royalties from his side gig recording audiobooks, and the kid provides, uh, a nice flat head for Knack to rest his beer on. And yet the game persistently focuses the story on the little bastard and his problems as he whines about no one taking him seriously. Maybe that's something to do with the way he sits on his ass the whole time, letting his bucket of Rubik's cubes do the work. Essentially, Knack and, by extension, us as the player character, are treated like the family dog, who's let off the leash at the start of each level to run ahead scaring off goblins and German holidaymakers so that the human characters can hang back and scoff all the pork pies. And I can't remember the last time I was so utterly sewing needle under the fingernail to keep me awake bored while playing a game. The Division, maybe, but at least The Division gave me a gun so I could compose satirical haiku on the walls in bullet holes. Knack 2, much like Knack 1, takes place in a very, very long, very winding corridor with only one route forward. Occasionally there's a cutscene where Knack stands around like a spare banana at a dildo factory, while the human characters establish the reason why we're going down the next section of linear corridor. Sometimes Knack will fight some guys, sometimes there's a block-pushing puzzle, it's basically like being a supermarket trolley attendant in revolutionary France, but the niceties of the gameplay hardly matter since Knack's non-presence as a character in the plot creates this profound gameplay and story disconnect. That means I gave so little shit about what happened that were I to review Knack 2, I'd probably very abruptly give up halfway and start talking about a completely different game. SteamWorld Dig 2 is the slightly awkwardly titled sequel to SteamWorld Dig, a game about digging in a world, also Steam. It's 2D, it's a platformer, and it's Metroidvania, and already I can sense your eyes start to roll faster and faster until you can hook them up to turbo 
turbines and generate cheap energy for struggling nations. Fucking every 2D platform is a metroidvania these days. No reason not to be when systems don't need to load up levels one at a time anymore like a dexterous waiter in a narrow corridor, but stick around, this one may have a hook going for it. We play a robot who comes to a town of robots in the desert to find the protagonist of the previous game who disappeared down a hole and then presumably filled it back in behind him and replanted all the fossilised enemies, so our job now is to dig down until we find him, selling whatever ore we find to buy upgrades on the way. See, how you make your metroidvania stand out these days is to add a unique spin on the usual templates. Properly unique, mind, not just renaming the inevitable double jump to the Voluvian self-ejaculation technique or something else that doesn't sound like a Vulcan wanking manual. SteamWorld Dig adds tunnelling gameplay reminiscent of Dig Dug or Boulder Dash, so instead of a determined sequence of platform challenges there's just a big fuck-off mass of dirt between you and the next place you need to be, in a sort of stark metaphor for the immigration process. So you have to dig your own way through in a way that lets you grab all the ore without crushing yourself or accidentally creating a six-storey death drop. I like it. It's sort of like Spelunky but without the roguelike aspect, which is another thing that's gotten a wee bit overexposed in indie platformer circles. Yes, some wonderful things can be done with procedural generation these days, but let's not forget that you can't beat a properly crafted experience. A carefully rehearsed and well-timed comedy routine will always beat someone reading aloud a list of their favourite swear words, unless you're on BBC Three. SteamWorld Dig One reminded me of one of those Flash games where you're trying to launch a guinea pig into space or whatever, and each failed attempt earns you a little bit more money to add another carrot-shaped rocket booster to his little furry bum. SteamWorld Dig Two has a much stronger plot with better characters. The protagonist has a tag-along they can have conversations with, it's not just us alone in the dark knocking holes in rocks, sheer loneliness causing us to slowly come around to the idea of sticking our knob in one. Also the world unfolds more engagingly with better player training, movement generally handles more smoothly and the chipping at walls is slightly less tedious, so on the whole Dig 2 feels more like a refinement of Dig 1 than a sequel, which does mean the constant calling back to the plot of Dig 1 feels a bit misguided. No need to shackle yourself to continuity, pretend it's the first time every time, if it's good enough for The Legend of Zelda it's good enough for you. Also I can think of a couple of other refinements that could have been made. The lantern that keeps running out of oil feels unnecessary, I mean our health gets restored on the surface, and our bag can carry about as much as a handbasket at Safeway, so we've already got two systems making us go back to the surface at regular intervals, a third one that's a literal timer feels a bit gratuitous. Could have done with more boss fights too, actually it's generally kind of short, but just think of it as a nice inoffensive between meals snack. Summer's nearly over and the big releases will soon kick in, but for now let's sit down, put our feet up and stick a great big handful of dirt in our mouth. Okay Arts, you can do this one more week before the big releases start and then you can stop pretending anyone gives a shit about indie games. Oh hello there viewers! I noticed that Steam has had another bountiful week of dry looking strategy games and upbeat cartoon pornography. Let's look at a couple of games that were neither of those things and so leapt out at me like a half-killed grasshopper from the mouth of an unwarrantedly self-satisfied cat. Hob was the first, a minimalist but effective name bringing to mind folklore, gas cookers and popular brands of oat biscuit. It's a hack and slashy explorer sort of thing with something halfway between a top-down and isometric viewpoint like the cameras glued to a drunk seagull that was recommended to me because ooh Yahtzee we know how much you like your atmospheric exploration games and your dialogue-free storytelling. It's true, I do, I'm just not so keen on story-free storytelling as a concept. The premise of Hob is you're one of those mysterious wanderer types wearing a red hood and a cloak because don't they fucking always, and you're following around Bastion from Overwatch who seems to think it's jolly important that you run around a ruined city turning all the lights back on. What are we, the fucking caretakers? A jobbing door-to-door -door electrician business? With no dialogue we might as well assume as much. Hob does do a good job of executing what it sets out to do, the air of wandering adventure, of secret purpose, of boredom, of exploring the ruins of strongholds and cities once mighty if boring, atmospheric, boring, boring, boringly boring. Don't misunderstand me, Hob. It sounds like you think I'm boring, Yards. Alright, I guess you haven't misunderstood me. Yes, it's well put together, has probably added some impressive stuff to the concept artist's portfolio, and will probably take home the ooh bless them aren't they trying so hard best indie game award from a regional game dev convention, but haven't we been here many times before? Explore the remnants of the ancient advanced civilization that now manifests a load of partial walls and bits of statue jutting up from the overgrown foliage, the lone wanderer wandering lonesomely, all silence but for the wind, the understated sad music and the grunts of primitive monsters that now use the place for their girl guide meetings. It's Breath of the Wild, it's Metroid Prime, it's Journey, it's every bloody Team Ico game, and I was distinctly ungripped. Maybe I get enough sense of lonely atmosphere from looking at my social calendar. So I also downloaded another game later in the week that had some ominous red flags about it called A Hat in Time. Firstly the title's rubbish. A Hat in Time. A Hat in Time. Just saying the words feels like
like I'm biting down on the side of a plastic cup. Also, it's a kickstarted project that pledges to evoke the spirit of retro 3D platformers, and that rang particular alarm bells, which sounded like this. Ukulele, ukulele. But what the hell, it was this or hire a speed metal guitarist to keep me awake through the rest of Hob. A Hat in Time is about a rather alarmingly unsupervised little girl in a series of hats, exploring a fantastic world of adventure to find fuel for her spaceship. Since she starts the game in bed, probably safe to assume this is all a dream, or perhaps that she's descending into fantasy in the last few moments of brain activity before dying of starvation or neglect in a forgotten hospital basement. Blimey, that was uncalled for, and completely contrary to the spirit of A Hat in Time, which is nice and lively and upbeat, and I enjoyed it quite a lot. Which came as a relief, because you may recall last week I was concerned that only liking miserable violent games was flagging me as a candidate to be reprogrammed by the CIA for political assassinations. A Hat in Time cites Super Mario Sunshine as an influence, and that's pretty clear from how you repeatedly go to big hub levels to attempt different challenges, the nuanced platforming mechanics that starts with a jump and turns into a double jump, a dive, a wall run, denial, bargaining and finally acceptance that we're going to have to fall into the lava now. It's even got those pure platforming interlude levels that Mario Sunshine had that are like we dropped acid and stuck our head in a bucket of Duplo. But A Hat in Time also can't seem to hold a single idea in its head for very long. We establish the Mario Sunshine tribute in the first hub world, but then it throws its toys out of the pram and goes, I'm bored, I want to do a tightly scripted intrigue set in a movie studio for owls that's closer in tone to something from a Paper Mario game. Alright, is this the sort of thing you want to be sticking with now, Hat in Time? No, I want to do some horror out of fucking nowhere. No way, I want to do a free roaming platforming world as well. Christ, this is like getting the current president to type up his fucking manifesto. But it succeeds where ukulele failed because it keeps the pace up and has some decent funny writing that can be self-aware without having to constantly suck its own dick for being so clever and physically flexible. The first obvious comparison between Hob and A Hat in Time is that both of them seem to treat standard combat like some unwanted dullard colleague who reliably brings the mood down at every fucking office party but they have to keep him around because he knows the Wi-Fi password. In Hattie Time it's just a matter of pressing the homing attack button whenever something waddles up wanting to start something, and in Hob you just get set upon by nearby wildlife on your way to pressing the next button. Well you see that's what the core mechanic of Hob appears to be. You press a button, a huge piece of ancient machinery slides into or out of something, and now you have to figure out where the next button you have just opened access to is. It's like trying to bring off a lady in a pitch black room wearing very complicated underpants. Hattie Boom Batty isn't above having a lot of missions where the goal is go to the place and get the thing. In fact when you need to find four hidden keys for a door or whatever, the game just gives you a bunch of glowing lines leading to directly where they are, just in case you were worried there'd be an ounce of challenge involved. But then you look away for one second to roll your eyes at your Twitch followers and the game knees you in the toddler activity centre with surprisingly difficult boss fights. See, Hob is the more tightly designed experience, it's clearly got all its ends tied up and its cracks diligently sealed. I mean in Hat in Time I managed to drop out of the map more than once from staring at an exterior wall too hard. Also, Hat in Time isn't very long, it's only got four worlds and an end boss and only 40 shine sprites, I mean time pieces, to get, which by standard measures puts it at 1.1 Demi Marios. But there's a simple metric to determine which game is best. I woke up on Thursday morning thinking, oh Christ I suppose I should play more of that boring Hob game today, oh well maybe I'll find a piece of forgotten architecture that looks vaguely like a tit. Whereas I woke up on Friday morning thinking, oh boy I get to play more Hattie time today, I hope I get to jump on a penguin. I play Hob and I stroke my chin and think, hmm yes, very atmospheric, what an artful tacit lesson on the excesses of civilization. And then I play Hattie time and conversely feel like I'm having fun. Fun? Fun. Fun. Oh yes, I remember that. Isn't that the thing we're not supposed to have anymore? That's supposed to disappear on our 25th birthday to be replaced by very serious concerns about fiscal stability? In Practical Fantasy Helmets Often Monolith, the first Shadow of Mordor was a damn good game in the face of impossible odds. Not only a movie tie-in, not only adapting a seminal work of fantasy fiction that certain kinds of obsessive nerds take more seriously than personal hygiene, but also being a AAA sandbox game in an age when such things are thicker on the ground than horny spinsters at a suburban wedding. And with a generically broody and vengeful protagonist with all the dynamic characterization of a potato with angry eyes drawn on it, come to think of it, why did I like Shadow of Mordor? A question 
question that haunted me as I started up the sequel, Middle Earth Shadow of War, and throughout most of the first act. Talion, above mentioned grizzled hero type whose name sounds like it could be a Middle Earth euphemism for penis, is still trapped in a loveless marriage with the ghost of an elven warlord bastard, who back in the day thought it would be a wizzo idea to help out someone called the Dark Lord Sauron with a custom jewellery project. Talion and Celebrimbor start the game where the last one left off, deciding to fight evil mind-controlling wedding bands with evil mind-controlling wedding bands. But it's okay, the new ring they create is a nice ring, you can tell because it's got blue rather than orange LEDs on it, and it's full of nice occult power that only does the nice kind of conquest and subjugation. That's why it's almost immediately stolen by Shelob, because she wants to do lots of nice things with it, like throw tea parties and send letters of encouragement to depressed elderly people in veterans hospitals. Oh yeah, by the way, Shelob is a pretty lady now. You might think you know differently if you've read the books or seen the films where she had more of a rampaging giant spider thing going on, but don't be such a prig. She's still a giant spider, but now she can be a pretty lady as well, okay? Who can see the future and forges uneasy alliances with passing half-ghost grizzly swordsmen in order to clandestinely pull strings in pursuit of some unknowable long-term goal. Yeah, that grand strategic cunning was really coming across in The Return of the King, when she was screechingly chasing after some hobbits in a cave, when she was having trouble chowing down on the fat one because he hit upon the equally cunning strategy of getting out of the way. Just as well we're not here for the story, I suppose, although someone should probably have told Monolith that, because the game gleefully wastes our time with it for fucking hours before we get the ring back and finally return to the high spot the last game left us on, and which should have been this game's starting point, hanging around armies of unique individualised orcs with the ability to selectively take over their minds and overpower their free will, in a nice way, remember? And only then did I recall why I'd made Shadow of Mordor my game of the year back in the day. I just love what they've done with these orcs! They took this race of evil redshirds bred only to fight, ever a stupid concept because you can't only be fighters, someone's got to build all the huts and fences and sew everyone's trousers together, and gave them actual depth. I even overheard a conversation in this game. Incidentally, the orcs are right up there with Arkham City's thugs in terms of overheard chatter, and I'm pretty sure have a lot of the same voice actors, in which two worker orcs were trying to convince each other that carpentry is basically the same as fighting when you think about it. See, the orcs are self-aware, they're funny, they're all unique, and yet we stab them up by the hundreds while motherfucking Tallywhacker gets to be the hero. Talk about injustice! But there's gotta be something new for the organic orc politics simulator or we might as well just be playing the first game except with a few additional years of cynicism and reduced faith in humanity. And while fighting them hasn't changed much at all, some of them are weak to arrows, some to fire, some of them are scared of flies, some of them are scared of public speaking so you have to do a grab attack and throw them on stage at the Academy Awards, but now you have to work more closely with the orcs as a personal army rather than a network of sleeper agents, occupying fortresses and employing specific ones as bodyguards, and that leads to all kinds of new surprises. Maybe you'll try to summon your bodyguard and some enemy captain shows up instead, waving your bodyguard's willy on a lanyard. Or your bodyguard does show up, but he betrays you because he's sick of having to worry about people putting his willy on things. It's easy to feel overpowered when he can stealth kill three guys at once and insta-kill counter all their remaining mates, but then the game throws a surprise captain ambush at you and you're desperately trying to remember the unwashed shower room floor attack because you're pretty sure this captain is only weak to Verukas. Although one thing I could do without is the way every captain has to give a fucking acceptance speech when they arrive, and you and all the orcs you were in the middle of fighting to the death have to stand still and listen to a paragraph of threatening banter they've probably been rehearsing for days. And now I'm wondering who the fuck's educating these orcs, because one of them in their opening remarks knew what a fucking metaphor was. Are there orc liberal arts professors somewhere assuring each other that stamping out ignorance of advanced language techniques is also basically the same as fighting? Anyway, with the organic fun of working away at orc command structures in preparation for fortress takeovers, the actual story quests almost feel like an imposition, as they handhold you through some consequence-free, generic scripted encounters and a boss fight with the Balrog for basically no reason except they needed something to put in the trailers. Having said that, the main story has a couple of neat twists that I won't spoil, not that you care, do you? What you really want to hear about are the fucking micropayments and if they mean we should string some or all of the Warner Brothers up over a penful of hungry dogs with a begging strip lodged between each toe. Of course, the publishers have been quick to tell us that you don't need them to beat the game and you can certainly get through the main story without them. Whoopty fucking do, publishers. An owl in a body cast could get through story missions. The wall I ran into was after I'd taken all the fortresses but was suddenly obliged to defend them all from besieging attackers. Now, some of these forts I'd taken quite a ways back in the game, so all the orcs I'd left defending the place were around level 20, but the besieging orcs were all around level 40 up. Christ knows where they came from. Last I checked, I ran all the orc 
fortresses in the fucking country. Maybe they were trained by those secret guerrilla liberal arts professors. But even though I'd done all the side missions by this point, barring finding collectibles, but maybe you misunderstood me when I said I play video games to have fun, Monolith, I did not have enough in-game currency to buy all the fort upgrades I needed to defend myself. I'm sure just one little micropayment could have made the difference, but this is how it starts, isn't it? Oh, it's all optional, Yards. But what the fuck does optional mean? It's video games. Playing them at all is optional. Sticking a broom handle up your ass is optional. Doesn't mean I wouldn't really like to do it. Like a serial bike thief who lives next door to a pawn shop, history often runs in cycles. The last time a game called The Evil Within came out in mid-October around the same time as a Middle-earth game and a Call of Duty game, it was a survival horror adventure that played out like someone had Google image searched the word horror and then used that as the fucking storyboard. It had creepy hospitals, zombies, mad scientists, massacres involving chainsaws in places reminiscent of Texas, and was on the whole about as cohesive and well-structured as a puddle of monkey vomit. Let's see if it does any better with The Evil Within 2, still a bit of evil in there, better run it through the dishwasher again. Things do seem a touch more focused right off the bat, because the plot zeroes in on the main character Sebastian Caster Watson and his tragic backstory that the first game only briefly explored. Ha ha! Actually, I was lying there. I don't remember the first game exploring his tragic backstory much at all. But you believed me when I said it did, didn't ya? Shows how fucking generic, a gritty, cynical, burnt-out detective protagonist he is. I said he's got a tragic backstory, and you all went, well, obviously. Anyway, yes. Turns out Sebastian's haunted by his daughter dying in a house fire years ago, but now it turns out she wasn't. Actually, she was kidnapped by one of those credibility-pushingly evil megacorporations that are a signature of Japanese survival horrors because they wanted to use her mind to create a virtual world like the one in the first game. Please note that they didn't do this because Sebastian survived the first game, or to get any kind of leverage over him, it's all just a massive coincidence. Long story short, something's going wrong with the virtual world and they send Sebastian in to find his daughter and give her a damn good spanking until it starts working properly again. So we can add the Evil Within 2 to the stable of Yummy Hairy Dad games, in which we play a hairy dad in remarkably good shape, protecting and or saving their child or child surrogate. Reference The Last of Us, Bioshock Infinite, the upcoming God of War, and so on. Seems to be popular with AAA story games these days because it's a slightly more PC alternative to rescuing princesses with the tacit understanding that they'll handle our scepter and orbs in gratitude. But if you ask me, this is just swapping one unrealistic fantasy for another. Rather than the male fantasy of big titty action ladies, it's the female fantasy of men actually being, you know, responsible and shit. Last time, my problem with the story was that the world had no physical coherence. You just randomly warp from horrible place to horrible place with no idea of how or if you were getting closer to victory. This complaint appears to have been addressed. It's established that the evil megacorp has somehow built an entire coherent town in our kid's noggin, but parts of it are being corrupted by psychos. So now we do have a sense that our physical location actually matters, but the plot's still a mess. We establish a main villain, have a boss fight with him, then he goes, by the way I'm working for someone else who hasn't been mentioned or established in the slightest but he's the main villain now, oh no I'm dead, bleh. Also the relationship between real and virtual worlds confuses me. Everyone in the virtual world has a body in the real world, right? So why is Sebastian the only one we see in the plug-in room? Why doesn't our contact on the outside just go to the bodies of the troublemakers and stick an ice pick up their nose? We help one bloke escape the virtual world, but how did that work? They escaped, woke up in the real world facility, then politely asked the mega corporation not to immediately shoot them in the face? Besides the yummy hairy dad factor, the glaring change to the evil within formula is that it now has some sandbox elements, because AAA gaming these days is like hippopotamus taxidermy. There's always room for more fucking sand. Well I say sandbox, all they do is give you an open-ended map to explore on your way to the next story mission and add precisely one side mission to do. Fair play though, you can explore a surprisingly large number of houses in town, but that means they all have to contain a little something, and I found that I was never really running low on anything, which makes it not so much survival horror as try to stay awake horror. I only ever used healing items because I was full up on them and had just found a new one lying around. True you can't hold very many bullets, because Sebastian needs the room in his pockets for Kinder Surprise toys and jars of snot, but you can always craft yourself some more as long as you've got gunpowder. There's no limit on how much gunpowder you can have, and the enemies and environments seem to dispense the stuff the way your bottom dispenses farts during a sensitive evening with the in-laws. Also, the monsters patrolling the streets don't seem to respawn automatically, which on the one hand is good because it gives a sense of progress and avoids wasting ammo, but on the other hand it sucks all the tension out of exploring the neighbourhood and turns it into trick-or-treating for fucking scrap metal. Alternatively, don't even bother killing enemies because they seem to have the visibility range of a Metal Gear Solid guard on a high smog day, and you can just scuttle through the hedgerows like a lost crab. Having said all that, getting into combat can be a bit difficult early on, 
Sneaking up on monsters for the stealth kill is surprisingly hard, because they're always looking around in weird jerky ways like they just heard a police siren and want to make sure their crystal meth is still there, so it's hard to know what constitutes behind them. Also, Sebastian is one of those prima donna protagonists who just refuses to do anything while they're still winding down from the previous animation. It's very important that after he shakes off a grab attack, he slowly returns his arms to his sides before he can do anything about that other monster coming up on his flank with an axe and a hard-on. Yeah, I hear you desperately mashing buttons, there is such a thing as decorum. If the first evil within had a strength, besides colour matching very well with a hospital corridor full of rusty farming equipment, it was in the visuals, and the creativity in the monster design and horror set pieces. Yeah, it's not a particularly new idea to make a monster out of mashing lots of dead bodies together, but you can't deny it's effective. And while it's broadly speaking more together as a game and as a story, the Evil Within 2 feels comparatively generic. Let's go through the boss fights to prove my point, because that's where the creativity is supposed to be on display. First you find a smashed together from bodies boss, with a bit of that Japanese ghost thing going on where they're one change of lighting away from being in a shampoo advert. So that's the baseline, that's pH neutral. But then you fight a bloke in a blue suit. After that the next main villain's boss fight is just a sample platter of bosses from the last game, which is cheating, so no points there. And finally, giant angry corpse. Still, what could you expect? The virtual world gave them an excuse for literally infinite creativity, and all they made was a bog-standard midwestern town. Bad enough to make a corporation's evil without being boring as well. Ooh no, we can't make all the buildings out of gingerbread, what would market research say? They'd say, chomp chomp, yum yum. Mario having always rampantly and eagerly put his face on things, like a very affectionate and itchy cat, I think it's fair to say that the phrase Mario game has lost whatever meaning it ever had. Even before that whole rabbits business, one can now officially expect from a Mario game anything from turn-based combat to sports simulators to typing tutor to Nintendo-branded moustache-shaving kit, and I feel like we're gonna have to come up with a new name for what I hesitantly call proper Mario games, as in a platformer in which we chase a princess-stealing lizard through a highly circuitous path of themed worlds, wrestle with the finer points of the triple jump and devastate the landscape with the unyielding force of our mighty Italian buttocks. Let's call it a Mario Mario Gammon Soiree. Super Mario Odyssey is a new Mario Gammon Soiree, and I guess we know what that means. Nintendo are turning a profit this year! Yes! I know some Japanese salarymen who'll be drinking irresponsibly tonight. All of them, as usual, but that's besides the point. Mario Odyssey knows why we're all here and wastes no fucking time, with the game literally starting mid-Princess Kidnap. You see, the plot is driven by Bowser travelling the world gathering the essentials for his fairy tale wedding ceremony, which is very adorable. Bowser's a properly raised fire-breathing lizard tyrant, he's not gonna father a bastard rape baby. How would he explain that to his parents? Shortly, Mario is left in the dirt and meets the inevitable magical spirit character that basically acts as glorified mouse pointer, the star child in Mario Galaxy, the butterfly thing in Super Paper Mario, the Roomba from the rabbits thing. This time it's a magic hat, and as has been well documented, if Mario throws the magic hat at a living thing that isn't already wearing a hat, then Mario parasitises their body and overwrites their free will like a cordyceps fungus with a slightly racist accent. The levels are more on the Mario 64, Mario Sunshine side of things than the Mario Galaxy approach, large hub levels rather than a sequence of contained challenges that you must shake down for magic stars by probing their every secret crevice. Oh wait, it's not stars we're collecting for once, it's moons! Who says Nintendo never innovate. Well, the level themes for starters. You guessed it, it's the classic ditty. Grasslands, desert, ocean, jungle, ice world, fire world, boss. It's even got all the usual wild cards thrown in as well. City world, spooky world, and food world. Although food world manifests as vegetable and healthy snack world rather than the usual candy world, maybe Nintendo were feeling the pressure from child obesity groups. Incidentally, the mayor of city world is Pauline, who may be the same one from Donkey Kong, but I'm not sure they ever directly admit that. Probably a hard thing to bring up in casual conversation. Hey, sorry if this sounds weird, but didn't I rescue you from a monkey? This is the same city world that's populated with realistically proportioned humans, by the way which for me raises the question of what the fuck Mario is, if not a human like these lads. Some frighteningly malformed species of hairy pygmy? It's one of the things that underline how Mario is now essentially just a brand with no consistent tone that can be put alongside literally anything without a blink. See also the realistic dinosaur we possess in the first world for all of two minutes, I suspect, just so they could put it in the fucking trailer. And a strange interlude late in the game wherein Bowser shows up riding a fucking Dark Souls boss. I guess it's not really a complaint, it's just not fair on other games that work jolly hard to keep a consistent visual tone. You wouldn't see Dark Souls introduce cartoon mushroom people out of nowhere. <coughs> 
moving on. Not much to complain about gameplay-wise. You've got your jump, your slightly higher jump, your other slightly higher jump, your third slightly higher jump that you do from a crouch, the fourth slightly higher jump you do right after a butt stomp, the fifth slightly higher jump you save for family occasions and bar mitzvahs, so if you've played Mario Galaxy you should settle back in quick, and you'll be relieved to know that you no longer have to shake a Wiimote to attack like you're trying to give yourself tendinitis. Not that Nintendo have entirely undug their heels from the motion controls filth. Hey, don't forget you can shake the controller to climb poles a bit faster and throw your hat a bit differently and various other non-essential things. I hadn't forgotten, thanks Nintendo. You're gonna do it then, hadn't planned to Nintendo. Okay, I'll just remind you again next time you fucking blink. In fairness, I suppose shaking the controller to climb faster makes some sense since it's the sort of thing you might do if you're frustrated and in a hurry. Maybe next Nintendo could make a controller that can detect when you're swearing at it, or when you're two minutes late for your appointment at the SDI clinic. All in all, the game is as fun, playable and full of variety as one should expect from Mario Gammon Soiree, but the question for me is, have we surpassed Mario Galaxy? The erstwhile peak of Gammon Soiree, as going to space often is, Jason Voorhees can attest, and as often follows a high, everything since then has been a sort of haze of come down and self-indulgence for old stashy bollocks. True, Galaxy was a lot more linear and suffered from that tendinitis business, but if you want to see self-indulgence, then Mario Odyssey spurts it out in long ropey strands with both fists. It being a modern Nintendo game, and therefore enamoured with nostalgia for itself, there's a self-congratulatory air to the whole thing that at times is good, and makes things come alive, like the big musical number in the city level, another thing conspicuously present in the trailer, and at other times tries my patience a bit, like when it goes back to a 2D 8-bit Mario and it all feels kind of regressive. Deliberately so, I'm aware, but still cheap. Ah, you don't want to listen to a 30-year-old man pontificating on where this cartoon game for Kiddiewinks belongs in the history of modern culture because he lacks the qualifications for any serious field of criticism, do you, madam? You want to know if Mario Odyssey will keep little Jimmy and little Susie off your back for five minutes? And that brings me to the two-player mode, for as well as being serial masturbators, Nintendo are also big on the family fun time angle, so you'll notice an option for two players in the pause menu, but don't fall for it, this is a highway to acrimonious divorce. See, one player controls Mario, and the other controls the magic hat, and all you have to do is make use of the Miracle of Switch hardware, just snap the controller in half and hey presto, the game's fucking unplayable. Firstly, the Joy-Cons are so fucking tiny it's like trying to fluff an elderly hamster, and secondly, there's only one stick so you can't move your character and the camera at the same time, which it turns out is pretty bloody important when you're trying to accurately land on things in 3D. There are even challenges like the races that will flat out turn you away at the fucking door if you're not playing solo, so Mario Galaxy's on top there at least, because as humiliating as it was for the second player, who was basically doing nothing but pick up the main player's litter and flicked bogeys, they were still only being a help. Force little Jimmy to interrupt his moon collecting to let little Susie join in, madam, and ain't no one gonna be collecting shit, except things to discuss with their future prison therapist. So we're one third of the way through the multiple fucking big name games that came out on October 27th, or as it came to be known, let's all piss on Yahtzee's schedule day, and I might as well admit that I did Mario Odyssey first because on the face that seemed the most likely to give a positive experience. Much as I enjoyed Wolfenstein The New Order, with its strong characters and putting Nazis in their place, that place being face down in a toilet trying to breathe their own wee-wee, I was iffy about the whole idea of a sequel. The New Order, in which an ageing and weary BJ Blazkowicz is stuck in a global techno-Nazi future where the Nazis will keep coming forever and there will never be enough wee-wee to go around, was a truly refreshing take on the World War II action shooter and to my mind would have been a very fitting send-off for a stale and oversaturated genre. Although I guess what with the new Call of Duty this month, it didn't quite send it off as hard as I would have liked. Refreshing, yes, but the thing about that kind of unexpected lightning bolt of a game is that it's a Pandora's box that can only be opened once. Open it again and you're just putting wear and tear on the hinges. Blowjob Blazkowicz, far from the smirking super killer of older iterations, is now a dried up overused Stretch Armstrong doll in the rowdy daycare centre of the universe, who has an increasingly ridiculous talent for coming back from serious injury but isn't quite returning back to his old shape each time. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that he survived getting his liberty bells blown off at the end of the last game and journeys to America with his ragtag band of rebels to win back his homeland from the Nazis with nothing but gumption, a gigantic untraceable submarine, several nuclear warheads and the magical wonder technology of an ancient secret society. Forgive me if it seems like we're losing a sense of threat and adversity, especially when Blowjob continues to shrug off injury in ways that push credibility, even beyond the usual video game protagonist baseline where we can come back from multiple gunshot wounds by sucking up an entire breakfast table like a Jones in crack or five minutes before the bus leaves. There's one moment in particular, and I'm sure you know the one I mean if you've played the game, where incredibility is pushed right out the door of a passenger airliner and how the fuck are we supposed to take any threat seriously after
after that. So someone on the dev team must have said, how do we follow a game like New Order? And someone else said, well I think the most important thing is that it not look like we're trying too hard. And they certainly pulled that off like superstars, I might almost have thought they weren't fucking trying at all. You remember how at one point in the last game we had to go to a Nazi moon base and it was like the ultimate escalation of ridiculousness and you wondered how you could possibly top that? Well in the new Colossus we get to go to a Nazi base on Venus, which is totally different to a moon base in a number of ways that I'm sure Bethesda will be happy to list for you if you all ring them up at three in the morning. We're even going there for the exact same sodding reason we went to the moon base to get some control codes for something on Earth that are so vital and important that the Nazis keep them as far away from where they'd be useful as it is possible for them to be. You have no trouble getting there and once you're done you're back on Earth inside a 30 second cutscene, it's not exactly the stuff of Flash Gordon Sunday strips, but it's not the only point that feels like we're repeating ourselves, seems like all the struggle and surprises were in the last game and now we're just doing admin. And then, just when the plot finally seems to be warming up to go somewhere interesting, the game abruptly ends. Guess they think they can stretch this out to a trilogy, so tune in for Wolfenstein 3 where presumably we'll get to visit the Nazi Andromeda galaxy for precisely one mission, and BJ will survive getting his entire body pushed through a cattle grid. It's a shame because the story was the New Order's strong point. Oh yes, if you hate cutscenes interrupting the action then you're in the wrong tortuously plonged id software franchise, matey. Doom is your pot of jam. The plot's not great, but plot's just one part of story, and New Order's characters, setting, dialogue and world building were all great. New Colossus still has its moments, I might as well spoil now that Hitler shows up, but you don't get to kill him. And not getting to kill Hitler in a Wolfenstein game is like hiring an expensive prostitute to come to your hotel room and massage your kneecaps. So with the story not quite carrying things as well as the New Orders did, we are forced to pay more attention to the gameplay and conclude that it's not actually that great. As always I prefer taking the stealthy option in your standard play it your way combat buffet, but the stealth is like a blatantly rigged carny game where the cans are glued together and the goldfish have all died anyway. It's the shitty kind of stealth where every motherfucker on the map instantly knows your position and least favourite place to be shot in because you moved one quarter inch out of cover to look around and were spotted by someone's hamster. Thus begins the cock-up cascade, and I hate cock-up cascade because it feels like being unduly and continuously punished for making one tiny mistake. The commanders also instantly know where you are and will continually respawn back up until you storm their office and chop all their arms and legs off, like the exact opposite of the smooth unrattled secret agent you ostensibly are. Now I'm sure one could make a perfectly reasonable argument that maybe a game where we play as a bloke built like a 1950s vending machine who has the option of dual-wielding automatic shotguns and where the environment has more food and health items lying around than a church harvest festival after a staggeringly successful guilt trip doesn't actually intend you to take the stealthy route. But if that's the case, why even have a stealthy route? Grow some fucking balls, Wolfenstein. If it's not the intended experience, leave it out, and concentrate on making the gunplay fun. This is just cruel to someone like me, who likes stealth gameplay, it's holding the squeaky mouse just slightly out of reach of my little paws. If it is the big penis shooty action that's supposed to carry things, impressive as it is to carry things with your big penis, then our health seems to get sucked away really fucking fast in an open cock-up cascade scenario, and I feel like there's not much variety to the enemies. I guess Nazi and giant robot suit is a concept that can only go so far. And I'm sure there were better ways to ramp things up for a final boss fight than two Nazis in particularly giant robot suits. In brief, Wolfenstein the New Colossus couldn't recapture the impact of Wolfenstein the New Order, perhaps changing more than one sodding word in the title could have been a better start, and is content to merely spin its wheels until we're either bored or we've undermined every theme the first game had. I mean, Blowjob Blasty Bum was almost heartbreakingly sympathetic in New Order, but somehow the same personality was trying my patience after everything he survived by the end of this one. Ooh, woe is me, my shrapnel wounds hurt. Perhaps soon the day will come when I can only manage four dead Nazis for breakfast. And so we reach the third game that came out on Let's All Piss in Each Other's Mouths Day, the one that I was hotly anticipating with very familiar feelings of exhausted dread. Yes, it's the new Sasso Credo, Sasso Credo Rigi Roggi. Assassin's Creed is a once interesting historical adventure series that became part of the collective Ubisoft sandbox, a sort of amorphous blob of mediocrity that comes around to haunt us every year or so, like a monster from a lower rent Stephen King book. It went on a bit of a hiatus to see if it could find a way to recapture the magic, and after two years of thinking very hard, this is what they've come up with, a prequel with the subtitle Origins. Whoever's job it is to prevent the Ubisoft creative team from committing mass suicide, they cannot possibly be getting paid enough. I was about to make some joke along the lines of when can we expect Assassin's Creed Reloaded and Assassin's Creed Revelations because I genuinely forgot they'd already done that one. No hiatus was going to be long enough because even without Sasso Credo, the Ubisoft sandbox has continued to come around, continually larger and more betentacled than before, to steal our cattle and cause our pregnant women to 
miscarry. And of course, AAA gaming as a whole has long been firing off miscarriages like a nightmarish 21 gun salute. AAA games are now merely platforms for blatant attempts to fleece money from colossal dimwits that somehow have financial independence despite not being able to open a tin of beans without losing an eye. And then the publishers will say, hey, just because we erected a giant sign saying please jump off this cliff and dash yourselves to death on the jagged rocks below doesn't mean you have to do that. Granted, but I object to the way most of the game takes place in the shadow of the giant sign and the rest of it is spent perched astride the giant sign. What I mean is Assassin's Creed Origins is one of those AAA terminal cases where everything seems to have been built around the giant cliff jumping sign as an afterthought. Firstly, it's got all the usual variables, character levels and XP, in-game currency, weapon upgrades, crafting items, because of course the more things you can quantify, the more imaginary prizes you can put in a loot box. The more you can base the gameplay around making numbers bigger and hypnotise the players into wanting a weapon identical to their current weapon, except with a whole two numbers bigger, more than they want their next fucking meal. I can't think of what other purpose giving every character a level could possibly have. It's certainly catastrophic for immersion, when anything more than two levels higher than you will just mash you into a fine paste, even if you do get a stealth attack on them. One would think a hidden blade to the windpipe would be a pretty decisive argument to end in no matter how many press-ups they did that morning. Also, it means that you can't just stick to story missions because they don't provide nearly enough XP brand flakes to keep you regular, so you've got to side quest a bit, but are restricted to a tiny pool of side quests for your current level, as lower level ones don't provide enough XP to be worth the effort, and higher level ones are like trying to trim your pubes with an angle grinder, so much for the fucking go-anywhere sandbox. But then these haven't been sandbox games in a long time, have they? Minecraft is a sandbox. What Ubisoft calls a sandbox these days is an unholy mashup of open world, RPG, MMO, and side activity amounting to go to icon on map and press contextual button, closer in spirit to data entry than action adventure, and they make the games like that because the accounting department says they have to. As I say, the plot almost feels like an afterthought. We are Bayek of Siwa, an ancient Egyptian policeman type thing who's very cross because his spin the wheel of motivation son was killed by proto-templars, and also because his people are being oppressed for which one he's the most cross about varies depending on what the current mission needs him to do. We don't know his backstory at first because the game starts mid-assassination and Bayek has a great big fill-in backstory later note pinned to his head because I guess the accounting department said the action had to kick in straight away. From there it's a fairly typical Assassin's Creed plot progression, travel the world map stabbing anyone who openly sneers at a member of the working class, participate in a dramatisation of some historical events that the average shithead could be trusted to know about with some kind of ridiculous action sequence contrived into it. In this case the seduction of Julius Caesar by Cleopatra which at one point features Bayek and Caesar in a high speed car chase like it's a fucking mismatched buddy cop drama by way of a Bill and Ted film. Don't expect this being ostensibly the origin story of the Assassin Order to mix up the formula much. I remember feeling profoundly disappointed at the scene when Bayek's missus gives him a hidden blade and says this is a weapon from ancient times. Bitch we're in ancient times! I wanted to know who built these fucking things and why they didn't fall apart the instant an Italian teenager got his greasy hands on them 1400 years from now. Standard combat in Sasso Creedy Ridgey is definitely tacking to the RPG side of things, it's now a sort of very watery version of Dark Souls combat where enemies glide around the arena like they've got paint rollers for feet and the charged strong attack beats basically everything. Gone is the Arkham Asylum style counter combat, you remember counter combat, it's that thing that requires a certain amount of skill. You remember skill, it's that thing that mattered before the main deciding factor was who's got the highest number. And speaking of tacking, every now and again you get to play as by ex-misses doing ship combat missions, which I find mystifying. Does Ubisoft think we now expect Assassin's Creed to have ship combat? Just because Black Flag had it and it was a little beacon of joy and light glimmering all too briefly from inside Ubisoft's churning mass? Because I don't want your ship combat if you're just cynically crowbarring it in like a nice ball of glittery tinfoil to look at while we're getting sodomised over the recycle bin. And now a list of things I liked about Sack of Greasy Oranges. Don't worry, it's brief. Scenery is nice. Um, removing the minimap and getting by on scouting with the eagle works pretty well, although it does make it way too easy to mark targets. And even without the minimap, the quantifying of everything means the screen's still sprinkled in bullshit. Oh, how embarrassing! This list of things I like has somehow turned into more gripes. Look, I'm not mad at you, Assassin's Creed Origins, I'm just disappointed. And bored. Mostly bored. I might have had a better time if the game had let me speed through the story campaign instead of forcing me to grind up dull repetitive side quests to reach the minimum level for the next main mission. I don't like the feeling that the game is fighting with me to stop me getting what I want out of it. Actually, maybe I am mad at you, Assassin's Creed Origins, 
Origins. I'm so sick of all this. I'm sick of playing AAA games that feel like they exist, not because a creator had a vision and an idea that excited them, but because quarterly income projections needed to be met. It's like Blackbeard going into stock market fraud. Yeah, it's more lucrative, but there's no freedom or adventure, and they won't let you carve tits on the figurehead. Sonic Mania must have brought with it a terrible moment of crisis for Sonic Team. Oh shit, someone put out a half-decent Sonic game, cried a member of Sonic Team, urgently withdrawing their finger from their nose with a wet plop. We've been trying to slowly and painfully euthanise this franchise for years, and this might turn things around at a stroke. What if another generation of creepy shut-ins turn into Sonic fans, flooding Deviants out with poorly drawn pictures of their original characters and molesting the family pets? Worse yet, what if people start holding Sonic games to actual standards again and we have to put some bloody work in? It won't come to that, cries another Sonic Team member, dynamically standing to reveal their fully laden nappy. I'll tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna pull out all the stops for Sonic Forces. We're gonna make a terrible 3D Sonic game to beat all terrible 3D Sonic games. We're gonna showcase everything we've learned over the last two decades of terrible 3D Sonic games, which is to say absolutely bugger all. No one's gonna be able to so much as think about molesting family pets because they'll be too busy thinking about how bad Sonic Forces is, and whatever Sonic game comes after it will be lauded with praise if it so much as manages to shit on the kitchen floor instead of the carpet. The world is grateful for your sacrifice, Sonic Team. Sonic Forces gargles so much spunk that every parasitic microbe that dwells in its rotten teeth has gotten pregnant with a little turd baby. No really, it's like a fucking compilation clip show of terrible decisions that bad Sonic games have made. It introduces a new generic broody villain who's all-powerful and invincible until they aren't. Most of the levels are railroaded super-fast sequences that kill you if you press any buttons, and occasionally kill you even if you don't. All of Sonic pals from all previous games show up to collectively waste enough space to rehome all the Syrian refugees. Even that grey dude from Sonic 2006 and Charmy the fucking bee is like holding a symposium for all your favourite rapists. And of course, no one can keep their fucking mouth shut for five seconds. You're not funny, Sonic the Hedgehog. You talk like a dorky high school kid who read a book of Yo Mama jokes and then marched confidently into his school cafeteria, somehow convinced he wasn't going to walk out of there with an entire lunch tray shoved up his ass. And you know, on paper it seemed like such a promising idea. A Sonic game where the main character wasn't Sonic, but a player designed silent protagonist a la the South Park games, fighting back against the Robotnik regime after Sonic is indisposed. Tons of potential there. An unproven character having to earn their way to the level of power and acclaim Sonic already has. So Dr. Robotnik, yes I know we've officially switched to Eggman now, but the bloke who invented the GIF format still pronounces it GIF and he's still fucking wrong, actually could be a credible threat for once. Plus, creating your own protagonist is exactly the sort of thing those creepy shut-ins with their original character fixations need to keep them distracted from bumming the dog. For a moment it seemed like Sonic Team were onto something, but I should have realised that the only thing Sonic Team is on is a big pile of their own shit and piss. Firstly, Robotnik having conquered the world is established solely in a text screen, and otherwise everything seems the same as always. I see no evidence for any other ruling authority in this world, and Robotnik is still 100% focused on battling Sonic and his mates when you'd think he'd have other things to worry about now, like working out his tax plan and getting his enslaved hot squirrel girls to nosh his wrinkly balls. And as for Sonic being indisposed, this lasts for all of one mission before he's suddenly disposed again. They talk a big game about him being imprisoned and tortured, but when we do bust him out he's just sort of standing around, none the worse for wear. In fact I don't think the door was even locked. Incidentally, this section includes my favourite line of dialogue in the game, to wit, the prisoners are being held in some kind of internment facility. So a prison then. Nice to see that Sterling Resistance Intelligence Network in action. After this we have to play as Sonic for about half the game. Um, wasn't this supposed to be about our custom protagonist developing into a hero? No, more Sonic! Don't you understand? Sonic is the coolest. You'll play him for half the game and for half the remaining levels you will have to be holding hands with Sonic the whole time. And then at the very end, if you're very lucky, Sonic will fist bump your custom protagonist and tell them they are a cool dude. You will then be provided with tissues to mop up your gushing orgasm. So all in all there's like one scene where our protagonist is scared and helpless against the main villain and then they're equally as powerful as Sonic basically because they decide to be. And that's about it for character development, unless you count the six million cosmetic items that unlock after every stage. Each with its own unlock animation we have to sit through and which collectively make the stage clear screen last about twice as fucking long as the stage itself. Oh yes, and the retro Sonic from Sonic Generations also turns up for reasons that go largely unexplored, probably because the only reason is that Sonic Generations went down alright and Sonic Team officially don't have a fucking clue what you people want anymore. Still it is kinda nice to have a retro Sonic level now and then to break up the god awful modern 3D Sonic levels, gives a nice nostalgic
slight twinge to see enemies being an actual threat again, rather than standing gormously in your path in a group arranged not coincidentally like the pins at a bowling alley. These things conquered the world, I remind you we are expected to believe. From what, supermarket trolley attendants? Sonic Forces is a culmination of all Sonic Team's bugaboos, the biggest and hairiest of them being their indecisiveness. Unable to have faith in any of their new ideas, they crowd them out of sight with old ones because they're afraid of disappointing established fans, which is like not using caniston cream because you're afraid of disappointing your vaginal bacteria. The fanbase is the key to all of Sonic Team's issues, even Sonic Adventure on the Dreamcast is close to 20 fucking years old, and anyone who was into that is now pushing 30 and demanding that their beloved Sonic games have a maturer tone so that they can play them and not feel like paedophiles for doing so. And while there's a lot of overlap between stuff for kids and stuff for adults these days, come the fuck on. Fuzzy animals fighting a mad scientist with the power of friendship. It's not Harry Potter, get your fucking dicks out of it. And just because you fucked up Sonic Boom doesn't mean you had to go, whoops, guess rebooting things didn't help, time to put our dicks back in it. But you know what, I have found it gratifying to piss all over a game that's shit for nice straightforward reasons, like the developers being completely fucking inept. Not because it got ass cancer from all the corporations raping it. I can at least suggest ways to fix Sonic. Shift priorities, cut the useless chaff, withdraw dicks. I don't know where you'd begin fixing something like EA. At this point it would be like taking a giant rampaging hippo who has been engineered from birth to feed on money and trying to wean it onto hobnobs. Remember back in the arcade heyday when video games were nice innocent things that just wanted to ruthlessly drain the pocket money from children with no more reward promised than the chance to put a three letter swear word on the high score table? How things have changed! Star Wars Battlefront 2 took one too many trips to the cookie jar and now they've spoiled it for all the other kids. EA, if you were hurting for money that bad there were less obvious more dignified ways you could have gotten it, such as for example going into a Disney board meeting wearing a Chewbacca mask and eagerly sucking them all off while their friends throw bloodstained money. But Believe it or not, I don't want to dwell on the prevailing loot box controversy because it's been covered to death elsewhere and I'm not a multiplayer guy. I was more pissed off about EA selling Battlefront 1 at full price with no single player campaign and then sticking one in a second equally full price game and expecting forgiveness. But then this is an increasingly popular strategy, isn't it? If you've done something shitty, follow it up with an even shittier thing and the first shitty thing will be swiftly forgotten and normalised. Take EA's advice, if you get caught cheating with your wife's sister, double down and fuck her guinea pig as well. I want to focus entirely on the story campaign because I figure there's got to be at least one or two creatives buried somewhere in the boil-ridden flab folds of EA and Disney's rival underbellies who try to take at least some pride in their work and are now seeing how the controversy has overshadowed everything else and weighing up the pros and cons of castrating themselves with the company lightsaber. There is precedent for EA Games with Battle in the title having a single player largely unrelated to and unrepresentative of the multiplayer, thinking of you Battlefield Hardline for the first time in years. So let's look at the campaign mode in a vacuum, which should be appropriate for a space game. We kick off playing as Iden Versio, a commando and true believer for the evil empire with a name that sounds like a low market electronics company from Eastern Europe. She flies around the galaxy doing commando shit with her two squad members, Del Miko, a slightly nerdy bloke with the word meek in his name, and Hask, a sneering imperial blue-eyed boy with the word ass in his name. So here are the things we immediately know for absolute certainty will happen. The Empire's gonna get its shit pushed in, Versio's going to switch sides, kill Hask in a boss fight at some point, and some ghoulish recreation of Carrie Fisher's corpse will probably call her a cool dude and give her a fist bump. Although the change of heart took a bit longer than I expected, first there's a mission in the forests of Endor, while the Death Star's getting a good heart fisting up the reactor port towards the end of Return of the Jedi. Here the game presents the purest definition of a missed opportunity, fighting as a stormtrooper on Endor and not getting a chance to shoot any fucking Ewoks. Versio only conveniently realises the Empire is bad a mission or two later when they decide to shit all over her home planet for basically no reason except that it's the evil space empire equivalent of coming home drunk and punching your spouse because the boss laid you off and blew up your reactor port. Versio then defects to the rebels and after having been smirking with open contempt not ten minutes ago at these nonsensical rebellion values like hope and puppies and not carving up your own civilians like rotisserie chicken, suddenly her personality swivels on a dime and she's ready to wave pom-poms for the puppy brigade without a moment's introspection. It's her sidekick Del 
Bellew has the believable character arc, because he's very obviously hiding up a few puppy pictures in his Stormtrooper helmet, has a chance meeting with Luke Skywalker early on, and spends the rest of the game quoting him like a fanboy emo kid who just bought his first Robert Smith album. You see, in the chapters where you aren't playing Versio, you get to play as classic Star Wars characters, presumably to whet your appetite for using heroes in the multiplayer. But if it works, then the joke's on you, because after you're done jumping about as Luke Skywalker trying out his new Jesus sandals, that's the last you'll fucking see of him until you've expended enough energy in the little hamster wheel of multiplayer to power the eastern seaboard. Oh, but I wasn't going to talk about that. Most of the classic characters are voiced by impersonators, with the rather glaring exception of Lando Calrissian, you can tell they got the original actor in for him because he sounds about a thousand years old, and delivers lines like he's turning a meat grinder full of staples. As for the gameplay, it's pretty much what you'd expect. Point the pew-pews at the nasty men, and one way or the other the nasty men will get out of the way. Although, and the sentence I'm about to say is presently scrabbling at the inside of my lungs like a rat in a cooking pot, maybe we could have done with some kind of cover mechanics. The enemy will take cover like it's going out of style, and all I can do is shuffle behind a fence squinting down my iron sights, and cause serious damage to the edge of the box I thought I'd be able to shoot over. Again, this is probably preparation for the multiplayer, where everyone will be charging around in the open like suburban parents on Black Friday, and with roughly the same fatality rate. But the multiplayer presumably doesn't have bog-standard stealth mechanics, and they stuck those in the single-player boulders brass, virtually useless as they are, when the enemies all get alerted pretty quickly after you kill the first one or two, and Versio's interpretation of crouching is closer to what you do to pass through a doorway on a battleship. Gameplay is, in short, an unexciting grab bag of standard elements, broken up by the odd vehicle section, which is the opportunity to add some of that authentic Star Wars flavour, so of course you pilot X-wings and Y-wings, and possibly some other wings that aren't named after chromosomes in frankly insultingly easy flight combat missions, and then there's ground vehicles, but I wonder if the need for authenticity could take a backseat to gameplay once in a while, because I really don't see how anyone could look at an AT-AT walker lumbering along like a rhino in high heels, shooting once per half hour, getting dunked on by whippy little rebel ships that can actually turn around inside a week, and think, wow, piloting one of those must be fun, could probably get my novel finished at last. But fuck all this, we're talking about a story campaign here, and the essence of a story is its ending. I'd love to comment on Battlefront 2's ending, but it doesn't seem to have one. You think it's gonna have one, and then it just doesn't. But don't worry, a text caption assures us that the story continues in multiplayer. Well, fuck me for trying. There I was, giving the benefit of the doubt, only for the doubt to be farted on and thrown back in my face. I felt sorry for you, story campaign. I thought it was a shame you were forced to hang out with your ugly roommate who charges micropayments before they'll do the washing up. I thought I could take you out by yourself and maybe we could all have a little fun and take our minds off your ugly roommate. Little did I realise you were setting up a fucking threesome. Seriously, fucky, eh? Way ahead of your yards. Well, fuck them a notch less sensitively, then. 2017 will be remembered by gaming historians as the year of the premature ejaculation. We had some lovely tumbles in the first two quarters, but then we waited all summer for AAA to warm up for a second round, and all we got was three semi-energetic thrusts on one day in October, and then they came in our eye socket, rolled over, and fucking went to sleep. So now we're just killing time with acrimonious arguments over who's sleeping on the wet patch and paying for the Uber in the morning, and there's nothing else coming out this year but ports and remakes. You haven't reviewed COD World War II yet, Yards? Oh, but I have, viewer. I've reviewed COD World War II more times than I can count. Sometimes it's called Call of Duty, sometimes it's called Battlefield, sometimes it's called Medal of Honor, but it is always nonetheless the same. A lot of Nazis will die, and we'll all learn important lessons about duty and brotherhood before we join the multiplayer and listen to a bunch of grown men calling each other faggots for stealing their kills, while the publisher tries to tacitly convince us to blow our life savings on premium VD medicine. Besides, going back to World War II is a shamelessly retrograde move that I don't want to encourage because next platform shoes might come back. AAA these days is only AAA in the sense that the word aggravating also has three A's in it. I think we should attempt trial separation from AAA until at least the new year, so let's play some goddamn indies. Hand of Fate 2 is an action-packed high fantasy game consisting entirely of one incredibly long and boring coach ride during which we're stuck sitting opposite a really ugly nun, who is going to insist on teaching you her favourite card game no matter how many times you suggest switching to the travel scrabble. So what we have here is a hybrid of deck-building game and a D&D session being run by someone who's just a little bit too into it, the premise being that we're using the game to go over the events of our adventuring life thus far that led us to only being able to afford a seat in economy class. This being the case, my adventurous life seems to have consisted of an awful lot of repeating the same adventure multiple times and swearing at dice. The actual gameplay of each campaign consists of 
moving from encounter to encounter, except beforehand you get to pick what random encounters are included in the deck alongside the ones required by the story. Mostly the challenge is centred around juggling probability and resource management, until the need for combat suddenly arises, at which point the game chucks all that numbers bullshit in the bin and puts you out with some monsters for a few minutes so you can twat each other with sticks. Kind of like live-action role-playing, I suppose, except that you can die of something other than embarrassment. Can't help noticing that great big two hanging off the title like a big coiled turd that won't break off, Yards. Do I need to have played Hand of Fate 1? Not really, imaginary questioner. I'd put Hand of Fate 2 alongside Left 4 Dead 2 in the category of sequels that kind of make the original obsolete, because it's basically the same game but fleshed out and with more bells and whistles. Some of which did feel like gilding the lily a tad, like character customization options, whatever helps you get immersed, sure, but in a game where most of your actions are being merely described in text, doesn't feel like our appearance matters much unless the text contrives for the action to frequently take place in a hairdresser's. Also, as well as deciding random outcomes with the success-failure three-card Monte, we've now got dice rolls and a weird Stop the Pendulum game. I guess the Pendulum is theoretically more skill-based than random, but in practice it can get fucked. The thing you're trying to point at is commonly about the size of a bush baby's bollocks, and I swear there's a very slight controller delay, so trying to skillfully hit the target has roughly the same success rate as putting the controller in a bag of marbles and kicking it across the room. On the whole though, this shit is quite my jam. Disclaimer, do not use shit as jam. It will make for a poor morning's breakfast. But I've got a fondness for this sort of FTL-style procedural storytelling, and by strange coincidence I also enjoy the counter-centric Batman Arkham-style combat. If you only like one of those things, you might not enjoy the way the other keeps interrupting it, but for me, having a special button that lets me take a break from all this fiddling about with cards and numbers so I can beat the snot out of the characters for two minutes is a feature I could do with in virtually any game. It'd certainly liven up Animal Crossing. It might not be the most elegantly designed combat in the world, I feel like it uses too many buttons. One for attack, one for other attack, one for special attack, one for finisher attack, one for block, one for evade, one for the little boy who lives down the lane, and more often than not the enemies clump together and the action becomes a big confusing rugby scrum where the counter prompts are pretty much all you have to go on. But no deals have been broken thus far. What can be a bit galling is when you've carefully optimised your deck and spent an hour getting lucky rolls and calculating yourself into the perfect position, only to lose it all on the final boss fight because you failed to dodge his dick slap finisher, or the other way around, maybe you're down to 5 health but masterfully fought off 16 guys without taking a single hit, only for the next random card to take 15 health off you because you tried to pick up a coin and accidentally punched yourself in the balls. See, it's where the game switches between its two distinct gameplay cores that there's the occasional grinding of gears. Personally I'm not that interested in the whole deck building concept, it's the sort of thing I've come to associate with odd smelling rooms above comic book shops, into which large numbers of Cheetos unwittingly wander and are never seen again. The whole process of building my encounter deck before every campaign was a bit of a chore. Yes, there's a button to automatically fill out the deck, but I swiftly found I couldn't trust it. It was always leaving out interesting new cards and leaving in that fucking overpriced pie shop, and that one ring that reduces fire damage when the main enemy that uses fire is about as hard to dodge as a Republican tax code. I think the major issue I have with this otherwise unique and absorbing game is one of momentum. Some of the campaigns can go on for very long, and when I fail them right at the last hurdle I feel quite disheartened and unsure if I could stand to start all over again. What might help is, say, a quick restart button I could press at this point to just shuffle the decks and start again, bish bash bosh and no bother. What most certainly does not help is to dangle the victory token in front of me for a minute, going ooh look at this lovely shiny thing you're not going to have now, better flamboyantly put it back in my pile of things that aren't for losers, before I make all the cards fly around the room for five minutes and kick you back to the deck building screen so you can try to figure out where you fucked this up. A slave to the swishy wishy effects this game, nothing moves unless it can fly around a bit first. Yes I understand some of this is probably covering loading times, which is presumably why we have to stare at a Winamp visualisation from the early 2000s for a minute before every combat. But it's a bit of a pace killer. So that's Hand of Fate, it's like finding your mum's vibrator as a kid. It's intriguing and you can have fun with it, but it's occasionally sticky in ways that probably aren't worth thinking about. So another year is lolloping to a close like a walrus rolling inexorably down a hill towards a threshing machine and there's only one week left for catch-ups before the end of year festivities. But what, of all the games I never got around to in 2017, most deserves a last minute second look. Some indie darling, something that proved influential in retrospect like PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, or perhaps a game where one of the goals is to find all of the toilets and deposit in each one a big smelly farty poo. I think we all know the answer to that one, so yeah, South Park the Fractured But Whole. There's actually a clever joke in that subtitle, did you spot it? Fractured But Whole? That's right, you 
can't have something fractured and whole at the same time. Oh, the mind-bending feats of wordplay of those clever young whippersnappers who make South Park. Clever middle-aged whippersnappers, rather. Middle-aged whippersnappers still making a living out of poo jokes. My goodness, my glass house is sparkling delightfully in the morning sun. What a nice day to indulge in my favourite hobby of projectile mineralogy. So why didn't I review South Park the traumatised anus when it came out? I did play it, but I just kind of stopped midway through. Partly because I was having trouble thinking of things to say that I hadn't already said about the last game, Stick of Truth. It's the same town, you walk around it, or rather hop around it because the animation's so crude it's recovered from subterranean hydrocarbons, the plot concerns all the kids playing a big make-believe roleplay together that eventually starts blurring with the real world, and a lot of toilets get pooed in. But I came back to the game last week and finished it because in the intervening time I took it upon myself to watch all the episodes of South Park I hadn't seen. After all, I have to justify my Hulu subscription somehow. And having caught up, you know what, the show's still pretty good. Yeah, obviously it's not as good as it was, that's the nature of the beast. It's fun to swing a dead polecat around your head, but it's not going to be the same after you've had to stitch the dead polecat back together ten or eleven times. But it's holding together as well as can be expected for an adult cartoon with twenty plus seasons, certainly a fuckload better than The Simpsons, which is currently best equivalised to a man being dragged behind a car as it does donuts in Times Square, losing more and more bits of skin and flesh with every spin while he screams and screams and upsets the children but just won't fucking die. But yes, having caught up I could understand all the new characters and changes in South Park, like how those two lads have gone gay all of a sudden, but that's sort of the first problem with fractured bum tits poo poos, that it feels a lot more reliant on the player's foreknowledge of the show than Stick of Truth was. Stick of Truth's plot was self-contained enough that I could get into it despite not having watched South Park since my last circumcision, but Damaged Sphincter is literally a direct continuation of a couple of episodes of the show where the kids play as superheroes. Seems a bit optimistic to expect us to have seen the whole show in this age of endless competition for our eyeballs between YouTube, Netflix, video game, social media going outside Mrs. Braithwaite's bathroom window. As much as the fact that my first attempt to play Broken Body led to me seeking out the series again kind of proves that cross-promotion works, not everyone has as much free time as me because they have real jobs and probably haven't murdered all their friends. But let's get back to the game. Having been made King of Fantasyland after the events of Stick of Truth, our custom protagonist suddenly finds his, her or its world shattered when his, her or its friends tragically decide to play something else and we must reinvent ourselves from the ground up as a superhero, superheroine or super thing. You embark on a quest to find a lost cat, uncover a hidden conspiracy of people sticking their faces in cats' asses, which is another thing that's going to fly completely over your head like a severely weathered dead polecat if you haven't watched the relevant episode, and there's a prolonged running gag about my goodness aren't there a lot of superhero franchises in popular culture these days. But don't be turned off if you think it's going to be nothing but that kind of biting lofty-minded satire because the protagonist's superpower is the ability to fart so hard that they warp reality. Thus is the tone set and the tone sounds like this. <laughs> Gameplay-wise, it's like they took the Stick of Truth gameplay and streamlined it in a tree shredder. The main thing you do on a moment-to-moment -moment basis is loot every container in the room with a yellow highlight. It's like a year in fetishist's Christmas morning. But where in Stick of Truth you'd have to look at the list of stuff in each piss box and select Take All, now everything gets automatically hoovered into your pocket as soon as you open it, which effectively cuts your workload in half at a stroke. But that's not all, there's quite a sumptuous bounty of features that Fractured Butthole doesn't have anymore. Equipment, equipment upgrades, perks, all coming soon to a landfill near you. What you get is, you pick a character class, your class gets three attacks and a super attack and that's your lot. How your character improves is that every few levels you unlock a new slot into which special patches can be placed, which is a surprisingly deep system and requires quite a bit of thought, but here's a brief beginner's tutorial. If you see a patch with a number on it that's higher than the patch you've currently got, equip that patch instead. Now for the advanced lesson, once you've unlocked two patch slots, equip the patch with the second highest number on it. If you're having trouble figuring out how numbers work, try punching yourself in the balls the same number of times as each patch and then equip the patch that made your balls hurt the most. Close sarcasm quotes. I'd say the only place the gameplay of the mutilated sphincter has evolved any is in the combat, which has gone from the simplistic row-based system to a flashy chest board affair where we take turns to move our guys into optimal positions to use different attacks that all affect unique patterns of squares. But don't be too intimidated by the need for grand strategy because you can also do a big stinky fart in the enemy's face that means he misses a turn and you can freely punch them in the face a few times. Which I found personally gratifying because whenever I played chess with my brother when we were kids he always accused me of making that rule up. Frankly though the combat often felt like a chore and it's not the mechanics fault, it was that the lack of equipment or perks and much else the game had to reward me with made me getting into random battles feel like I wasn't doing much more than wasting two minutes of my life. In the end the big picture is this, I can think of several standout 
memorable moments from Stick of Truth. The alien abduction, the retro RPG section in Canada, that bit where you get shrunk down and have to avoid being squashed by your parents fucking. But very little stands out in my memory of the injured rectum. I remember it as a prolonged sequence of going to places and fighting some dudes. And I remember that the game's final boss fight took place about half an hour too early, then events just trundle along for a bit before the story just sort of peters out and abruptly ends, leaving me feeling like the gerbil in my asshole had suffocated to death before I'd even brought myself off. So that's Fractured But Whole, it's Stick of Truth but not so much. Bit of a dowdy note to end the year on really, so here are some pictures of ladies' bottoms.